Hello and welcome to the Grand Theft World Podcast. I am your host and navigator, Tony Myers. We have a very special episode for you tonight. I have a, some very good friends of mine joining me, intelligent, cogent individuals that speak with diffidence and parhesia, uh, joining me for a roundtable. That'll be quite entertaining, and I'm hoping to emulate or simulate sort of the conversations that you would have with friends or family, especially around these complex topics that are being presented to us in our world today. Tonight's uh, episode is called Spotify Seppuku, uh, thanks to Neil Young and the continual issue of Joe Rogan breaking the internet. Oh, and by the way, today's podcast is being done on January 30th, 2022. Uh, we have a couple, we have a plethora of clips we're going to get to tonight. First couple of hours, like I said, is going to be a roundtable. We're going to discuss, we're going to show clips as we normally do, but then we're going to have more of a, a general discussion around those clips and commentary. And I hope to uh, elucidate some uh, uh, sort of uh, different ideas presented by different individuals, how they see things in regards to what's going on and what's being presented in those clips. Then about midnight, we're going to step away from that. I'm going to finish out the show solo and we're going to go into the rest of the show card just because it's so voluminous. I want to expedite making sure we get to some of the major clips from this past week. And one of those being Academy of Ideas did a very fascinating uh, video talking about sort of the rise of authoritarianism uh, in juxtaposition to sort of cowardice. And so kind of getting into the psychology of why it's sort of the congruent relationship, the proportional relationship, if you will, between cowardice and tyranny. Then we have uh, Steven Crowder uh, making a little bit of fun of the Barry Weiss situation on Bill Maher, you know, speaking a little bit of too much candor, potentially. Uh, Barry Weiss, that is, who sort of sees herself as sort of a classical liberal, I believe. We'll, we'll get into that. And also Brett and Heather discusses why or they believe that Fauci seems to be unfireable, if you will. Why can't Fauci be fired? You know, what type of power does he really wield? And especially through the NIAID. So it'll be interesting to get into those topics tonight. And we have a, a, a number of clips. We have Aaron uh, and Melissa Dykes getting into uh, the whole concept of a post-work society and, and many, many others. So without further ado, we're going to start tonight's podcast, as we always do, with Luke Rudowski from We Are Change. And let's go ahead and get to that first clip. What a moment in Canadian history here at Parliament Hill. I love you, Canada! The revolution will not be televised, but it will be moderately distributed on YouTube, depending on how far we can beat the AI algorithm that decides how many people see this video in the general public. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. This is Lukradowski here of WeAreChange.org, and we have a lot of very important, crazy news to get into today. As, of course, the truckers have arrived to Ottawa. We're going to be talking about that, the significant ramifications of this, the movements that have been inspired by this, along, of course, with all the latest news, all here on this independent media broadcast. And there's so much to get into. We're just going to jump right into it, as, of course, I think what we're seeing right now could be explained by Newton's third law, that for every action, there's an equal reaction. And when you have so many people demanding freedom and liberty, that's a direct response from politicians taking it away from them. And let's be honest, there have been a lot of politicians 
emboldened and fervently fighting to get rid of your personal liberties, eliminating any kind of autonomy without, of course, you being dependent on the state. This, to me, is perfectly exemplified by the latest move announced by Joe Biden, the president of the United States, that says he's going to be regulating Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies because, quote, it's a matter of national security, even though cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin essentially act like digital cash. Is he going to be banning cash in the matter of national security next? Well, who knows? But very interestingly, in response to this, there are a lot of states, including Arizona, that just introduced a bill that is trying to make Bitcoin legal tender in their state, standing up for people's financial future and ability to move away from the criminal Federal Reserve banking system. A lot of states pushing back against Biden, against this very unpopular policy that he is set to implement, as many states are making a very strong stance against it. In New Zealand, the government there is so draconian that their citizens are literally looking towards the Taliban for help. And I'm not just saying that in a fascist way. This is the crazy story of Charlotte Bellis, who is a pregnant New Zealand journalist that has been stranded because of New Zealand's insane totalitarian Orwellian quarantine policies that have created a backlog and prevented many people from going home, including this pregnant journalist, leaving her diplomatically stranded. She was a journalist, so she had visas to stay in the Afghanistan, one of the few places in the world where she could legally stay, this journalist reached out to a senior Taliban contact, asked them for permission if she could return in Afghanistan, which she was forced to return to because the government of New Zealand rejected 59 documents and rejected her application for an emergency return to her home country. Absolutely insane story highlighting how bonkers many countries that have proclaimed themselves to be democracies who, according to the eyes of this New Zealand journalist, are worse off than the Taliban. And this kind of insanity is not just in New Zealand, it's also in horrible, disgusting states like New Jersey that just sentenced Ian Smith, a gym owner, for the criminal act of keeping his gym open during lockdowns. He got one year of probation, one year too many, for the crime of trying to keep people fit and healthy. Ian Smith did nothing wrong. The state of New Jersey should already be even more ashamed of itself than it already is. There's a reason when I was in New York City, we always called it Dirty Jersey. And here in the United States, we can only expect more government, more bureaucracy. As of course, the noted UK speed camera nightmare is coming to the United United States all under a plan of Pete Buttigieg that is planning to put up money generating speed cameras all throughout the United States all in the name of generating revenue for the state as of course there's even some preliminary data suggesting that these cameras actually create more car accidents and they are widely despised by the general public with even the right and the left both opposing them since of course this is not only a government overreach but also will be financing and funding funding many police forces all throughout the United States. And with Americans just being constantly pushed with more and more bureaucracy, nonsense, bullcrap, when will we push back like Canada is? Well, I don't know, but we got new Apple emojis that show a pregnant man, so uh, there's that. Also, if you're a dude, you gotta, you gotta watch out now because uh, allegedly you could get pregnant at any moment. Now, uh, that's going to make me change a lot of personal decisions that I've been making. 
I'm not no expert or genius, but this is allegedly real-life video coming out of the Canadian Parliament right now that uh, we cannot independently verify. We can't have anyone freak out out there, okay? We've got to keep our composure. We've got too far. There's too much to lose. We've got to keep our composure. We can't have anyone freak out. And uh, with the way things are going, that wouldn't be surprising for me if that was actually happening, as of course there's a major convoy. There's been a mass mobilization. Some people say a mass awakening of individuals in Canada saying enough is enough of the lockdowns, of the mandates, of the restrictions, of the government trying to control every aspect of my life. And there's a number of truckers now that are fighting and standing up for people's personal freedom. Truckers are, of course, the backbone of any society. They are the reason why we have food on our tables and they literally act like the bloodline for any kind of society that is dependent on them to create the current existence that we are in. Now throughout the week we have been covering this convoy as it has been growing, gaining more support, raising millions of dollars for the upcoming legal battles that of course they're going to be going through when it comes to challenging the Canadian state and their track trace and database almost akin to a social credit score system that they have currently implemented in that country. The system essentially rewards people who comply with the whims of the state and punishes those who do not. Now this has been a very significant development since of course this movement seems very organic, seems very natural. It has come out of nowhere and it has garnered large swells of support from of course the general public and people in the working class. And now they have finally reached Ottawa and you could see this mass mobilization of all the truckers of all the people that even in these cold frigid frigid weathers have co have come together and and told the government the state that of course they are unhappy with everything that they are doing and implementing against them. What's the response by the government in this situation? Did they say, hey, let's let's listen to these people. Let's see what they want. This is a huge swell of people coming together demanding that our government act differently. What can we do better to serve the, the public there? Nope. Absolutely not. Justin Trudeau, Trudeau took his tail between his legs and ran off. As we're finding out that Justin Trudeau and his family left their home in Ottawa for undisclosed secret location because of alleged security concerns, running away from their constituents, running away from the people that they are supposed to be serving. Some people are alleging that Trudeau has fled to Cuba, but we have not seen any verifiable reports of that happening. But the way that this is characterized, the, the way that this plays off is that the government is not interested in, in serving the will of the people. It's interested in ignoring that and serving of course special interest and multinational corporations tied into billionaire globalist cabals like the Davos group and the World Economic Forum where even Klaus Schwab a few years ago was bragging about how half of the government in Canada has been infiltrated, quote, penetrated by World Economic Forum representatives that are implementing their Great Reset, which of course is widely unpopular with the general public. This could be why, of course, Justin Trudeau is, is hiding, not answering, not talking to any of these people who have legitimate concerns against him and his actions against the people. And his response to, to, to all of this, especially when the convoy was building, was growing, was, was 
cowardly. It was slanderous. He called the movement a small fringe minority of individuals. He said that they're holding, quote, unacceptable views. And as you could see from, from the photos and videos that we have been, been playing with you, this is not a, a fringe minority. Believing that, that you have dominion over your human body is is not an unacceptable view it's more common sense than anything else but of course that's not the reality that autocrats live in as of course even some governments in canada have been making laws outlawing support for of course the freedom truckers and there has been a huge disdain and backlash by the billionaire globalist cabal against them with even the washington post writing scathing disgusting articles slandering these truckers, these working people, and even went as far as to draw a political cartoon that's neither funny nor thought-provoking, just literally slandering these hard-working blue-collar people as alleged fascist. Now, this trucker protest is going to have some significant ramifications, not just politically, not just socially, not just white-pilling a lot of people who are paying attention to it, giving them hope, inspiring them, creating copycat movements like we're hearing po possibly happening in Holland, as, of course, there is allegedly reports and videos of their own trucker convoys being mobilized right now to protest the moves that are happening in that country. But, of course, with with the truckers protesting, this leaves a lot of essential items unavailable at the stores, with many reports already coming in that there are some empty store shelves in Canadian grocery stores. Now, this is significant because of the protest, because by and large, it's a problem that has been exacerbated by the government putting restrictions on the free flow of capital and disrupting the global supply chain with their bureaucracy mandates, lockdowns, and restrictions. If it wasn't for the government implementing these laws and decrees which have started this, which, by the way, would have only exacerbated this problem even more, then there wouldn't be a response for it that called for protest. It's the government that disrupted the global supply chain, that prevented many goods from coming to you, and they're trying to prevent more goods from coming from you with their latest mandates on the border that are absolutely ridiculous, not scientific at all. The data doesn't provide or show any kind of significance or help or increase of well-being or positive impact at all. It does show the government being able to implement and punish a public because they didn't do what the government wanted them to do. And that's a policy that, of course, I do not believe in. And there's a groundswell of individuals, whether Elon Musk, Joe Rogan, the Canadian truckers, Edward Snowden, Kyrie Irving, Russell Brand, you name it, even frickin' Kid Rock of all people. There's a movement underway that's an equal reaction to what the government has been doing to us for the last two years. It's significant. It's worth paying attention to. And if you agree with that, share this video with your friends and family members. Because just like I said in the beginning of this video, not only is there an equal reaction towards an action, this is also dependent on the, the AI algorithm that, of course, runs YouTube. That if it sees a lot of people watching and sharing this video and, and long watch time, that means it will recommend it to other people, including other 
other normies and Kyles and Karens out there. That's the plan. And then and then and then we're gonna take all those normies, Kyles and Karen, and we're gonna bring them in and we're gonna give them uniforms, the best political shorts.com, and they're gonna spread messages where they can't be censored. And then we're gonna bring them in to, of course, LukeUncensored.com and then really blow their mind away. That's pretty much what I'm doing here. I'm being honest, I'm being transparent, and I'm doing this because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you guys actively participating and being a part of this. This is why I love you guys. Stay tuned for more here on We. Luke Rudowski from We Are Change, always uh, bringing in uh, the the show with lots of new information regarding. The reason why I like to play Luke Rudowski in the beginning is because he goes over the news at the end of the week and what's coming into the beginning of the next week. So he's always a, a great example of what we can expect moving forward with the news cycle. But before I get we get in, into the elements of what he presented on his most recent show, I'm pleased to be inter- I'm pleased to be joined by three good friends, uh, individuals, uh, g- colleagues of ours, uh, Brett Finot from the schoolsucksproject.com, James Jordan, who is a guest blogger and autonomy graduate, and I'll let him speak as to what his uh, blog, he also has his own blog, and Daniel McCarthy from storyofnowhere.com, if I have that correct which is a, a book, a podcast, and a website. So without further ado, first go to Brett Finot. If you want to introduce you this, you know, say who you are and where they can, people can find you and a little bit about yourself. Well, hey, thanks, Tony. It's great to be with all of you tonight. Uh, I'm Brett. I was the host of the School Sucks podcast, which is just wrapped up at the end of 2021 after uh, 12 years. Uh, my spinoff project from that currently is called the University, and that is a private social media. We operate on Discord, just like Autonomy does, just like the Grand Theft World community does. And we have a pretty lively exchange there. We have meetings a few times a week, and it's a good place for people to get support, accountability, share ideas, uh, contrast ideas. And uh, it's really grown over the last year, and that's where I spend most of my time uh, these days, but, uh, yeah, it's great to be here tonight. The only thing I should say as a caveat is, uh, as, as many people have heard, we've been having some critical infrastructure problems here in Pittsburgh where I live and, uh, they might affect the, the internet as well. So, uh, I think I just fixed everything and hopefully I'm, I'm here to stay at this point, but it's great to be with you and, uh, everybody listening as well. Thanks. You got the cyber polygon people after you, bro. World Economic <laughs> Forum. Boom. They're coming after Brad, you are a, a very good friend of mine, uh, a colleague of ours. You've done incredible work. If you haven't seen some of Brett's work, please check out his, his original podcast, the school sucks podcast and check out your website was school sucks and some of the most intelligent discussions I've ever had, even most recently, have occurred in your community. Just an incredible community of very dynamic individuals. The individuals that don't always agree on all points, but can certainly have a very meaningful discussion around complex topics. So I really appreciate some of the discussions I've had recently in there. Not to uh, contrast it too much with other discussions I've elsewhere, but really, really impressed by uh, the quality of your community. So. Thanks. Hey, real quick, just if, if anybody is listening and they've never heard of me before, schoolsucksproject.com slash Gatto, because uh, that's somebody that I would really like other people to also be familiar with if they're not. John Taylor Gatto, who was one of my faraway mentors in the whole school criticism project. So um, I have a video series based on his book, The Underground History of American Education. And I'll tell you, if 10 million people more 
10 million more people knew who John Taylor Gatto was in this country right now, we might be in a very different situation. So uh, that's always something I'm, I'm working to spread the word about is who Gatto is, what he did, and what he said, most importantly. So thanks. In fact, I have a deep dive later. I'm using part of the underground history, uh, getting a bit more into Francis Galton and sort of, you know, his connection to Darwin and sort of the burgeoning eugenics movement and psychometrics and all those sorts of concepts, which I went over before, but I'm going to tie it into some elements of the Anglo-American establishment. So he is uh, well ahead of his time. And you also did for me, I remember Rich uh, pointed this out to me uh, as being a work of art, an absolute work of art when we talked about it a production that still uh, holds true to my heart today called, I think it was called the American way. Is mm -hmm. that, do you remember that series you did? Is that what it's called? Am I, do I have that correct? Cause it's been quite some time since I listened to it, but I remember when we did, cause I was staying with rich back in 2011 as an incredible production you did that really outlined the, the consequences of what God is presenting in his book. You know, yeah. here are some future consequences, you know? Yeah. So it was based on uh, like a seven or eight minute video that I made probably 10 years ago called The American Way, Our Connection to Nazi Germany, of all things to call a video. Uh, so uh, Very yeah, it, 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 I think it might be the most popular video that we have on our YouTube channel, which is School Sucks Podcast, and it's still up. Um, but people had a lot of questions in the comments and they, you know, it, it definitely was an oversimplification as any eight minute YouTube video is going to be about a massively complex subject, how Germany turned from, you know, a pretty sophisticated first world, uh, liberal society into unfortunately what they're most famous for in the 20th century. And, uh, you know, it wasn't the rise of one bad man. It was a process decades, if not over a century in the making. So, uh, you know, we we outline in a in a three part series called The American Way, the philosophic corruption, uh, the economic problems, the social problems uh, that that happen. Of course, most importantly, uh, the the compulsory education system that took hold in Germany in the 19th century or in the in Central Europe in the 19th century. And um, we compare and contrast with where America was at at the time I made that series, which was now about 10 years ago. Fantastic series. Really employ people to go check that out. It's uh, just fan. You've done so much incredible work. And I think one of the things that, you know, I remember most when I first met you is your ability to sort of connect on a personal level. Um, like the, when I first listened to your podcast, the first like 10 or 20 episodes you ever did, um, the very beginning of your podcast, just telling your story about your experiences in schooling, your experiences, with big pharma sort of impacting the children you're working with in schooling, which that ties into what we're experiencing today really had an impact and an eye opening moment for me, like just realizing how much, uh, sort of how much crony capitalism is involved in these sort of state run institutions and how much that's impacting children. Uh, and that was before I even knew about the methodology or the type of outcome-based education system that was in place. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And uh, it is, it is great to be here. Great to be with you. And I look forward to this tonight. I'll probably, I'm going to stick around until midnight. My bedtime is like 10 PM. So I'm going to push it a couple extra hours tonight for this experience. Bad boy. <laughs> bad boys on tonight right so get some sunglasses you know have yourself a drink okay so next up let's see daniel mccarthy a fellow classicist uh a lover of all things related to ancient philosophy history and also scholasticism and medieval philosophy and history so we share 
a likeness, a kinship there, no doubt. And um, currently going through Aristotle's organon. So I, you know, you're resonating quite well with my soul right now in regards to all of that. Uh, your website, your blog is called The Story of Nowhere. Do I have that correct? You do. Storyofnowhere.com is where you can find pretty much everything I've ever done. So that's where I would point to everyone. I've got a book, I've got a podcast, and it's all at storyofnowhere.com. Fantastic. And what's just so people can sort of get familiar with what, uh, what made you interested in sort of the subject of classical philosophy and utopian ideals, especially being carried forward. Now it's a big subject, but let's even condense it down in like a, well, it all started in eighth grade when I saw Alex Jones break into the Bohemian Grove. (laughs) No, really. I mean, that is part of it, but my interest in philosophy, I guess, stems from just my nature. Ever since I was a child, I was that kid who was like trying to turn the fridge light off using that little switch and wondering like, is it supposed to be light or is it supposed to be dark? Or I would ask these questions to my mother, like, why is it in the summertime when it's really hot? I want to be cold, but in the wintertime when it's really cold, I want to be hot. What's a human being supposed to be? So I don't know. That's a weird childish example, but I suppose what I was always after was this question of universals and essences and stuff. And so as I got older, I just naturally drifted towards the philosophical uh, subject. And I went to a community college and I didn't really find any solace there as far as the big questions I wanted answered. And so I decided to go it alone. And uh, then not quite alone because I found some other people who were into the same stuff. So I don't know. I've always just been hitting the hitting the road hard when it comes to philosophy. And then the historical stuff has always just been very tightly linked, but I guess I would say history and that being concurrent with current events has just always been an almost unexplicable passion of mine. I love it. I've got a weird obsession with it and that's about it. I could go through the whole long story, but uh, I take all well, we share a kinship there. I mean, I've listened yeah. to some of your podcasts in the past and just absolutely incredible work. I think you were actually one of them. You're going over for Chino, which I just gave a long mm-hmm. dissertation about in the GTW community, which I uh, thank you for the compliment, James, by the way, which segueing over now, James, James is an autonomy graduate. He participated, he has participated from day one on when I started the town halls you are just an incredible person. Um, I appreciate your, your comments and also the, the amount of research you've done. Um, you always uh, pick up something that I'm not familiar with and throw it my way. And I'm just like, you know what? I really, you also, for people who are unaware, he's um, been helping us with production elements in the background. So he shares a lot of resources that I then use on the show. And I wanted to get him on to be able to you know, give a plug to his blog and have the opportunity to participate in a round table together because he's, he's been so instrumental in the success of the town hall. And so I can't thank you enough for that. And I'm pleased. I'm really thank you for joining us tonight and uh, your blog, where can people find you? Uh, well, thank you, of course, for uh, providing me the opportunity to uh, get my fanboy dream um, to become a reality, Tony, and uh, finally Absolutely. be on uh, on Grand Theft World. It took um, me and so, not Rich. See, so I, well, I do that. You know, do that. It, hey, it, however it happened, it happened. And, <laughs> and that's really the important thing. Um, but uh, uh, no, again, uh, you know, nothing but but thanks for all the kind words uh, that you that you offer. Um, I mean, it's, it's been, you really appreciate your participation. It's really been uh, amazing. So, 
Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, folks can, uh, they can visit my website. It's uh, manufacturingreality.org. Um, and basically, you know, uh, most of everything that I have done on the internet, or at least that has my unique fingerprint on it, uh, they can find on that website, uh, whether it's uh, essays that I've written um, or, uh, you know, the, the blog that I currently produce, which, of course, is uh, Grand Theft World Liberty Radio. There's links to that there as well. Um, so it's just kind of the central location for uh, where folks can find, uh, you know, the work that I've done, the independent research uh, that I've been able to produce over the course of uh, really only about the last year or so. And your independent research is like sort of a reminds me of Whitney Webb in, in, insofar as like doing deep dives into complex subjects and finding the sort of financial connections and the political connections. It reminds me more of a sort of a kinship to that. So just really good work there. And I just wanted to point out, you also do a podcast that's tomorrow night. I'm correct. That's Liberty Radio at seven. Is yes. that still happening? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Very yep. Good. We're still, uh, still rolling strong with the Liberty Radio. Haven't quite figured out the, uh, the streaming portion of it yet, uh, but we're getting to that. It's just a little bit uh, too complex for Phoenix and I uh, at the moment, uh, but hopefully it won't be for very much longer. Uh, but I will very give good. folks a, uh, a quick sneak peek into the episode that uh, we'll be dropping on Tuesday uh, and recording tomorrow night. Uh, for anyone who actually caught last week's episode and the interview that I did uh, with Angry North uh, over in the United Kingdom, uh, he actually has a new track that we're going to be world premiering uh, on this week's episode of Liberty Radio. So if y'all dug uh, what you were hearing last week, make sure you check out this week's episode as well. World premiere. That's awesome. Well, c- congratulations. Use that platform. That's amazing. Um, and you'll drop that probably tomorrow night for the the subscribers or, or probably Tuesday morning. Sometime no, it'll there. be yeah. Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah. I'm yeah. not that ambitious. <laughs> no, Cause we start, uh, coax it out yeah. 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 Well, we start taping at, uh, at seven o'clock on, uh, on Monday nights. Uh, so by the time we get done, it's, it's typically a three hour show. So, oh, you know, good. it's, yeah, it's, it's well after 10 o'clock by the time we get done. And unfortunately, like Brett, I'm kind of an old man. So my bedtime tends to come pretty early. Um, so yeah, Tuesday morning is usually when the post-production gets done and, uh, normally I can get it out around lunchtime. Very good. And for people who are interested that I know you always post in the GTW discord and I'll probably be posted on your, your blog as well. So yeah. Oh yeah. All over the social ghettos. Yeah. Pretty much anywhere I can, uh, I can reach out. It'll, it'll get posted. Oh, like that social ghettos. That's fantastic. Okay. So, well, since this is a round table, we just, you know, Luke Radowski just went over a ton of news, you know, this whole concept of Newton's third law and action and reaction and the crypto regulation, New Zealand, uh, that sort of reporter or whoever that was that's caught there that can't get back into her own country because of the, I don't know, has to do with vaccination status or whatever. Um, just absolutely deplorable and crazy speed cams, pregnant men, you know, the old school reference with Will Ferrell. Love that. Cause I love that movie when I was a kid or a teenager, I always found that entertaining, but I figure before we get into any of those topics, what do you guys think about this trucker thing? You know, I saw in the chat, someone say there might be some Soros connection. I haven't seen any sort of, uh, it seems dubious though. Right now I've tried to do a quick search of it. I couldn't find anything meaningful there. Um, and even if there is anything meaningful there, what's that? portend about the whole 
situation. But just even before we try to get into more nefarious aspects around it, just more generally, what do you guys think about that? Like, what do you guys think about this huge protest? The, the, what's happening with Trudeau? By the way, someone also mentioned that like half of uh, Trudeau's parliament is part of the Young Global Leaders Program of the World Economic Forum, which, yes, we will get to Klaus stating that later on tonight, probably like three in the morning, but we will get it. I have it on there on the show card. But uh, does anyone have any thoughts, any suggestions, any ideas around what the hell is going on with that shit? Well, I could comment just on the face value thing. Of course, there's always some possibility that some big money is lurking behind the scenes in any movement. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the movement itself is something that shouldn't be paid attention to or even be generally judged as a net positive for the simple reason that most of the time when you have a large movement, the, the vast majority of the people involved with it are not involved with that big money connection. Now, this, of course, can be a dangerous thing because it only takes one person to screw up a peaceful protest, as we all know. So I'm not saying that we should just assume that everything's going to be good either. But face value, yeah, this is a good example of the old dictum from Orwell. You hope lies with the proles, man. That's where it is. It's going to be the working class types of people, the ones who aren't ensconced in the sort of ivory tower philosophies that uh, that just pervade all of the mainstream media sources and the colleges and all that stuff. These are real working class people. It's probably most of them, like I said, maybe if there are some plants in there. This, I think, is a good sign that the average people, the people who are important, not the ones who sit and abstract all day, but the ones who actually do the material work that needs done, when they have a problem with something, we all have a problem with something. And uh, so that's my take on that. And I would just say at the beginning, Luke said, uh, the revolution will not be televised. And I thought that was funny because despite the, I mean, I don't know how many truckers there are, I haven't really seen much mainstream coverage of this. I mean, it's mentioned, Tiny uh, bit on Fox News. That's right. pretty much it. Yeah. It's it's not actually really being televised, kind of like how when uh, the 2020 summer riots were going on and people were getting beaten and stuff, that wasn't summer really televised. Yeah, right. That wasn't <laughs> televised either. So it's Gil Scott Heron was right, man. The revolution won't be televised, but apparently it will be tweeted. So at least we have that because we've got like on the ground people reporting and recording and posting what's going on. So we've got technology in this case working in our favor. Yeah. And I, I really, uh, I like that sentiment, uh, Daniel, uh, because one of the, uh, one of the promos that I put out for an early episode of Liberty radio, uh, was letting people know that indeed the, the revolution will not be televised, but it will be broadcast. Uh, and indeed it is being broadcast because even though the corporate media is doing their damnedest, uh, to keep this information away from the population, people are still finding out about it because it's being broadcast on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube, uh, on all these different platforms that even though they're trying to clamp down with their censorship as hard as they possibly can, the information is still getting out. And I'll tell you guys, the thing about this that probably gives me the most hope, and and again, all of the you know, the questions uh, about uh, funding and, and Soros and, and all of those sorts of things, all of that aside, 
the thing that gives me the most hope is seeing those people on the overpasses as the convoys are going underneath those bridges, cheering the truckers on. Because what that tells me more than anything else is that without a shadow of a doubt, the corporate media has been straight up lying to us, not just for the last two years, but for a long, long time. And all of these, um, you know, these polls and these, these numbers and the way that they try to, to carve up the population into this group and that group, it's just, it's all garbage. It's all nonsense. It's stuff they're making up and trying to get us to believe because apparently there's a lot more people in support of this movement up in Canada than what they want us to know about. And that's really the thing that, that stands out to me. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> I agree with everything I've heard so far. I'm watching it, uh, obviously, with a lot of hope for that very same reason. Like you see the widespread public support that it has and how that shows up on social media. Uh, I'm watching it with a lot of curiosity, and I'm also watching it kind of on the edge of my seat, waiting for something bad to happen there. And as far as mainstream media coverage is concerned, uh, I, I mean, this is speculative, but maybe they're waiting for the same thing. Like it, it only takes one person or a handful of people or one trucker. And uh, then you've got a news story and you juxtapose whatever this bad behavior is um, naturally occurring or manufactured, as we know these things are sometimes. And you juxtapose that with uh, pictures of empty grocery store shelves. And uh, that produces a, a very interesting, intense dialectic where it's like now you see the consequences of um, the the people who dare to not be team players, as as Trudeau said, uh, you know, a, a a minority with unacceptable views. That's that seems like dangerous language, but uh, he didn't get a lot of pushback. I know he fled the city uh, today or yesterday, he but fled uh, the country. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't Crazy. know that. I just knew he was. I didn't know where he went. I just knew he wasn't in Ottawa anymore. Uh, well, yeah, according according to Israeli sources, and and again, this is uh, you know I don't have firsthand knowledge of this. It's just a report that I saw on the internet, so you know take it with a grain of salt. Uh, but apparently, Israeli sources were saying that uh, he fled to an undisclosed location in the United States mm -hmm. across the border. Yeah. So bigger picture, I've been saying for a long time, like probably since the beginning of the the pandemic, like if these kinds of people went on strike for 72 hours, they could change the world, right? Like the kind of people who are um, overlooked, underappreciated for, for the work they do, um, talked down to because of, of their station socially, economically, um, by, like Danny mentioned, the abstractors and ivory tower types. Uh, these people don't get nearly the respect they deserve. And if they just, um, you know, sat still for 48 hours, two to three days is all it would take to change the world. So like I said, I'm on the edge of my seat right now, uh, kind of holding my breath to see what, what the outcome of this is actually going to be. But it is a, uh, a very promising situation that could also be very, uh, you know, emotionally deflating very quickly if, if something bad happens there or, the, or there is the appearance of something bad happening there and a lot of people buy it. So those are my thoughts on it currently.
All brilliant thoughts. I mean, it's interesting because like there's so many ways this could be potentially manipulated uh, in one situation, you know, later on for the intermission, we have Aaron and Melissa talking about a post-work society. We have this, the emerging technology of self-driving trucks, right? So like, that's one angle they could bring in and talk about like, well, you know, if this is going to be a continual issue with people not subjecting themselves to the mandates uh, and going along with what we've, are, you know, forcing upon the population, you know, we'll eventually bring that in. I think that'll have a very negative uh, outlook on society. I think that'll not be received very well, at least if it's spun in that capacity right now. But then, like you said, Brett, all it takes is one agent provocateur, one bad apple or bad actor to sort of spoil the bunch as the old cliche goes. And next thing you know, you have a situation where, like you said, you can juxtapose an empty food shelf with what the truckers are doing. And then you can show sort of uh, the very feminized and sort of semi-gentrified, what's his name, Uh, Justin Trudeau, cowering in America from these, you know, ravenous truckers, these blue collar workers that are just, you know, so aggressive and so mean, you know, for the, and for the woke ideology types, you'd look at it and be like, Oh my God, like how this is so conspicuous and so over the top. And so in your face, you know, so there's so many, we have to be careful, you know, we have to use our reason. We have to use discernment and judgment to make sure that we're able to see through sort of the narratives and some of the fallacies they might are going to be associated with those narratives. If anything actually manifests that allows the mainstream media to pick up a particular narrative they can run with, especially something that can denigrate what is attempting to take place with this trucker protest. And we've actually seen some positive outcomes, I think, already to this, not from the trucker protest, but wasn't there, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, something to do with the airlines many months ago with uh, mandates but I forget if they painted that in the light of some other sort of issue when it came to the unions. And so there's a sort of spin there, but I think there is, I remember we had this on the show card a couple of times. There was a couple of times where the governments have already capitulated to some of the blue collar, blue collar demands of, of workers sort of, you know, in the trenches, in the various industries that are necessary. And, um, but I'm trying to, the one airline is the first one that comes to mind, but I think there's might be a couple other ones, but this is the biggest because the supply chain in general, it's not just with food, but with goods in general, I know they come over in the boats and then they have to get on freight and then they have to be delivered. This is the biggest element that could affect the supply chain. Not again, just with food, but with all elements that we need in our society. So this is probably the most ubiquitous, uh, protest we've seen in so far as the ripple effects we could see in the culture uh that i you know i agree and i'm glad you brought up orwell because orwell if i remember correctly is sort of an old school socialist and so he and one of the things he would do is he would look at individuals i remember he had this description of this this uh woman in the link one of his essays uh it was like in eastern europe somewhere around the baltic states um or South Southwestern Russia area. And just talking about just like the deplorable state of their, their being and like his, the need for like just the ability for them to have some basic humanity. And so, although he had a socialist sort of, you know, background, he sort of saw it in the light of the deplorable state of, of human beings living at that time. And so there's sort of a, it bring in sort of a humanity to it. And I'm glad he sort of, he reminds me, you know, when, when I hear Jimmy Dore talk, I sort of think of a comedian version of that old socialist ideal of helping out the truly destitute in society uh, as a sort of loose analogy. And, um, but you know, it's, it's, it's something that if 
collective action, if people could take collective action, especially in the, those that frequent sort of blue collar industries, the things that we need every day to live, they, they would realize just how much power we actually have. But the problem is typically they tend to keep us divided and conquered. So I'm with Brett, I'm sort of waiting with bated breath, uh, so to speak, as to what might precipitate out of this, but so far so good. And I'm happy to see to, was it James? I think what you said, the reaction of all the people, not, not the truckers themselves, mm-hmm. all the people supporting them, that is very uplifting. And it's a, a very great sign to see that in that the freezing cold, because for people who aren't aware, the Northeast has just been, it's been like one of the coldest winters I've experienced in many, many years thus far. And we're like a third of the way into winter. Lovely. And uh, so to be out there in the freezing cold, I know Canadians are used to this, but uh, still yet, I mean, it's freezing cold. It's not exactly very fun to be out there, but to see that many millions of people or hundreds of thousands, potentially, you know, millions out there supporting them along the way, I'm talking about the whole caravan is really, really positive. So hopefully it stays in that direction and there's no, no way to sort of, for them to spin the story. And one of the ways I think we can prevent that is to Danny's point, using the technology against them. And that's where like, we can actually take there's this to James, what you said, like there's still production. It's still going to be broadcast, right? Mm-hmm. This is still going to be broadcast. And that's the most important thing is that people can, okay, whatever happens. I mean, this is sort of what happened with the sort of January 6th or the Whitmore plot, like people caught, oh, there are agent provocateurs. There are these sort of bad apples. So like, you know, now we can spot them, you know, there'll be ways in which maybe we could spin the story back at them. And people are starting to wake up because of that, because they realize the sort of Hegelian dialectic that's manifesting manifests itself throughout the uh, mainstream media is sort of blowing up in their face oftentimes because we can actually spin the story using the same techniques by which they're spinning the story. So I think that's an interesting element, an interesting way to use, because the war right now, and there's a war going on is between the mind, between the two hemispheres. It's not a war fought with guns and bombs and tanks anymore. Um, it's a war for the human spirit, I think more than anything else. And so if we can still stand in collective action, I think that a voluntarily stand in collective action <laughs> should state I think we have, we have a great chance of being able to at least resist some of the more pernicious elements that might are trying to be manifested by the World Economic Forum, Davis Group, and some of these larger supranational organizations. Yeah, and socially, I, I do think it is a bit of a war for the middle on the management of these perceptions that are happening right now. So I know w- we've all been used to this, uh, this concept that was introduced by uh, Mateus Desmet of mass formation for like four or five months now, maybe, maybe some of us longer. And, um, you know, whatever anybody thinks of it, one of the useful things that did come out of it was the way he broke out. I, I don't know where he got his percentages of like 30% of people will always go for the mass hypnosis, 20% will always resist. And then you have this group in the middle and that group in the middle is composed of people who are uninformed, lazy, scared, and they don't do anything as a result of that. So they're in action is portrayed by the media and the political leads as compliance, right? By not acting, like if they weren't complying, they would act. So all of this, this narrative war, this information war that's happening right now, I think is about those people. Because if, if you're talking about the fringes of this situation and we, we do it with the, the Canadian trucker story currently, uh, you know, people who've, persevered through this situation for almost two years now are either on one side looking at the next group of people that they can point their arrows at or people on the other side 
looking at the next group or individual that they can turn into a hero. And the arrows in this case are those anxieties. So again, it's like that's there are there there is some block of people that are immediately going to villainize these truckers. They don't need any more information about what's happening. Nothing they can uh, they they can see is going to change their mind about this. There is no wake up call. I mean, for some people, and maybe there's the, that group uh, on one hard edge even breaks out into different levels of reasonableness. But most of those people are never going to be persuaded by something like this. And there's people on the other side who are always going to support this, no matter what happens in Ottawa over the next days or weeks. So this is very much about uh, the hearts and minds of the people in the middle. And uh, I think what James said about, you know, seeing people on the overpasses for a lot of those people, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but that might be their first act of defiance yeah, uh, in, wow. in this whole thing is that, yeah, I, I can go to an overpass and I can be part of a crowd of people that waves and holds a sign and cheers as these guys drive by. So that is another part of this that's encouraging. But let's just remember that there is there, <laughs> there is no winning. We all know this. There is no winning everybody over uh, by any means at this point. There there are real dead enders, and they're going to go all the way down. So yeah, absolutely, people, absolutely, yeah. Brett. Um, and but I think the the thing to remember with that is uh, again with the group that is in the middle. Um, the way that you are going to to be able to sway them and to bring them over to the side of freedom and personal liberty is to keep having these demonstrations of going against the narrative, you know, going against uh, daddy government right. um, and standing up and speaking out and showing support for the people who are doing the same. Uh, because again, as more people see that happening, it's going to snap more people out of the mass formation. And over time, the the ones who can't be be brought out of the mind control are going to become the minority. And, you know, essentially it's going to be them against the rest of the world, whereas, you know, the the rest of the time it's been us against the rest of the world. So um, it, it's just something that has to be done. Well, you know, to Matthias Desmond's point, the, it's, he said it was 30, 30, then 40 percent is that middle, maybe right. 40 to 50, 40 percent. We'll just go with his numbers. The thing about the middle crowd is they don't really want to go along with what's happening, but they're too scared and they don't, they aren't doing the research and they also go, it's sort of go along to get along mentality. So Matthias pointed out, if we don't get, that's the group we have to get to. We have to show like, and I've met many friends and my family, even for the first time asking questions I never thought they'd ever ask in their entire life that 10 years ago, I wish they were asking me, but it was, there, it wasn't conspicuous 10 years ago. Now it is that, uh, you know, there's something seemingly bigger going on. I can see now how tyranny can actually manifest itself. It's not just some abstract idea that I read about in a book about Nazi Germany or about the gulags in the Soviet Russia. It's something more than that. And I can actually see how it can manifest in the society. Now it's about, if we can capture the hearts and minds of those individuals, we can actually find a way to resist the, the coming tyranny globally. But if not, Matthias said, then the only other option is we're going to have to literally go through it. Yeah. Which, and that, that's a scary proposition. I, I do see an advantage in this particular situation though, simply being, and of course it's never going to be this way uh, all the time, but right now with the truckers, we're seeing a rise of the sorts of productive classes. And I think that goes a very long way to actually capturing that middle 
because of course, generally speaking in a society, it tends to be people who are, I know this is kind of mixing different metrics here, but the middle class tends to be a very productive class. Correct. Now, people who tend towards the middle class economically, being, being that they make up such a large portion of the population, it simply stands to reason that a lot of them would also constitute this so-called middle in the mass formation formulation. So as we see more people who are actually productive in the economy deciding to say, like, look, we're going to stand up against this because it's against our interests. They're the ones who are going to have an actual trickle down effect, because not only do their actions affect their own lives and their own industry, their industry is inextricably linked to the lives of everyone else, ideologues included. So this is one instance where I think that, of course, I'm always a very skeptical and cynical person. But so I'm always looking out for the false flag kind of thing. And it could definitely happen. And I'm kind of like Brett said, and like James said, like we've all said, I too am waiting with bated breath. And what's going to happen? How are they going to screw with this? But at the same time, as you get more and more people being concerned with this particular avenue of thought, it becomes more difficult to lie about it simply because, you know, if you get a certain gigantic percentage of the population all out in the streets concerned with one thing, it becomes more difficult to fabricate a story about it when most people can say, ah, yeah, I knew someone who was there or I was there or whatever. Right. It's harder. I'm not right. saying it's impossible to do it because I never want to, you know, pat myself on the back or say, we've, we've done it guys. We're there. There's always a chance that things go sideways, but in this particular case, I'm at least a little more hopeful uh, in that it just seems to be such a mass uprising. And this kind of goes back to, so we've got the middle in the mass formation. We've got the more, that is more people actually becoming invested in this because the productive class is involved. So it's affecting more people. Uh, so then from that, we have, it's difficult to lie to them. And that takes me back to what you said before about Orwell in Eastern Europe. And uh, you know, in 1984, he talked about the prole woman who, you know, she was a rather portly gal and he could, uh, the Winston couldn't understand how this woman could ever be happy. And yet there she was whistling as she was doing the laundry and she seemed like she was actually living a good life. And so this is sort of a meandering way to get to this point, but we actually see the human spirit in his formulation living within the people who sometimes tend to be destitute. And it's that spirit that actually gets these people to be the resistance. They're the ones who actually do not get subsumed by party life, even though they lose out on the sort of economic benefits. So I support the truckers and whatever it is they're doing. Um, you know, I hope, I hope it all turns out. Okay. It could always go bad. But, but it's also more meaningful for them too, just to be, be a part of that support, you know, especially everyone sort of that lower income status. I like the fact he brought up the incentives, because that's an important element. There is like a sort of economic incentive. like all of a sudden, like, you know, not only is food prices going up for many reasons beyond this, but now I can't even get food at the damn grocery store. There's a little bit more going on. Yeah. It's, it makes you wake up and have to sort of, if not participate, be aware, if not right. participate, be aware. And it, and it goes across industries too. Like I work yeah. for a, a blue collar industry. I won't say what it is. I'll just say it's founder had a German metal pinned on him at some point. And if my business went under, it's like a lot of people would be <laughs> a lot of people would be in trouble. Um, and so there is that sort of industrial pressure uh, and there's the pressure on the side of the workers. A lot of people I work with are very much opposed 
to the sorts of top-down mandates and controls that are being discussed. So it's good to see that it's not just isolated to the airlines or to the trucks or whatever. So I, I will just say too, I do think that this current event is the most encouraging and emboldening thing we've seen um, in this entire saga that's gone on for the last couple of years. And I do think it resonates with like a lot of people who are probably in that middle group who might be like our parents' age. And these are people that if you're like me, you've had really frustrating conversations with for, I don't know, 15 years. Like, hey, do you think it's weird that we have to take our shoes off at the airport because, you know, 17 years ago, some guy tried to light his shoe on fire on a plane. Do you think that's weird that we all still do this? And they go, no, we always took our shoes off at the airport. No, you know, they don't they don't remember another way. They don't see cause and effect. They don't see the. Um, the march uh, of of those kinds of uh, submissions, and I what what I I mentioned that group because I think that for the first time a lot of these people uh, are recognizing the the raging river that they're in, the rapids that have kind of got them, but they they don't know how to swim, like they don't know how to swim, um, but now they know they're in the river. They didn't know before. And so they're grasping on to any kind of life raft thing. For many of them, it's Q. Uh, but they keep being swept along. And swept along in this metaphor means they keep just doing the things that they're generally supposed to do because they don't see any alternatives. So you could have a conversation with some boomer who says something like, I just got my booster. No, all right, yeah. I mean, you're 70, whatever. I, I understand your risk calculation. And then they'll say, all right, and I hear there's like little robots in it. Right. So those are like two competing ideas that these people are having. Uh, and I say, yo, I remember this is a real conversation that I had with somebody. I said, whatever this robot thing is, uh, that's not for you to investigate. I don't think you know what you're talking about. I don't think the person who told you that or sent you some article knows what they're talking about. I would just probably let that go. But, you know, here they are like aware of the fact or, or wanting to be aware of the fact, wanting to do sense-making about what's happening right now, but all they can do is the next thing that they are supposed to do because that's what they've, they've always done. And notice the catch web. I bring this up all the time. I call them epistemological cartoons. Epistemology is a fancy word for a theory of knowledge. How do we know what exists or how do we know about the world that exists? Mm -hmm. Using our five senses, reason, there's different elements there. Um, but you know, these epistemological cartoons where you take some idea and you extrapolate it and blow it up and sort of, sort of full on imagination as to like, well, what's these, you know, I've seen the let's talk about something like, you know, nanorobots in the, or <laughs> nanoparticles, nanorobots in the vaccine or graphene oxide, or, or just as Peter McCarron and Richard Fleming showed that these are just quality control issues, which are what it, like Japan experiences, like, which one is it? Because none of us know, none of us are scientists, none of us have access to the, the electron, micros, electron microscopes to analyze this stuff and then make sense of it. And every time I see an analyzation of this, it's sort of done by some sort of fringe individual and it's always one or a couple that it's hard to be able to deduce the, the veracity of what's being claimed, which is why I always say a healthy form of skepticism. I'm not denying it, but I am saying there's a fallacy called the fallacy of adding your antium. You know, you can't say, but what if? what if it's this? Well, yeah, but until there's positive evidence, until there's evidence that can assert the positive, it's very difficult. And even the evidence that's brought forward, it's not consistent enough because there's many interpretations around it. 
for me to, you know, back off. But it is interesting though, that they would, that someone like a boomer like that would say something like that, right. That they would even be aware of that. And I wonder, is that just one of the catch webs or are they looking for something to latch onto? That's like, well, maybe there is something more going on here, but they latch onto something that's so extreme instead of taking it back and being like, well, it could be as something as simple and as deadly as a quality yeah. control issue. Cause quality control issues can kill you too. And I think that's one of the very serious, I was actually talking with Sana. Uh, as a friend of mine and a participator in um, Grand Theft World, I call her in Turkish intelligence, Jordan James knows her. And uh, she was talking about some of the issues of the quality control and how deadly that can be um, in regards to, and I know this because my, my father and I, we go into manufacturer corporations and we see what goes on with QC departments all the time. When money becomes constricted, one of the places they looked at is overhead and quality control. And so it's just, it's hard to be able to understand what the necessary truth is there. But the fact that those individuals are looking for something is both a positive and a potential negative because they tend to then latch onto the first thing they find. And it's like, that's why I yeah. stress critical thinking. So that's much. why I use the raging rapids metaphor because yes. people who are in the river uh, being swept away and don't know how to swim, they grab onto stuff, right? right? Sometimes it could be another person. Sometimes it could be something worse, but I, like, I remember when somebody was telling me about the whole QAnon thing for the first time, three years ago, I said, this is like the most boomer thing I've ever heard of. Right. This is and, that is, and that was when it was like, uh, you know, a mild version of, of what it is now. Right. So, yeah, it, it's it it's a step in the right direction to like have this acknowledgement of the dire situation that you're in. And I think for people like that, whether they're boomers or not, more and more people who are in that um you know, inert middle group that Desmet talks about in mass formation are, are starting to realize that. And what they need modeled for them is courage, which is what these guys in, on their way to Ottawa are now arriving in Ottawa are doing. Uh, but another thing that might fall, you know, more uh, under our responsibilities is like good sense making. You know, like that's my point. Yes. Like whether it's trying to build an integral picture, like we probably pull you guys pull a lot of media together on this show. Some of it I watch and support and agree with. And some of it I I don't. But it's like putting together a whole picture like you do is is a really, really valuable service. And then doing the analysis is is modeling good sense making for people, you know, and and people need more of that. They it's the most popular thing you can do. Um, you know, in media production is just plant some flag and plant your feet and never move it. Right. That, that is because, because people want shortcuts to sense making too. They we want operate on heuristics. Else. We yeah. have to. Yeah. Right. And they want somebody else to make sense for them. So now we're in this situation, whether it's with YouTube or social media, people are getting this massive horizontal view. And especially in the last two years of all of these things that are happening, so many headlines coming at them every single day, they know that they have no clue of going vertical into any of this horizontal that's coming at them. So now it's like, all right, well, whatever the heuristic is, whatever the shortcut is to make the meaning I need to make as a sense-making being, that's one of my needs to do this. I know it is. So I take these shortcuts, it produces this insecurity. And now I either need a group that's made the same sense or a leader who's planted his flag or her flag and is sure 
they've made sense of the situation for me to follow. The so, heuristic creates yeah. a myopic viewpoint. And that's one of the elements of Matthias's point is that like you get to focus on one tiny specific particular thing. Right. And that's something that's very concerning because when there's data overload, like one of the concerns I have is the situation, why do we create heuristics like this? Well, it's because there's just too much data. You just cannot process all of it. And one, we're not even taught to be able to use critical thinking in a way that we would be able to process more complex data more quickly. And number two, even if we were, there is an overload of information coming in from all streams. It's like, how do we be able to navigate? Did you know what I'm saying there? How do, how do we sort of navigate that sort of complexity? It's something my friend and I talk about who works in, in high-level networking. He talks about the data overload and he uses this sort of metaphor of a circuit board and sort of data processing where it's essentially uses Boolean logic. There's too much draw on the power supply. It creates a low-voltage situation. And we essentially create these min-max categories. We do simple categories when we put information in and we build a simple narrative and that gives us meaning in our life. And we get, it gives us the reason to wake up in the morning, put our clothes on, go to work, do our things, support our family, and then go to sleep at night, figuring everything's all, everything is okay. And it's, well, it's not. And you know, when that crumbles, what happens? And that's, that's the scary thing that I think Desmond has sort of highlighted. It's like, well, then they're going to look for another heuristic in a way. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And uh, just like you were pointing out there, Tony, it's, it's so simple for, you know, any media, whether we're talking about the corporate media, the independent media or whatever, to, to be able to take that, that singular focus, that, that myopia and transfer it from one object to the next to just keep leading people along. Well said, also, this is better than I could have imagined. Absolutely fantastic discussion. I think, well, since you mentioned cowardice, Brett, I'm going to have, I'm going to do a little, uh, a little uh, curveball here. Let's go ahead and do the Academy of Ideas now, if you guys are all right with that. Let me play that and sort of give a comment around that because the the, con the um, theme of it is about cowardice and sort of the proportional relationship to cowardice and the rise of tyranny. So I think that's a good segue. Can I just mentioned. say one thing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, before we leave, because mm -hmm. you, uh, you mentioned like, why do we have heuristics and stuff? And I, I would say that part of it is really just because we obviously being human beings with needs that we need to meet biologically, physiologically, emotionally, et cetera it becomes very difficult to concern ourselves with all of these abstract things going on outside of our immediate sphere of control. And yet, because of the sort of society we live in, which is hyper-connected and complex interdependence plays a large part of it, we're forced to have to care about these things. But because we literally can't actually understand them, we're forced to kind of pigeonhole ourselves into these ready-made epistemological cartoons, like you said, so I just I pulled up Walden here and I'm trying to find the quote and I'm not going to be able to do it. But where he says something about, you know, the telegraph is this wonderful invention that lets people in Maine know what's going on in Texas. And he says, why in the world do they need to know what's going on in Texas? And it's like the extrapolation of that is where we're at now. Now we need to know what's going on in Ottawa and over here and over there and everywhere. And it just creates this overload of stress that we could never possibly deal with. You know, there's a sociological theory that states, and it's just a theory, but it's an interesting theory that we've only evolved to be able to around, handle around 250 members of a social group. So extending that beyond uh, 250 members, feeling as though you're part of like now a global family 
and competing in like a global society on many levels, you know, whether it's for sexual partners, whether it's just in the market for a job, whether it's, you know, just with friends and like various segments of uh, society, you know, it's, it's almost overwhelming. Like, and in fact, it is overwhelming. And that has a large that large consequence on the ideas of identity, uh, depression, anxiety, fresh, like just all these different elements that we sort of see manifest in our own culture that are sort of seemingly out of control. Um, a lot of this has to do with the feeling that we don't have control and that it's sort of meaningless because we're in a sea of like, not just a smaller community, but a, a sea of a larger community that we're constantly sort of interacting with that is so far outside the scope of our everyday experience. And this contradiction creates a sort of free-floating anxiety in a way, if you think about that. And, and even without the COVID narrative, that's it, in, in and of itself, I've, was this, I, I was getting into those theories before COVID ever manifested because I could see it ha happening already. And just thinking about it now, sort of off the top of my head, I'm like, wow, I didn't really, I probably put it or thought about those before, but you know, that's a really good point you bring up. That uh, Complex interdependence yeah. crowds out common sense. There you go. All said. I think a good word for it is fatigue. And I think you can really get the sense of this, like even it, not just with that, that super wide horizontal, like what you'd get on a Twitter scroll or a Facebook scroll. But even if you just watch CNN or listen to NPR or even Fox News for like an hour straight, like you'll feel it. I think you'll feel the kind of mental and emotional fatigue, especially after this duration uh, of this this whole situation, like two years at this point, that the average person is going to just to generate a little bit of sympathy uh, and the the defensiveness that people have in the sense that they've made. Uh, it is even I, to watch CNN ironically or critically for an hour is exhausting. It is exhausting. And even if you understand the, the BS of it, um, it's still going to hit you on a gut level. Right. Yes, You're still going to walk away from it feeling worse, feeling feeling more anxious um, unless and I mean, I think that you can you know, you can prepare yourself to deal with something like that. But if you're just like, ah, I'm going to see what the mainstream is saying and you sit there for long enough, uh, you are going to experience mental and emotional fatigue from that. I think most people are. But there's a worse situation where if you're sitting there watching that, you think, it, you know, in places where it's on, which I guess is like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess people choose to watch it voluntarily, but I would guess most CNN viewing is done in places where people don't have access to the remote control like airports and gyms, but yeah, I, I um, thought about that too. Yeah. It's, it's, it's exhausting. And if you consider that to be the most trusted name in news, man, that is stressful. I don't know how Steven Crowder does it. He literally only uses like CNN and MSNBC. Like he, he has that streaming all when he's doing his productions, he uses almost articles exclusively sourced from like CNN or Washington post or the Atlantic or elements of that. And I'm just like, I could not sit down and listen to that with my rational mind and, and be able to get, cause it does hit you on an emotional level. And you just know the lie. You walk away from it feeling exhausted because of the lies. And then that makes me feel like, are there really people that think like, that? is this like really how some, is that the other 30% on the yeah. other extreme? And it's like, I do know that is that, you know, I actually, I've, I witnessed this in the sort of contrived echo chambers online. Like I can go to something like, um, uh, it's called the minority or four after there is a, uh, Sam Cedar and those types, like you go and look majority, those, yeah. majority for it, minority <laughs> majority, for it yeah. law. Yeah. I'm thinking of the movie or in the mm -hmm. book rather. Um, but the majority report, Sam C like you go and look at, you know, the comments there and it's like a whole different world. 
it literally is like a whole different world of perspective. And it's just, it's interesting. I know Phoenix, James, you work with Phoenix, or, or you do a podcast with him. He does this all the time. He jumps into communities that are completely uh, contrary to a lot of the, I don't know how he does it. He's trying to find solidarity. He's trying to find that essence or universal, that grounding of humanity that Daniel mentioned. But um, yeah, it's God exhausting. bless him. I don't, I don't know how he does it either, man. <laughs> Because, yeah, I mean, just just like uh, Brett was saying, if I find myself, you know, listening to CNN or MSNBC for more than like five or 10 minutes, like, yeah, it, it starts to become taxing. And I mean, it, even like with the, the independent media, if you're looking at this stuff, you know, 24 yeah. seven, um, which also. which I did for a while uh, and I'm not I'm not, you know, trying to. uh boast or brag or anything like that. Um, you know, I was actually just trying to share good information with people. Uh, but it even started getting to me where, you know, it was just like, I couldn't even, uh, compose a positive thought anymore just because of all of the, the negativity that I was sifting through on a daily basis. Um, so yeah, I, for the people that, that can do that and still maintain their, their sanity and their integrity, God bless them. I can tell a story. I mean, when I worked, was living with Rich and his wife and we were, you know, trying to set up a studio and we're doing the whole research community and doing a lot of extra research. It, it, it did get to us every day. You wake up like six thirty seven in the morning and we're putting on a documentary. We're reading books about essentially the worst elements of human behavior and the worst manifestations of that behavior and politics and psychology and economics and uh, philosophy. And it just, becomes absolutely, I mean, kudos to rich has an incredibly strong willed disposition. He's like a sort of rock that's battered in the ocean from a tempestuous storm over and over again, but somehow it only gets sort of carved. It just makes him look more sleek and sort of in control. Um, he doesn't have many jagged edges anymore, but he's still able to stand strong. And that's uh, kudos to his personality to be able to handle that. But his wife and, and myself were a little bit more we're like tuning forks. And, you know, we just sort of pick up the vibrations floating in the air and it can be, you know, it can be a little bit difficult. And I think more people sort of re resonate with, with that struggle. <laughs> so uh, a value add for the audience would be like, find, uh, I guess uh, your baseline with this stuff. Mm -hmm. So in October, I started thinking a lot about my next media project, which is going to require more mainstream media consumption and even worse than that because there are things worse than the mainstream media you mentioned majority report yeah there's there's some really rough stuff so my goal for the next project that i'm not going to talk too much about here is essentially trying to serve people as the audience nice meals out of shit that i find in a dumpster right which is a pretty big undertaking that is so that um is. I needed to say, all right, in October, like this is how much I need to kind of pay attention to how much media I actually consume. I had to become very like uh, conscious of my content consumption. And then in November, I had to find not what like my baseline is based on this behavior, but true baseline, do a complete media and social media blackout fourth i mean people you know they do stuff in november or they don't november's like the month to not do stuff so this was my thing to not do um don't watch media and uh by the end of the month i had reached a level of serenity that i probably hadn't had since i was four years old you know and uh then in december i went back to it more consciously so if people feel overwhelmed 
um, or you feel like this stuff is wearing you down, like if you don't think you can do a month, I mean, trust me, you can. Like if shit hits the fan, a friend will call you. Uh, so, so you can, you, I know there's going to be some like FOMO on that, but you can make it. And, uh, if you feel like you need it and then you set like a real baseline and see how you feel, then you can kind of add it back. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a subtraction diet, uh, with what you, the content you consume. And, uh, if you, if you feel, like I said, a little bit worn down by what you're engaging with day in and day out, it might be a good thing to try called the endless sleeve of abstractions it's an interesting element i mean that's a brilliant point and finding that baseline because i don't think most people have actually discovered or even considered the concept of a baseline maybe have maybe some have but because we've been inundated and sort of forced into this world um progressively over the course of the past couple of decades of the emerging you know interconnectivity and, and the technology and the cell phones and the social media platforms and all this stuff all of a sudden we're just in on it and we're inundated by it and i mean for me i never actually i've done baselines so i can't say i've never done that but it's about balance like i just know when i just need to probably because of the baselines i've done before in the past actually the struggles i've had 10 years ago i did disconnect in 2013 I completely disconnected. Then I went through a relationship. I got back into it. Then when that relationship failed and, um, you know, I moved back to my hometown, that's where I really disconnected again. And from there, I was able to sort of gain a sense of like reality, the reality that I can affect day to day and juxtaposition to reality. That's highly abstracted. And that sort of interconnectivity that Daniel was talking about, about the, the being participant, a participant in the entire world through this sort of information technology. And, you know, I, it is important to find, it's extremely important, especially in today's narratives, that baseline. I mean, I've Brett, I will say this in solidarity with that struggle, like, even though we tend to obviously show clips that we are familiar with and from producers that we, we frequent oftentimes on the show that we, we enjoy, um, it's still very difficult <laughs> to go to Infowars or Zero Hedge or Gateway Pundit or you know Daily Mail and go to the sections about COVID nineteen or go to the sections about technology or politics. And it's it's over. It even for me doing the show card. I mean, you see how big this is. It can be a little overwhelming. Um, I'm glad it's like once a week, so I get caught up on everything. But it is not easy. Um, it is it is a struggle. So finding that balance, knowing the days. What I've done for myself is knowing what days I can disconnect where I don't do anything regarding the show. And as people in the background know, I wait to do the show card later in the week, let the clips pile in, let the productions take place throughout the week, let the news cycle run. And then I, I go, I spend one or two days on it, but I spend the whole day where I just like, cause I, you know, spending the time, making sure I, I put the show card in organized fashion that we can utilize on GTW Sunday nights. But before that, like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Tuesday night town hall, but Wednesday and Thursday complete just normal work, normal life. You know, when I was at my parents' house last week, just hanging out with their new house, like all this stuff, just that's for me what I had to do. And I'm just providing example because like, I understand where my limits reside. And I'm afraid, as I've mentioned before, that at some point I might burn out. So I have to be, I'm ever vigilant of that because in the past, when I did burn out, it was an emotional reaction and I don't want any more emotional reactions. I've been talking in the backgrounds, like essentially we all need to find that what that balance looks like and when we need to take a break. And so I've been sort of discussing that with myself as well, just because it is, it is a lot. Great hack. <clears throat> Do it with a group of people. If you can, your media consumption and, and have fun doing it and realize that there's a lot of comedy in the world outside beyond your sphere of control. There's tragedy, but uh, you know, comedy and tragedy have, have mixed well for thousands of years. 
at this point. So with that kind of recognition, and if you don't have access to a group of people who want to watch, uh, you know, alternative media or mainstream media with you, find a group of people who are broadcasting themselves doing it and having a good time. And that's a fine stand in uh, because like, I, I, you know, I look at what I want to do in the future. There's no way I would want to do it alone. And I even find like having uh, having a kind of a supportive community and people to bounce ideas off of, whether it's here or whether it's in uh, my own university community. Like I'll, I'll pitch that idea all the time. I'll like, let's do a watch on some documentary that we're not going to agree with. And, you know, let's have fun with it and let's, uh, you know, criticize it together. And I think um, obviously it's kind of trite to say that people are using their screens as a substitute for human interaction, but uh, you can get real human interaction through these screens. And I would say faux human interaction is like being on social media or watching other people's faces and mouths move uh, on YouTube, but like really connecting with people and looking at ideas and responding to those ideas and sharing new ideas is, is a really, it's proven to be for me in the last couple of years, since I made my whole thing more um, interactive uh, it's it's been a great benefit. That's the big thing about the town halls as well, the interactivity. Yeah. Uh, they'd be able to see like even, I know it's superficial, but some body language response. I can see people's like, sort of reactions to something that I say or someone else says. Also, when I participated recently in your community with some of those talks, just being, you know, we didn't agree on all those things, but the fact that like people were on the jump in and we're able to have like very meaningful and human discussions, I think is a really powerful, really powerful thing. So. Absolutely. Yeah. There's something else you said, but I think I'm running at my limit. I'm trying to remember. Uh, James, do you have anything you wanted to ask? Are you going off mute? No, I'll just, I'll just jump in really quick on what uh, Brett was saying. Cause uh, again, you know, kind of as uh, the baby of the group, oh. I guess, um, you know, cause everybody else has been uh, doing this much longer than I have. Um, you know, my own mentality has seen uh, a dramatic benefit uh, just from being able to interact with other individuals and discuss ideas, you know, not, not coming at it from the standpoint of, you know, trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong and, and all of those sorts of things, but just, you know, putting the idea on the table and everybody turning it over to, to see what they can see from it. Um, you know, it's been a, an immense um, joy in my life to be able to do that because it was not something that I really had the opportunity to do previously. So, you know, when, when Brett is telling you that, you know, try out these things to, to see how they feel, cause they might just add some value to your life. You know, he's, he's not sending you in a bad direction. So that's it also what I want to add. brings a good point up. Like the Rockfin chat does a great job at this. Um, Every time I take a peek in the Rockfin chat, they are oh, Lord, they're commenting. Are <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. This is kind of I'm giving props to them. Usually, I'm sort of presenting them in a sort of pejorative light, but no, this time I'm going to give props to Rockfin chat and to what Brett said. They present things very comically. They take what what's being presented and they sort of may, they may take it a little too far, but at least it is a good way to digest the information <laughs> and at the same time sharing a community. The fact that they're talking about the clips, even when they're not joking around, they're talking about the clips together. So it's much more palatable when you can view things together. I think that's one of the reasons why we were, uh, when I was helping out uh, Rich and his wife, that we could, together we were watching these things. Together we're pausing the videos. Together we're commenting on them. You know, it's not just like we're isolated and just allowing the, the total emotional toll to be taken from the viewing, whatever information is being, 
being presented through that medium. Mark McDonald, which is one of the the mass formation psychosis, he's part of like I forget the mass formation came from I think Matthias Desmet, Mark McDonald talked about the uh, uh, something about some universal psychosis. I forget what he called it specifically, but it's a combination of the Mark McDonald and Matthias Desmet. Mark McDonald makes this point about the importance of human contact, even if it's through a screen, but in real time. To Brett's point, like if you watch a moving mouth on YouTube pre-recorded later on, it doesn't have the same impact. But even if you can meet like-minded people, just remember, oh yeah, reality exists and like normal people exist. And like, I can actually have meaningful discussion without a mask on. You know, I can like remember what it's like to actually have at least an idea of what real human interaction looks like. He said that's extremely powerful and extremely important and something he has been practicing himself being a psychiatrist out in LA that noticed that, you know, there's this sort of mass formation psychosis going on that has been very impactful for him and making sure because he was getting very depressed. And the, 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 in his book that he recently released, he talked about some of the issues of that he was seeing in his clinical practice, like young children taking knives to other children, like, like the violent reactions from young children um, from this like sort of isolation, um, including like isolation online and just like, uh, you know, obviously suicide, depression, the incalculable toll that'll be difficult to really provide, put a metric to, it won't emerge for probably a decade or two as to the total, the totality of how, how great that toll has been, you know, it's, uh, it's important to find some sort of, uh, restitution, some respite, some reprieve from, what we're experiencing now and whatever avenues that are made available to us to find that, you know, by all means you have to, you know, engage with it, I think is very important. So, but with that, let's see what we want to go to. I think I said cameo ideas. We can do that. We also have Jimmy Dorian. We do something funny first. Uh, let's do, let's do this. Let's go ahead and play the, Steven Crowder clip talking about Barry Weiss's candor on the real time of Bill Maher, about how she's, she's sick of this. She's a little sick of this. So I'm going to put that in yellow in there and we'll go to that and uh, we'll come back and have some commentary on that. Oops. Okay. This was on uh, this morning on CNN. So, you know, Barry Weiss was on uh, Bill Maher. Yeah. And Barry Weiss used to work with, uh, I believe, the New York Times and has had sort of an awakening. Not really conservative, but uh, I guess you would call her a classical liberal. And she made some totally reasonable po- reasonable points on Bill Maher, uh, which, of course, was t- trending all over yeah. all over this weekend uh, because people were furious where she was implying that, of course, with COVID, they don't really have the science at this point. And there are negative ramifications. Like I've always said, yeah. look, here's the thing with COVID. No one is saying that COVID isn't real. No one is saying that COVID doesn't suck for some people who get it. With everything in life, you have to weigh the risks and rewards, the pros and cons. Uh, this morning, though, on CNN, they brought on a doctor to uh, issue counterpoints to Barry Weiss's points, Dr. Ah. Reiner uh, from George Washington University. And this is the beauty of, you know, when these people, uh, first off, we talked about these comedy shows, they don't do it live. Okay. Well, that's wonderful because they can edit anything mm. to look favorable. But then also on places like, uh, that's redundant, but then also, I apologize, it's the darkness that's gotten to my brain. <laughs> It's crap. Also on CNN or these programs, there's a beauty in uh, never being accountable where you can bring on people simply to straw man your opponents because they don't bring Barry Weiss on. In my opinion, if you are commenting on what Barry Weiss said on Bill Maher specifically, right, and you are CNN, to do your job and be a journalist, you should have Barry Weiss on. Instead, they show a brief clip and then they bring a doctor on to address the points that she never made. Here's the most trusted name in news. I'm done with COVID. Oh, I'm see. done. It's yeah. like I 
I went so hard on COVID. I yeah, I remember. sprayed the Pringles cans that I bought at the grocery store, stripped my clothes off because I thought COVID would be on my clothes. Like I did it all. And then we were told you get the vaccine. That was my You get the, the vaccine subway. and you get back to normal. And we haven't gotten back to normal. And it's really? ridiculous at this point. We have. This is going to be remembered by the younger generation as a catastrophic moral crime. The city of Flint, Michigan, which is 80%, I think, minority students, has just announced indefinite virtual schooling. Also known as a majority. In the past two years, we've seen among young girls a 51% increase in self-harm. People are killing themselves. They are anxious. They are depressed. They are lonely. That is why we need to end it. She uh, ranted about how inconvenienced she has been by, by this pandemic and how it's not real anymore. Well, I'll tell you that for the 10,000 Americans who died last week and for their families, yeah, it was damn real. And for the people Ooh. who you know, struggled to keep them alive and for the thousands and thousands of healthcare workers who have been doing this nonstop for two years, her behavior was childish and, and selfish. Ah, OK. So th- you notice what she said? She said, look, we do have record number of, of, of teenage, specifically teenage girls. Yeah. They're self-harm. And of course, if you look into those statistics, all references available at lottowithcredit.com. We have them below as well. We've done several episodes on this. There's been an increase yeah. in substance abuse. There's been an increase in hospitalization Suicide. for alcoholism. Wait. Right? Suicides, way up. And he says, I think she's being childish because she's just talking about how she's been inconvenienced. She didn't discuss herself being inconvenienced at all. No. It was all about how other people are being destroyed by this, specifically the people that we say we sacrifice everything for, our children. Right. Right now, we're sacrificing them right. <laughs> to make ourselves feel better. Yeah. That's it, right? Why can schools be closed in one place and open in another place? We all deal with the same issues. We all have COVID spikes. We all have Omicron that's kind of running around the country. It's fear. That's, yeah. all, that's the only No, but in, in Flint, they should stay home from school uh, and uh, drink the tap water. Yes. Get as much of that tap water yes, exactly. as possible. Also, I, this <laughs> is how silly political correctness is when we're talking about language. Which is like in, in Flint, where it's 80% because you can't just say black. Mm-hmm. You can't say brown. 80% minority. <laughs> Imagine if you read a poll. Well, a minority of Americans believe that Joe Bi- disapprove of Joe Biden's job on the economy. What's that minority? Eighty percent. I should note that the eighty percent is black. Eighty percent is not a minority. Why do we still no, 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 say no, no. this? It's minorities. Weird, They're yeah. minorities. It's eighty percent minority. Not in Flint. That would be called a majority, sir. In Flint, you know who's a minority? Ginger Snap. Well, uh, Ginger Snap yeah. gets caught on the wrong block. No, nay. On the right block. And he's not living through the day. I heard there's a big Swiss population there I might fit in. Ah, yes, yeah, yes, there's yeah. a big Swiss population. The knives and stuff. Yeah. They can just remain neutral. Of course. Watch Louder with Crowder live Monday through Thursday. This remain neutral. You gotta love how they try to spin that one. I love the red herring with uh, inconvenience and then they attack her with an ad hominem. So, you know childish and inane imperial and all this sort of ridiculous concepts but speaking of ad hominems tony i have a question about that mm-hmm. cnn clip which is who was that vampire that was on <laughs> the right side of the screen right did anybody else notice that like did, did she need a blood pack like did somebody need to to take care of that before she passed like, out like I, I know my lighting is not not like perfect right it's probably really really bad but Wow. 
Like it's I, you I haven't see seen pictures of like Prince Prince Charles. Charles. Like no, before, like before you. I mean, am I thinking the right one? Let me bring it up real quick because maybe this is you're thinking of Philip. I'm thinking of Philip. That's it. Yeah, Charles is the son. Philip. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. He looks like a vampire from like right right before when he passes. Oh, let's bring up a picture. LD, find a picture if you can. LD. Oh wait a true. minute. LD Was he the one that MVP. wanted to be reincarnated as a virus? Yes. Mm-hmm. He, I believe, already has been. I think he died last year. <laughs> oh, so he's Omicron. Prince Omicron. Yeah. It's Prince. Yeah. He didn't, but he wanted to manifest more as like a more pernicious form of Delta. Well, maybe he's what got into those monkeys. Oh, and then, yeah. There we go. There, yes. Celdi's got it up. There's a good one. There's a good vampire pick. So it's all that baby's blood, you know. You know, I don't want to drag Crowder, but just I, this should be pointed out. Again, I'm only saying this like out of curiosity. So the audio listeners might not have been able to tell, but when they cut from real time back to the CNN vampire panel, there there's a um you know, a flash in Crowder's video, meaning that there's something that happened either uh, like probably on real time and in the CNN panel before. So it wasn't just like Barry Weiss points out all of these misfortunes of people who are not her. And then the guy goes, yeah, well, she's just selfish. Like there's something in the middle and I'm just curious about what it was. So I saw that clip before the show, but I did not go and watch the CNN as people remember from our last segment, watching CNN is not good for you. So I didn't do it. Uh, but now I'm actually like really curious, like what they, they juxtapose these two clips together and what's in between, like how many minutes is that? Is it 30 seconds? Is it three minutes? I'm, I'm just curious. Well, from, I'd watched, like to see how they did the transition. Sorry, Danny, go ahead. Uh, I watched the bill, the full, clip from the Bill Maher show a couple days ago. It's been mm. a couple days, like I say, so I could be mixing stuff up, but for sure, immediately after that cut in the actual sequence, uh, as she's saying, oh, we all stripped our clothes off. We all sprayed our groceries And this. Bill Maher was saying, no, we didn't. We didn't all do that. So they might've just been trying to pull out like where he was kind of saying something that wasn't totally relevant. Uh, but I don't know if they said anything after that but from what I recall, it was what they cut was probably only just a couple of seconds of Bill Maher saying, no, not everybody. But Brett's talking about, I think, but, the cut during the CNN clip, right? Itself. Well, because normally, cut, yeah. What is Crowder cut? What is Crowder cut to make that stark contrast between what Barry Weiss is actually saying? It's just there's so much curiosity oh, from okay. this stuff. So, first yeah. of all, what like. Yeah. How, how do they transition out of it on CNN? Because she's like, yeah, we were washing Pringles cans and stuff. Mm -hmm. But what I'm more concerned about is what is what is Crowder cut out of it? What is Crowder cut out of it? And how does CNN work that transition? But also when you see the clip from real uh, real time with Bill Maher, they're playing that on CNN. Right. There's a CNN Chiron at the bottom. So they're playing that whole thing. I'm like, why are they playing all this damning information about this stuff they support? <laughs> they could they could hack Barry Weiss down with a lot less of the clip than this. So why are they why are they playing all this? And how do they walk away to just make it about Barry Weiss is selfish because she had to wash a Pringles can in April of 2020? Because she was inconvenienced and actually she stated some actual facts related to right. suicides and you know, children and depression and all these sorts of things. There's also um, the issue here is the fallacy called excerpt lifting, where you take an excerpt, you can do, you can do this with media. You can 
cut it in such a way where you take it out of context. I'm not saying Crowder did that. They could have been so much that he, they, they cut it because it was a superfluous. And a lot of times crowd, they'd usually do a decent job based on my understanding of having watched them for so long, um, in the past, especially, um, of cutting out irrelevant material. Like he does that a lot with himself because they go on these long, like rankers diatribes, just making fun of shit. Right. And so they'll cut that out for their smaller clips. But I wonder what, and now you bring that up. It's a fantastic point. I wonder what else was potentially said because in a way he might've excerpt lifted and, you know, usually what CNN does, which is like do those quick cuts out of context didn't happen because they showed a lot of more damning evidence. So it's just a weird ju- sort of contrasting juxtaposition, if you will, between yeah. the two, um, where then he sort of positions himself as being sort of the morally righteous, which normally I, I agree with Crowder in a lot of these instances, but that's a very good observation. I didn't quite notice. I did notice the cut earlier on with Crowder, but I figured they probably wanted one of his like, you know, sort of comedy diatribes when so they they had a he had a quick cut early on but i didn't notice that during the cnn clip good eye well okay so first of all i'm not saying that like if some cnn hater watches cnn for an hour and does like a super cut of the five minutes of dumbest stuff and then you go and find the whole hour and watch it and go oh this is totally different that guy was unfair to cnn i'm sure it's just as dumb i I, but (laughs) What yeah, I'm I'm saying, much agreed there. Yeah. What what I'm interested in is like how CNN does the transition. And then I guess an interest that stems from that is, does it even matter? Like yeah. it, people are just there to have their biases confirmed. So it's like uh, here we're going to show a clip from Bill Maher where a bad person talks for a few minutes and then we're going to do commentary on what the bad person said and they just buy it. It doesn't matter what the person says. They're bad. I mean, how easy is that to do? We see uh, the first thing they do with anybody who's, uh, you know, not on their song sheet is character assassination, is ad hominem attack. So it almost doesn't like once you know somebody is bad, like Joe Rogan is bad. Joe Rogan gave a platform to Gavin McGinnis in 2016. So how could he be good? CNN viewer, you know, so it doesn't matter what the content is after that. And that was the first thing I noticed when I saw how expansive the Barry Weiss clip was. Cause like, why would CNN include all this? They could have just done the Pringles can thing. And they bring on a supposed expert, right. With all the, uh, the, the ethos to back him supposedly up. And that's another sort of like little trick they do with advaricundium. It's a subtle psychological subversive technique to introduce an advaricundium or appeal to authority fallacy, even though he's not talking about any sort of evidence that's being brought up that she's alluding to. Uh, even though it's more general, she's not alluding to specific studies. She said, look, there's a rise in suicide. There's a rise in depression, there's a rise in alcohol use. There's a rise in these sorts of things. And, you know, they said, get the vaccine and things would go back to normal. And they did that. We could show a montage of clips of news stations or mainstream news stating that. And all of a sudden, no, we're back to masks. We're depending on the state you live in or the country, you're back to lockdowns. You have to get your third shot, maybe your booster. And so, yeah, there's all these elements here that she brought up that, you know, she he didn't contest her on. He's just saying like, well, for the 2000 that died, but we know that's highly contrived because did they die with or from COVID? How, what were their age? What were the comorbidities? There's all these cofactors, all these attributes that would change the narrative. If you actually dive into this, the, 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 the sample size of the studies they're, you know, promoting there, but. Well, it's also an interesting choice for Crowder to have picked that particular clip. Cause if you noticed in it on the CNN, uh, 
uh, bottom of the screen, whatever you call that thing. Uh, it said it was like 7.30 a.m. Eastern time, very early in the morning. Most people probably aren't watching CNN at that time. So I just looked it up and that same doctor apparently was making appearances on CNN throughout the rest of the day. So there was the chance of there is the chance rather that his presentation of his quote unquote argument against Barry Weiss in this particular case may have altered throughout the day. So mm -hmm. I wondered if there may be perhaps Crowder deliberately chose the one that made the CNN case look the worst. That's potential. Uh, but then again, also, it could be that there's far more to be mined here insofar as how they're spinning this narrative. I would deduce they run their show. So from my understanding, according to Crowder's production or the way they run it, is that uh, he goes live around 10 central, 10 or okay. 11 central. And so they have CNN streaming in the morning. And a lot of times they'll actually prioritize clips they see in the morning in the studio um, as part of it. So I imagine they probably saw it. And it's like, oh, add that like we like we do before the show, add it to the show card sort of thing, add it to the show. I'm just speculating, um, but that would be sort of what I would deduce from that is that they probably added it as a quick ad from something they saw earlier that morning or maybe, but if it was not the same day. If it's not concomitant or contemporaneous, I should say, then yeah, you're right. There could be something more like they just, he did, he picked the one that made him look the worst to sort of right. make fun of it. Yeah. Well, it would make sense that, you know, if they go early, that's the one they would have picked. I'm just curious if, as the day goes on and more viewers pour into CNN, if they continued to play the whole clip of Barry Weiss oh, spouting off point. all the facts, or if they just, you know, they did that in the morning test run and then cut it off at the end of the day. I don't know. That's false, all sorry. speculative over here. It's interesting. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots of good points that, that you guys have, uh, have brought to the table here. Um, it, I don't know. From my point of view, it was just very poor, uh, very poor production from CNN. Um, because again, anybody who has a couple of brain cells to rub together uh, is going to be able to look at the the argument that CNN was presenting and basically just dismiss it outright because they're they're not actually addressing uh, any of the points that were presented, uh, by Barry Weiss. And that's in, what causes fouls uh, in her appearance. When you don't address the points, when you, you try to sort of misdirect from the points, that's, that's what yeah. a fallacy really is. Well, too. maybe that's, that's why simple. their viewership is down 90%. And why Joe Rogan as a audience of like what, 11 million or something and is killing the mainstream media is the largest podcast I think in the world. And he you know, specializes in specializes in long form conversations, which I agree with Peterson. Mm -hmm. I think people are starving and have been, hence why he's risen to the prominence he has in the podcasting world, because he started out talking about MMA and psychedelics in like an extra room in his house, just having like conversations we're having now with like the bros, you know, I got the bros over. Let's like do a podcast. Now, granted, obviously he has significant influence because he's a comedian and he was a former MMA or I don't know if he, I know he did you know, martial arts. I don't know if he didn't do MMA, but he commented, was a commentator for MMA and still is. And so, you know, um, he just, and I obviously was in the production world as well. He's, you know, he got his big gig with what was that fear factory or fear factor. Yeah. yeah fear and factor. before that he was, he was on the excellent news radio. God, I missed that show. <laughs> See, but that, so he had like people, he had notoriety, but then all he did was get on camera. It's sort of the way we're doing it now. And just, talk shit with the bros you know it was uh and that you know sort of precipitated in the the situation he's in now where he's like well more then he started having sit downs with interesting people you know and then all of a sudden like we have a, a former colleague of ours 
I uh, actually have a sit, had a sit down with him and had a very interesting conversation a long time ago. And then it just blew up and then more and more interesting, more people with more clout and sort of notoriety in society, you know, got, he gave them a platform and especially for some alternative ideas, even around aliens and stuff or like the Graham Hancock's Randall Carlson's talking about, you know, cataclysmic disaster and previous potential for earlier civilization, all these more interesting and sort of out there ideas, but you know, he's, he allowed a platform for it just like he did with Peter McCullough and Robert Malone recently, which now there's, uh, Joni Mitchell, I guess, came out now and saying that she wants her music removed from Spotify. So it's just, uh, you know, they're all committing Spotify seppuku. And, Spotify you know, needs a uh, a new app to explain to the average Spotify users who the people are pulling their music off Spotify. I think. <laughs> I was just thinking. Oh, that's funny. Neil Young, Joni Mitchell. It's like you know. Again, we're back to this boomer thing. Is there a pattern? Yeah, reports are Barry Manilow uh, has even uh, joined in the crowd, and I know that we're all heartbroken uh, that his music will no longer be available on Spotify. Like Why doesn't Kanye West? Kanye West should just say, "If anything happens to Joe Rogan, I'm pulling my music off Spotify." Solved. That's right. All said. Is this a, is this an example of uh, uh, what's it, the bystander effect happening, but only on one side? And people familiar with that idea where it's just like, you know, there someone now has stood up, Neil Young, on the other side said, no, I want my music removed and a bunch of artists. But so far, the artists have been much older. <laughs> no surprise there. But, um, you know, if there's a counter to that, like a Kanye West, that would be huge because that would stop it immediately. Equal and opposite reactions. Well, as I say about many things, if not Kanye, then who? Oh, a little bit of levity. My God, I love it. If not Kanye, but who is very true. Next clip. Uh, let's think here. What do we want to... You guys have any out of the clips I've picked? Any interest? So we have The Grift is Over. Paul Joseph Watson satirically pointing out the lockdown grift, especially in the UK. Brett and Heather. Well, that we might, yeah, that might actually be a good transition uh, after the Barry Weiss thing, because I think that speaks to a lot of the, the narrative shift that is happening, which uh, unfortunately I think uh, that her appearance on Bill Maher, uh, you know, has a lot to do with that. Um, I know oh, I, I tend to have yeah, a lot of point. unpopular opinions when it comes to people appearing on shows, especially recently. Uh, but I'm not 100% convinced that the uh, the story that was being woven uh, on uh, real time was 100% uh, genuine. So I can see it. Yeah, no, I feel you in that one. Well, it's also a lot of times they'll present as though they're, and they may be honest. Barry Weiss is probably being honest about her sort of disposition around it potentially. But then what solution? I love when they get to the solution. Because that's where it's like, oh, we just need more government to like, yeah. Fix oh, it. well, that's, yeah. Her solution was it just needs to be over, you know, it needs to be over. That's a simple one. Yeah. Ever hear the Davos group? Anyways. Okay. Let's, let's go to uh, Paul Joseph Watson talking about the grift is over for lockdown nerds. Short clip. Short clip. This should be fun. 
Well, according to the WHO's Hans Kluger, in terms of the pandemic, Europe is moving towards the end game. No, don't say that. Technocrats gonna be big mad. Over the past two years, a deluge of control freaks who would otherwise have remained obscure nerds have enjoyed the bright lights, prestige, and financial bounty of regular TV appearances and media exposure. But the party appears to be coming to an end. The grift is over and many of them aren't going to take it very well. The Times published an interesting article over the weekend. Warring scientists fight on as Omicron retreats. The piece quotes Professor Alison Pollock, Professor of Public Health at Newcastle University. She makes reference to members of the independent SAGE group of scientists, a group that has been consistently even more pessimistic than SAGE itself, even after SAGE's prediction of 6,000 Omicron deaths a day if further restrictions weren't imposed proved to be, once again, spectacularly wrong. Independent Sage is still insisting that the government refrain from lifting the remaining measures on Thursday. Pollock, who quit Independent Sage in response to their disastrous and insane zero-Covid policy, one which this galaxy brain in New Zealand is still pursuing, by the way, makes the point that for the doom-mongers, pessimistic proclamations about the virus went hand-in-hand with sustained, lucrative TV appearances. There are some scientists who have absolutely loved being media stars for the first time, and they don't want it to stop. We don't hear as much from the paediatricians, disease physicians, academic virologists, and immunologists who really know about these things. Paul Hunter, professor of medicine at the University of East Anglia, said many prominent COVID voices have never written papers on infectious diseases. It's like me deciding, I did a course on health and economics a year ago, maybe I should set up a group advising the Chancellor on how to manage the tax system. So why were such voices amplified by the media? Why were the likes of Professor Sinetra Gupta and Professor Carl Hennigan silenced, ignored and smeared? Because the television media drunk the lockdown Kool-Aid. Their entire grift was predicated on keeping the British public terrified, cowering inside their homes, awaiting their daily dose of fear porn from BBC. News, Sky News, ITN. Ratings and clicks. Ratings and clicks. So of course they're going to amplify and make media stars out of the most ardent, scaremongering lockdown advocates. No matter how many times they were catastrophically wrong. And no matter the weight of the devastation that this has inflicted on our society. You know, I remember saying early on, I think the original predictions, now the SAGE system was in uh, the UK, um, but we had a similar modeling, obviously, um, in the United States. I think they said something like when we did the initial lockdowns, the potential for 200,000 deaths, either during that first two-week period or a day, which is something like insane amount of people. I forget which one it was, but I do remember talking to my friends about this saying like, well, if they're right, the next two weeks should be a bloodbath and nothing happened nothing happened. Um, what is it about these, uh, Neil Ferguson, the epidemiologist that was used as part of the SAGE modeling system in like the UK that, uh, we took a lot of, I think our sort of initial references from on how to model, uh, a potential pandemic outbreak, like why, you know, and still, they're still using his model 6,000 deaths a day from Omicron when the South Africans, uh, epidemiologists that first, uh, understood its existence, said it was mild by comparison to Delta, 6,000 deaths a day. I mean, it's like, it's almost, it's like the classic issue, the sort of positivist mathematics 
where you can like, ex you can do these exponential growth curves. You can sort of do these like very complex prob probabilistic modeling systems. And like a, based on one specific condition, that's usually highly contrived. You can justify this whole getting crazy sort of modeling of how it'll extrapolate out to the future. But the problem is if you don't get the initial conditions, right. The model itself is going to fall apart. You know, that's the, the foundation is shaky to begin with. And so I just, the fact they continue it, it, it even if it was just complete incompetence, boy, it makes it very easy to look and say, man, there must be something more going on <laughs> because why else, you know, well, I can't help point, like Tony. my mind goes that way. Go, yeah, good. Yeah. To that point, if it was just complete incompetence, then we should be able to do a very basic investigation and discover that like that, that should be evident after, after, you know, literally a simple investigation. Like if we do that investigation and what we collect doesn't point to incompetence, well, then we have to start looking at other solutions to this equation, right? Yeah, no, I mean, that's well said. I mean, the fact they also keep using the same modeling system, they use the same epidemiologist over and over again, even though his predictions are so wildly inaccurate. It's like, you know, it really does beg the question and not the, the fallacy of beg the question, but really uh, beg the question in the sense of like, what else might be going, what might be, we be missing in this equation to your point as to what other evidence might be available as to what, who profits, you know, obviously the mainstream media, for example, gets viewership from the fear porn. They're also controlled, well, not say controlled, but they have heavy influence by big pharmaceutical companies in the form of advertising. Um, you know, there's, I remember at one point we played a clip, I think this came from Dell. It wasn't Dell, but Dell Big Trees played the clip. It was, you know, he was playing a clip that was going around. It was essentially someone, it was a hospital director talking about how they need to ramp up the fear and get more people scared, more people, you know, the COVID, even though COVID numbers were dropping in the hospital, the marketing department in the hospital said COVID numbers are dropping. Like, well, we got to ramp up the fear. We got to ramp up the fear. We got ramp Why? It's like, well, you know, I always say from an economic standpoint, people are going to respond to incentives. The hospitals can't do out the elective surgeries anymore, outpatient surgeries, these sorts of things where they make a lar large portion of their money. And, uh, you know, they make a lot of money right now being subsidized by uh, the government in regards to having someone hospitalized for COVID or they die from it or not just being hospitalized. And then there's a whole incentive structure with the th therapeutics they allow in within a hospital setting is set up and you can start to see, again, I, I like to tie back to economics and I'm like, it just makes it, people are going to respond to those incentives and the hospitals are in a situation where they need to make money. They got to make money some way. Um, and they certainly will, but what do you guys think? What's going on with that? Well, I mean, as far as the, the responding to incentives, I mean, that's kind of the, the part of, of the tyranny of metrics, right? Uh, mm. the, the whole idea of the, the managerial class is going to direct the action of those underneath them uh, through those incentives. And most often in our world, because of the system that we operate in, that's going to that's gonna equal money. Um, so, yeah, I, I... I like the tyranny want, of metrics. That's a good, that's a good yeah. point. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it it's also really selling prophecies too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because you, just like you were saying with the modeling, you set it up to give you the, the outcome that you desire in order to create the, the perception uh, that you want created. Also, does anyone else have any ideas around that? I agree though. 
I was just thinking, do you guys remember covidactnow.org? It was a site that no. we were watching when... <laughs> this is, hold on, Brett. Hold on. Does it still exist? Yes, it does. Okay. I was um, going to say, okay. should we get an archive of it? Maybe. An archive of it would be a hoot. Because LD, could you find an archive of this going back to maybe March of 2020? So if anybody is watching along and they want to look, I, I, I could share screens too in a second here. It's called yeah, yeah. Now.org. Now, this was a site that we were actually watching in the Discord when we had the COVID Discord uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, oh, I remember that one. Yeah, yep. yeah. We all share. Yeah, totally. Yeah. We had so, some town halls. Joshua was running town halls back then, just trying to figure but no one knew what the fuck. That morphed into the Grand Theft World discord so it's the same one if you uh, right oh shit so this was a website that we were this was a website that we were all looking at at the time or many of us were looking at at the time that kind of showed what was happening and i remember joshua was in the state that was basically hit first and the nursing homes there were hit hard so we were on the eastern part of the country saying you know what's happening there and this was a state by state uh modeling software that's basically like here's the date your hospitals overload uh and again the website if anyone wants to check it out is covidactnow.org they have uh transferred over just to vaccination progress at this point they do still have uh risk levels so i'm just visiting oh, this is fantastic uh was again say that uh covidactnow.org covidactnow.org ld see if you can find some interesting like archives or timestamps of that and uh, the way back machine or, or like system uh, around well, maybe like how, march how 2020 april like okay, april march. or march of 2020 would be what i would look for april or march of 2020 april so, actually we can do march through may march through june because that's the early narrative long before the vaccine or any therapeutics ex- existed well hydroxychloroquine did but orange man bad so so right so this is uh, what it what it had was basically it, it was tracking cases best they could, whatever that means. And then it would be like, all right, if you lock, if you do uh, this kind of restriction, this is when your hospitals overload. If you do this more draconian uh, uh, restriction, this is when your hospitals overload buys you an extra six weeks. Or if you do full Wuhan style, like well door shut type stuff. Uh, you get all the way to June before your hospitals overload. That was that was basically. I mean, I'm cartoonifying a little bit, but that was basically uh, how the site was laid out. And I think they did at least state by state, maybe county by county. I see that now. Uh, it's interesting where they'll color code the states based on uh, percentage of the population vaccinated, but you mm. can also switch to a county map, and that looks much different. This is oh, a really funny thing to look at because. If you look at the uh, the vaccination map at the very top, you know you get all these different states with various levels of vaccination progress, as they call it. Some are, you know, highly vaccinated; others are more moderately vaccinated, and some have low vaccination. But if you scroll down below that map, you get a risk level map, and except for Maryland, Puerto Rico, and Idaho, the entire country is exactly the same risk level, which is extremely <laughs> high. Of course, that's so, what I'm talking about the self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Always continue to throw around. It's like, well, 
they've they've prescriptively stated the the issue and now they have to make all the data fit into it and that's sort of what's going on i love those positive mo- positivist models not because they're ever right but because it just shows the inadequacy of positivism as an intellectual philosophy so and most people who hear these kinds of predictions on the news aren't going to remember the specific number they're just going to remember high number and so then it doesn't really matter if the prediction is ever met. They just know, well, a bunch of they said a bunch of people were going to die and then a bunch of people did. And so they were right, basically. Actually, that's a great point, because early on, um, actually, no, this was a year into it. We're now in 2021. I want to say June or July. And I think it was Paul Joseph Watson again, who actually did a couple of productions on this, stating that there are polls that have been conducted showing that a majority, not a majority, but a large minority of people, I forget the numbers. We should try to find those videos. Actually, I'll go back and look while we play another one of people believing that millions and millions have already died specifically mm-hmm. of like COVID. And like, it was some, some insane number. I have to go back and look, but it's, there's a lot of people I sort of bought into your point. They don't know the numbers. They know it's a lot. So they're like, Oh, millions and millions of people. And it's like, no, you know, your chance of survival if you're under 50 is like 99.97%. And it's not that serious. It, it typically acts more like a quarter or flu. Some do get hit hard. You'll still live. Maybe have some long COVID, but you'll get over that. Even, you know, it's, uh, but people had no idea. People just know that at least one football stadium's worth of people have died because that's how we measure quantities in this country. Yeah, football and we use the stadiums. PCR. Yeah, football. St- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this championship Sunday, after all. But uh... I found five safe counties. If you go to the risk the risk levels map and you switch from states to counties, can you share it real quick? Do you have the? No, I'm going to share screens yeah. really quickly. Hold on one sec. All right. So it looks like you've got one in Nebraska, one in Iowa, and three in Texas in the contiguous 48 here. So Alaska. Oh, so wow, Texas has Alaska. Okay. So the, no one probably lives in that southern portion of Alaska. You know, I, I have no people that were in college that thought Alaska was an island, non sequitur, but like that's, they thought it was like an island off the south coast of like New Mexico there. Why does that not surprise me? Yeah. And they were, by the way, the one was in school for pharma, become like a pharmaceutical dispenser or whatever, pharmacist. So that was it's a rich tapestry, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this is what Danny was talking about when he, when he said uh, the states. <laughs> okay. So then this is um, vaccination oh. progress for anyone who hasn't checked this out yet. And you go to counties and you see that the more rural areas are. Uh, wow. Yeah. Now there are places that are just, all the way in, like no matter what county you go to, yeah, the northeast. Like, yeah, no exactly. No surprise. And of course, it's yeah. That's still that's crazy. Senate has sent me something here. Act now. Uh, the Act Now Coalition, um, which we I'll have to do a tiny deep dive on that. I'll look into that. But Act Now is a UN initiative, apparently. So it's part of you know sort of broader UN initiatives to make sure they have sort of a consistent uh, framing of the narrative across. Uh, nation states act now united nations okay thank you son i'll check this out so that's let me just I'll, let me bring this up let me just share this with time so get a little bit late i want to get at least some more clip in but so it's part of this act now the un campaign for individual action make this a little bigger to preserve a livable climate are you sure this is the same this is part of the act now wow law 
to <laughs> I mean, the meme generator of the simulation we are experiencing mm-hmm. called life. My God. To reserve a livable climate, greenhouse gas emissions must be reduced to net zero by 2050. Bold, fast, and wide-ranging action needs to be taken by governments and businesses. But the transition to a low-carbon world also requires the participation of citizens, especially in advanced economies. Act now is the United Nations campaign for individual action on climate change and sustainability. So this is the part of the same organization. Okay, Act Now Coalition. Interesting. Nice. I like how they have the sense of urgency built into the name of the coalition. That is that is fantastic marketing. Yeah, and Senna posted a link in that chat as well. It says uh, it's actnowcoalition.org slash hashtag our dash projects. And uh, oh, indeed, nice. under our projects, hold on one sec. Under our projects, the COVID Act now is listed, but under our partners, we've got Stanford Medicine, Unilever, IBM, CDPH Public Health, Harvard, Georgetown University, General Mills, Army, all this stuff. So, yeah, if you scroll up, I believe... Oh, there it is. Okay, so people can see this. Our partners, Stanford Medicine, Unilever, IBM, Harvard, yeah, Army National Guard, General Mills, uh, Georgetown... Products. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They're they're all World Economic Forum partners anyway, so they're on board. <laughs> strategic. Many of them are probably strategic partners, which are the difference. I believe there's the partners, and then there's the strategic, there's the special windmills. Windmills. Dude, look <laughs> Those at this. work. Oh, uh, you know they worked really well in Texas last year. I heard they look nice. Yeah, they, <laughs> the birds think the same thing. They love them. Wait <laughs> until you have to just bury them in the ground, and then it's uh, it's all not over. so good. Did you find anything, by the way, with those? Uh, in the way back machine. Well, I brought it up on screen, but it, it didn't, I went back to March of 2020 and it wasn't functioning. Uh, Um, like, like the, the, the current site seems to. All good. All good. We'll have to take a look into that more. That's a fantastic, uh, shout out there, Brett, cause I was not aware of that website probably was like, I probably been on it but I just totally forgot its existence, which is along the lines of what Daniel was saying. It's like big number. Yeah. In our early meetings in the, in the COVID discord back in uh, March and April of 2020, we were, we were talking about it quite a bit. I remember. Let's see here. But uh, yeah, this is uh, it's interesting to see how contrived these statistical modeling uh, situations actually are. And what's scary is how much that has extrapolated into the public consciousness. It's almost like it's, I mean, we know, okay, the UK was using um, psychological warfare techniques on this population that came out. We know it was being done in Canada. In fact, Canada wasn't just using psychological warfare techniques. They were literally tracking thousands and tens of thousands of phones without people knowing about it. Well, what they're texting in regards to, you know, the COVID narrative. So I, some part of me is like, how much of this is just a test? How much can we get away with just not, you know, they, they always hear about this concept of the post-truth world, which I think is a little bit overstated, but that people aren't really reacting to truth. They're reacting to sort of the, the emotional response of the camp you're in. That's the cybernetic feedback concept that is really pernicious and quite scary because that just goes along with them. They're not modeling a virus. They're modeling us. Mm-hmm. That's what they're doing. Yeah. I think you're you're closer to the truth on that than you might realize, Tony, because that same thought has been in my mind for several months now. Um, and that's the 
there there's a lot of manipulation that's going on and the the driving force behind pretty much all of it is data generation data yeah yeah. Oh, in a simpler version of that, I think it was Michael Malice who said something like, at the end of 2020, uh, you know, this year, the worst people in the world learned a lot about what the average person will put up with. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well yeah. said. That's extremely well said. So I did a series on my podcast in 2020. Tony actually participated in the finale episode. It was the series was called This is a Test. And I oh, couldn't man. get that idea out of my head that this is uh, some kind of a trial run of something. And, you know, I hate to get dark and cynical here, but uh, I, if there's three people whose you know, views I'm interested in on this, this kind of speculation. It's like with everything we know about the very likely like lab origin of the virus, um, the the um, genetic code inserted into something. What do they call that? The fern cleavage site. Yeah, fern cleavage. Uh, yeah. So and like this this massive propaganda um, campaign towards certain procedures. Like, how do they eventually make people like us eat shit on this? Right? Because I, I that's another thing that I've said to people in my world the whole time is like, why don't we be careful about our victory laps? Like, oh, Fauci doesn't know what he's talking about. The CDC was wrong. The WHO was wrong again. And so it's like victory, victory, victory lap. Uh, maybe a day comes and, and it doesn't. There's so much narrative control, again, on the people who are always going to be down for, for whatever happens uh, and whoever they're told the bad guys are. They're never going to question any of it. But um, in the whole perception management aspect of this, one thing that has always just left me feeling unsettled is um, how do they eventually, when we look at the, the full spectrum dominance of this, of this situation, um, assuming such, right? Because I don't think like there, there's lots of positive things to look at and and with the whole like that group in the middle mobilizing and maybe starting to wake up and maybe starting to ask questions and maybe starting to actually do something uh productive in a in a dissonant way here um i don't i don't want to portray the situation as hopeless but considering there are some very very powerful people involved in what's going on here um has anybody had a meaningful exploratory conversation about like all right well What's the next? We see the narrative, and I, I think you guys have probably talked about this for a few weeks on the show now. We see that the narrative is starting to change a little bit. So that was uh, the title of last week's show. Yeah. Yeah. Changed, yeah. How do they how do they come back for people like us? You know, and I just I just think it's an interesting question. And I don't expect people to have answers to that. I guess what I'm asking is how much discussion or exploration of that possibility has there been that I might not know about? I'll just throw this out there. They're not going to do it with evidence. I don't right. think they're going to do it with evidence. That's the most, so sometimes I think one of the problems is we take victory laps when there is no victory. Like they're like the, the Fauci contradicting himself, the WHO contradicting itself, the CDC contradicting itself. Isn't necessarily a victory. You know why? Because most people are still going along with that mass formation. So in what, in what capacity can we say that's a victory? Because we, Brett, you and I know this because we tried it for now over a decade. You can't just use facts and reason, unfortunately, to sort of change the hearts and minds of individuals. Like, yeah, you, like, you need that element there too, but it's something deeper than that. It's something more on sort of a, 
on the soul level, on the spiritual level, on whatever, what psycho psychological level, whatever terminology you want to use, there's something that holds people back from really being able to understand, integrate and make change actionable change based on evidence that actually exists. And there's so much contradictory evidence out there. You can almost find uh, as a buddy of mine who works in the hard science and said, you can find anything you, you can find a study for almost anything you want to prove at this point. It doesn't mean that, 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 that makes that knowledge or truth is relative. It just means you really have to then dive into the study and understand how it's conducted and, you know, juxtapose that to methodologies. And it really, no one has the time to do all that. And we aren't trained necessarily in the nuances of being able to critique that sort of analysis. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, you know, I think we're the one, when you talk about victory laps, I just, I pause and say, yes, you, in the alternative media, oftentimes we do, we take these victory laps, but to me, like that's wrong because there's no victory lap to be had. Mm-hmm. Like, it's almost like us congratulating ourselves on being right about something that's obvious. Right. It's like, oh, the sun's going to rise. Look, how I'm right. See, it's like, dude, the sun rises every, like, that's what, that's just normal. The the pension, or I'm sorry, go go ahead, Brett. Just real quick, this. Danny. Uh, yeah. So a real world example of what I was kind of uh, wondering about is I had a conversation with somebody recently and they threw the whole like, well, everybody who's dying is unvaccinated, you know? And I said, okay, well, assuming that's true, then this is essentially biological warfare against people who require longitudinal studies before they do experimental medical procedures, right? Uh, if if the people who've who've taken this can still get it, spread it, you know, then those who are holding out for like, well, you know, I'd like to see what happens over the course of a couple of years, at the very least a flu season, you know, um, then if that if that does translate to greater risk for those people, uh, that's essentially what we're looking at, which is a, now there's a lot of speculation in that. But that's that's just kind of what I'm talking about is that like sooner or later, there must be a way to punish the like really punish the disobedient. And I can't get that idea out of my mind. But yeah, go ahead, Danny. I was interested in what you had to say. Well, I just on the point of the victory laps, I don't know that this isn't really much of an answer to any question so much as it is just an observation of a potential course of action that may be worth taking, considering that. There is this impetus. It's probably just human nature to when you see something that you've predicted come to pass, you want to you know, shout it from the rooftops. Hey, we were right. We called it to take your victory lap. And I don't know that this is like planned or anything, but it could be. But as we see the narrative shift away from COVID and people are starting to break down and say, look, we're kind of done with this and things like this, like we saw with Bill Maher, uh, among others. I imagine that the reaction by a lot of people sort of on our side of things is going to be like, well, see, look, we were right all along. Uh, The COVID wasn't that big of a deal. Look, we're able to go back to normal, blah, blah, blah. And then we all just sort of retire back. Either we're busy taking victory laps or we retire back and sort of go back to normal until whatever this was a test for comes to pass. So people are talking about like the pivot to climate, for example, Uh, or, you know, for all we know, there could be monkeypox. You know, whatever sort of narrative they want to throw at us next, if we're busy taking victory laps, we're not going to be able to respond. And more importantly, all of the people who are caught in that uh, crucial middle that we were talking about earlier, they're very likely to just get caught right back up into the new narrative. So I would say the, the thing that is left for us to do, rather than take a victory lap, 
again, don't know how successful this will be. Maybe it would be an absolute failure. But as we go back, maybe potentially just for a little bit, back to the old normal, hopefully, take that temporary respite that we have made available to us to go out and take advantage of the fact that many people will no longer be so emotionally charged by COVID. You see, part of the problem with reaching out to people on a rational level is that their emotions are getting in the way of that uh, rational reach out because COVID was so intense and so immediate and urgent that we don't have time to sit and have a conversation. My grandma's going to die. But if COVID takes a back seat in the sort of mainstream narrative, that might be an opportunity to actually reach out and say, hey, you know, do you ever notice like two years ago they said this and then this happened? You ever notice, isn't that funny? And just kind of try to pick out people who are actually open to this sort of thing plant and connect thing, plant seeds, you know, while the season, while it's the season for it, because I'm sure there's going to be a new narrative and Mm -hmm. maybe we'll be able to get just a couple more people. I don't know. What do you guys think about, and this is dark, but this is just a continuation. This is like them understanding Stockholm syndrome very well. A little bit of carrot and stick. A little bit of like, you know, we'll, we'll reel back the narrative for a little while, then boom, we'll, we'll thrust it on them when they least expect it again. New major variant. I mean, I don't know. I just, that's where my mind goes for some reason. I'm like, you know, it's just, they, they know these behavioral patterns that we think. Wasn't to, that a MK ultra thing where they'd mm-hmm. like starve you and then they'd give you a banquet and then they'd starve you again. And it's all about playing the extremes. Yes. The super extremes. It's- and then what you do is you end up loving and looking forward to that sort of servitude. Yeah, it's in Marilou's Rape of the Vine, too. The, that idea of the waves, that it hits you in waves. Yes. It's very similar yeah. to what you're talking about. Sorry, James, go ahead. Well, I was just going to point out that one of the things that we haven't touched on yet about this, this situation and this reprieve that seems to be uh, manifesting is that the emergency powers that were granted to various governments around the world are not being repealed. Yeah, we have governments coming out and saying, all right, all right, we're, we're not going to do the forced vaccinations. We're not going to do the, uh, the mask mandates. You but know, Dave we're, we're going to speak. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, the powers that they have granted themselves aren't going anywhere. They're still on the books and they can recall them at any moment. Yes. So, I mean, there's, uh, you know, all these, all these things are, are going to come to a head at some point and, and kind of to your original question, Brett, I don't know that there's really anything that they need to uh, come back around to us for uh, because the, the whole technocratic control system that they're trying to put into place is designed specifically to exclude the disobedient. Mm. Very good point. So, you know, back to the victory laps idea, like I'm a huge fan of I was right all along. It's super gratifying, uh, but other people are into that too. And now we have this kind of narrative template where people are so assured uh, and have been for a long time that they were on the smart and responsible side of this, right? Uh, An inconvenient truth that was what, 20 years ago? And, uh, you know, a certain kind of politic aligned with uh, a certain kind of scientism and it's just continued to spin out of control uh since then and it's infected pop culture uh you know a big part of the reason we're here is because people thought neil degrasse tyson and bill nye were cool you know and and they weren't 
no, but but what I'm what I'm saying is in in narrative templates, like yeah, say Danny is right and we get some return to normal and we have a seed planting season. As soon as the next thing happens and it hits hard and sudden like this one did, if it does, it's all about like these these are the the disobedient people who were responsible for the empty grocery store shelves because they shirked their responsibilities and drove to the capital of Canada. These are the people who wouldn't listen to the scientists and didn't get vaccinated and prolonged the the last pandemic because they didn't like everything is already in place as far as like a narrative template is concerned. So yes, the idea like I, when when they uh, started uh, like wargaming a cyber pandemic, like mm. yeah, it had the word pandemic in it. But I was like, how are they going to divide people? I didn't I didn't get it at first. Like, how are they going to divide people over this? You know, I mean, I'm sure there's a way because I mean, geez, there was three or four weeks when I didn't know how it was going to happen with COVID back in 2020. I figured it out pretty quickly, but um, I think well thanks to Corbett. I think he was the first one who was like, Hey, is anybody noticing anything interesting about this? Like two weeks to flatten the curve, stay at home to flatten the curve, um, horizontal policing that's going on. Uh, and that escalated very, very sharply and quickly. So yeah, I think everything is already in place. Like who are the good, smart, responsible people and who are the bad disobedient prolong the crisis people. Uh, and that to me means that, uh, it will probably move more in the the climate change direction from here, even if there is some some respite. Again, a lot of speculation, uh, and maybe we get cyber pandemic too. You know. Well, and the other thing too is they don't have to completely abandon the the COVID narrative. You're right. Um, yeah. They can they can just go in the back as seat. like an. Yeah, yeah, it can be like an ever-present specter because, uh, again, there's that certain percentage of the population that has now had their brains permanently warped by this narrative so anytime you bring up the boogeyman of covid it's going to spark an emotional reaction in them and also, also we're going to oh, get go well we're gonna assuming we get the reprieve i'm looking at england as sort of an example of the reprieve that potentially will come our way um but like let's look at england now that they remove the legal stipulations regarding masks and vaccines and all that stuff now the real test begins now we're going to see who does it voluntarily. Now we're going to get to see how much it's been ingrained into the actual culture. Because you know not everybody's going to take the mask off. You know people are going to get mad at people who take their masks off, regardless of what the law says now. That's the real test, I think. And so let's bring it over here. If we have a reprieve like that, maybe we're going to be able to reach out to people because COVID isn't so much in the emotional forefront in the news but there are always going to be those people who are still caught in, you know, summertime 2020 mindset, COVID. Like this is still with us. And when the next thing does come, maybe it's another COVID variant or maybe it's an environmental thing. They're already going to have that programming in place to say, like, whereas here in March of 2020, we were kind of starting at zero. We had to build up to this state that we're at now. They're going to have the program ready to go. We'll just be able to kick back into high gear and then plus, like if we just go with the COVID narrative for a minute, all of those of us who decided voluntarily to shirk what had once been law, those of us who are not wearing masks when it's like, let's say we're allowed not to, well, now it's really going to be easy to point to those of us who didn't culturally adapt. So that could be a potential way in which they get us. 
And of course, it's really easy for these sorts of people to make a, to draw a very direct line between people who tend to be against the COVID narrative and people who you can classify as climate change deniers. And hey, don't you remember that when China locked down, their pollution rate went down? Don't you want that? Isn't that good? So like there are so many lines that we can draw that would be that would cast a really wide net for those of us who would no longer choose or have at this point long chosen not to adopt to the COVID. And what sacrifice is sort of critical thinking. I, I, the, I'm trying to think of the universal here and it's sort of like the issue of heuristics, because what Brett's pointing out is very pernicious because it's also the fact that we're sort of engaging with the idea of a mentality of always being correct, just like the inconvenient truth people at one point believed they were completely correct about the climate change narrative. And if we don't maintain a form of healthy skepticism, even with stuff that we want to necessarily, like we have a certain confirmation bias towards, then we're, we can fall into that same trap and they can actually use that against us as we use it against like the inconvenient truth type of like the, the climate change sort of the narrative and mentality. And this all represents elements of the Dunning-Kruger effect, obviously. Uh, the, the, the less you know about a subject, the more you think you're sort of an expert or have sophisticated knowledge about it. The more you know about a subject, the more nuanced you know of these, the complexities inherent and the less uh, surety or assuredness you have around that subject. And so it's like, I just think going back, it's, we're back to this sort of heuristics thing where like these victory laps or a false sense of security. If that's the, not the right, I don't even know that's the, the right concept, but it's just the idea that like, we're reinforcing our own biases that may be actually correct and most likely are. Cause like, oftentimes I feel like we're citing evidence and uh, studies more so than the other side, but at the same point that can also be weaponized against us because then we're, we can make the assumption that we're kind of always right. Um, and they can use that potentially against us just as we use it. Like I said, against the, the climate change people, man, that's, I didn't put that together, but that sort of mentality creates in sort of egregore or egregore, this idea of this like manifested sort of corporeal thought or a, an incorporeal thought that becomes sort of like a manifested thought form, a disembodied thought form that stands as like sort of a, a God or some sort of like um, apotheosized concept over the population that manifests it in a collective action. So it's right. like, it's a difference between the individual and the collective action. And contract. to James's point that speak, you know, the law may change, but that egregor actually manifests in the form of political power, which is, of course, yes. backed up ultimately by violence. So they can choose to give us right. a reprieve. But ultimately, what are we what are we assenting to in that process? They're the ones who have the power to give us a reprieve. And a great example of what this actually looks like is if you watch that video of Boris Johnson announcing that they're going to put an end to all of their laws and stuff. I mean, just listen to the muffled, impotent groans of approval coming from the people behind him <laughs> as their dear leader tells them that they're now allowed to move through their own communities. That they get back That's their freedoms they never had the right to take away in the first place. Now, they don't have a constitutional republic. And it's fundamentally a Hegelian sort yeah. of model. Well said. Yeah, there's there's one more part of this, like these narrative templates and layers. And you know, James pointed out, or you know, Danny and James pointed out, I think that the COVID narrative is here to stay. And let's remember that this was whatever's next, right? It's it's layered on top of this. But the COVID narrative itself was layered on top of 9-11, right? So okay. Rich and I would talk ago, about that all the time. It started yeah. with 9-11. Yeah. And actually before that, but 9-11 was really the traumatic situation that is sort of ingrained, I think, in everyone's mind that lived through that day that precipitated to the experience we're having today. Absolutely. 
So the 20th century was called by Adam Curtis, the century of the self. And the 21st century is definitely going to be the century of the safe. And it, it began mm. with that. Right. And a friend of mine that I do another podcast with a comedy podcast, he's a car guy. And believe me, uh, the whole safetyism thing is not good for car guys. And he points out all the time that people obsessed with safety are the most dangerous people, ironically, in the entire world. Or the obsession with safety is the most dangerous thing uh, because safety trumps everything. Right. Like keeping people safe, no matter what anybody says. Right. Barry Weiss and Bill Maher can say anything on there. They can make the best, most cogent points about the costs of this. And then it can be turned right around by CNN or The View. I saw that on uh, No Agenda podcast. They're playing clips from The View about how flippant Bill Maher is being while, while people are dying. And then they even go on to say something like, doesn't he remember like, yeah, this is the way the world is now. Sorry, buddy. Like we still take our shoes off at the airport because of 9-11. And that's the way the world is. Like, that's totally fine. And there's nothing to even think about there. So 9-11 creates this, like, safetyism wins every argument, right? Nothing is more, safety first, not safety second or safety third, safety first. And notice what that is. I can take this all the way back to Jeremy Bentham and utilitarian ethics, the yeah. greatest good for the greatest number. We're just back to a utilitarian ethics. It's a sacrifice of the individual for a greater collective good which itself is contrived and it's a, you know, essentially has to be part of a larger narrative that then has to be justified in some capacity through data, through manipulation of the narrative, through, you know, whatever means necessary to fulfill the prophecy that's already been prescripted or prescribed on an unwitting populace. Yeah. Well, now we've got Bentham's ultimate dream come true with our technology. Yes. If we have the utilitarian oh, yes. agenda, uh, if we or rather, if we have the utilitarian ends, what we need is a truly panopticontic means. And well, we've got sir. it now with the form of, you know, phones in everyone's pocket and cameras on every computer and every street corner, et cetera, and et cetera. Think of the predictive programming. What was it, The Dark Knight, where Batman uses the triangulation of the cell phones to tear down the forest, to burn down the forest so they could catch the, you know, catch the Joker in this capacity. But it's like, you know, and of course, Morgan Freeman comes in and is like, no, 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 this is, this is wrong on so many levels. And he's like, yeah, I know, but it's for the greater good. Mm -hmm. it's for the greater good i have to do this to stop the joker so yeah, and we, we all cheered when he did that right because because the good guy got the bad guy and everyone lived happily ever after and all that good it. stuff so it's about 12 what i want to do here is if you guys want to do one more clip i'm down for one very short clip if that's okay with you guys this would just be the brett and heather um talking about the fauci we have a little discussion around the the, the issue of uh <clears throat> these uh, unelected rulers, as Rich likes to call them. Uh, is everyone cool with that? One more. It's like through two or three minutes, and then we'll have a discussion, and then we'll we'll sort of disband this, and I'll continue on. But uh, probably, works for me. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, let's um, do This will be LD. This will be. It's a about three minute clip. It's the second one down on the roundtable video. This Brett and Heather's got my thought. She hasn't got it. The uh, J Edgar Hoover comparison. Yeah. All right. I've wondered why Trump didn't fire Fauci in the insight as to why he didn't. I don't think he's fireable somehow. Uh, I agree. And actually, yeah. I heard somebody else. I, I was yeah. thinking of um, 
calling him the J. Edgar Hoover of public health. And I heard somebody Someone else, else use that, that exact phrase yeah. this week. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I do think that there is some, and you know, in J. Edgar Hoover's case, we know why more or less, mm-hmm. which is that because of his position at the FBI, he had enough goods on enough people that nobody wanted, you know, to, to go after him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That can't be quite right with Fauci. It's not the same position. On the other hand, right. we do know a lot about his, the way he has ruled um, public health and related fields through uh, and basically. Science. So much of science. Yeah. I mean, it, it obviously doesn't extend beyond a certain level, but, but there's a, there's an ability to cause your <coughs> fortunes to reverse, right? If you're on Fauci's good side, the money can flow and you can start rising in your field. If you're run afoul of him, it can be the end of your career. And so I think the answer is Heather and I know nothing about the detail of how that worked, but yep. imagine for a second, a system in which somebody has amassed so much power. And remember he did turn down, I believe the attempt to promote him to NIH. Head. Yes, that is, um, yeah. Uh, Bush too, I believe tried to, tried to promote him to NIH and he uh, politely declined. And I think basically his, his fiefdom, he had, he had and retains more power uh, as head of the NIAID than he would have as NIH. And, you know, Collins, who I guess is stepping or has already stepped down is nominally his boss, but not really. Right. So I think, I think the thing is, why would somebody turn down that promotion? And the answer is um, because I have built all of these things into this position that allow me carte blanche. And why would I start over or yeah, just doesn't make any sense. Or just have to oversee more. Like why he's not a bureaucrat. He's a lot of things, but I don't think he's actually a bureaucrat. I don't know what he is. Um, Maybe that's not the right formulation. I don't know. I'm I'm thinking about. It. I, yeah. I I think I think it. You know, putting him in a a known category is bound to be a, a mistake. Yeah, he's special. He's special. Nope. Oh, there we go. He's special. Is Fauci fireable? Is that like licking doorknobs special? <laughs> or toilet seats on airplanes? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, he's like the I, ultimate know, bureaucrat. Well, go ahead. Well, I don't. That's the thing is, I think Heather was was on to something there. I don't know that he is necessarily your run of the mill you know, textbook definition of a bureaucrat. Mm-hmm. He, he has more power in, than that. Right. And Think he's been it. in that position for decades. Yes. So like there, there have to have been other opportunities for him to have been removed from that spot for, you know, previous uh, egregious actions that he's taken yet. He's still there and he wields uh, a tremendous amount of power from that position. So, what exactly is he? Yeah, that's well said. I mean, most bureaucrats don't have the ability to control millions, if not billions of dollars of funding to research scientists. And he does to the NIAID. I don't even think Collins has a Collins is to sort of over is supposed to be the sort of oversight to someone like a Fauci, but Fauci's the one 
conducting it. You know, we might have to run it past Collins, but ultimately he's the one who gets to say where it goes and where it doesn't. You know, bureaucrats can only dream of that level of power. Usually they have to go through some sort of legislative process. Right. It's like on paper, I guess you would have to say that Fauci technically is a bureaucrat, but only insofar as he's an unelected administrator who's been tasked with dealing with taxpayer money. But, you know, fine, that's the definitional thing. But when you really get down into the mud of what he does, you have to ask yourself, why does this guy make more money than his boss? You know, that's an interesting question to ask. And also, we know that he's an ambitious man. I mean, anybody who's 80 years old and has decided to helm this, a ship this large has to be ambitious. Say what you want about him. And there was a... Um, and doesn't want to retire. A, doesn't want to retire. I was just going to say, he yeah. was asked, like, are you ever going to retire? Uh, what was it, Burks or whoever? She said that she wanted to retire. And he mm-hmm. said, no, no, it never entered into my head. So clearly, he's a man with, you know, energy. And yet, why would he decide to stop at that particular level rather than climb all the way to the top as he could have? It, it, it's interesting. It's, it makes you want to investigate what specific relationships exist with him in that particular role. And why is it that those relationships couldn't have been maintained had he taken another job? Like something about that job is important to him. And I wonder what that is. Mm-hmm. It might not be the job specifically. So if we're going to use Hoover as the model with with the FBI, it's your longevity in that job. And like maybe Peter Principle sort of thing. Do you know about that principle? Refresh my memory. Peter Principle is sort of like you will um, uh, be promoted to a point of being incompetent within an organization. Uh, like essentially like organizations will promote internally to the point where you reach a, a point where you're incompetent in that position because it's outside the scope of your knowledge or ability to actually conduct, um, be able to do the job that's requested. I mean, I'm sort of loosely, that's the general principle. Um, it's sort of loosely applying it to, to Fauci situation. Can you, can you make a, that. can you make a direct connection to, to Fauci in this case? I don't think so because I mean, how, why, how would he know, like know about that principle? Like does he know something about being an IH head that would make him be outside the scope of his ability to do his job? I don't think that's the case, but in the case of J Edgar Hoover and certain positions in the FBI, it could make that, but. Yeah. So what I, what I think it is, is it's, it, it's not anything magical about that specific position. It's the fact that his longevity in position in a single position um, comes with an increasing knowledge of how to game it for maximum like power. I agree there. You know, so, and, and then again, that's Hoover as, as the model, right? So yeah, it's it's certainly a different field where Hoover is, you know, collecting information on people and he's got dirt on everybody and that allows him to maintain his power that way. But in ways that we might not understand, um, Fauci's tenure in this specific position has definitely helped him set up, you know, understand all the levers and the wires and the pulleys that that come with this for uh, maximum leverage and maximum power. So like, I think it's sort of like somewhere else. Yeah. Right. Like with an engineer, why remove yourself from the machine you built? Like, you know, all the intricacies of the machine you built, why remove yourself from that? Especially of, especially that machine gives you a sense of the ability to manipulate 
your reality in a way that being sort of someone that oversees the person manipulating the machine has. I know it's sort of a loose analogy, but that's sort of what's going on here. He knows how the pharmaceutical companies work. He knows how the the grant funding works, the the distribution of taxpayer funds. He knows how to distribute that. He knows how to seemingly manipulate that, much like Hoover did with uh, people within the FBI, informants within the FBI. Same thing here. We just had that on the show. I just had this on the show card last week. It was like a a major element that, you know, coincidentally, he funneled many times over money to research scientists for all just an epidemiologist that questioned the, the lab leak hypothesis, uh, right around the same, that right, like right after they questioned it and they, he did so many times over what the initial grant was requested for. So it's like the fact that he has that. So we have actual examples of this, him doing this. Now we also, because of RFK's book, we have examples of him doing this in the eighties with AIDS and specific, uh, therapeutics with AIDS. So it's like, you know, and why remove yourself? Because you actually have, oddly enough, more power in that position, even if, you know, um, which is, it's strange to think about, you know, we think of Francis Collins as being a sort of, it's nothing more than a figurehead in, in, in this sort of situation, but. It's, it speaks to perhaps that ambition again, the fact yeah. that he would choose rather to take a position that's a little closer to the ground because that's where the real action is. Uh, so it, it's just interesting to me, and I think it would be an, a worthwhile endeavor, perhaps just on my own, to try and figure out exactly what it is that the director of the NIA, NIAID, what are the things that he actually has to do on a day-to-day basis, and what are the relationships that have been brokered over the years? I mean, he's been in there, what, 40 years, 50 years? So what sort of He helped to find, I think, that unique organization within the NIH. I think he, he was like okay. one of... I, I, I might be incorrect about that. I'm pretty sure he's one of like those sort of the founding fathers of that specific organization, which is like underneath the umbrella of the NIH. And that happened okay. at a time to, in the late seventies, early eighties, um, because, you know, there, there, of course there wasn't a, any issue with infectious diseases. They had to sort of, again, we're back to the self-fulfilling prophecy. If, and then if, all he was of a sudden, an, you know, if he was more of an architect of it, then that makes even more sense why he would want to kind of stay with his baby. Uh, that does make sense. And especially in such a position as that, he probably made some more long-term relationships, particularly, you know, how do you get your money, et cetera. And as far as my understanding of that position goes, it's simply that he's basically the guy who gets to decide what gets funded and what doesn't. And that's a really interesting position in that, you know, it's kind of like the trolley problem where, you know, either you kill this group of people or you kill that group of people and, Fauci is kind of the guy operating the railroad switch in that he chooses what gets funded and what doesn't. And I I don't know what, I don't know. I don't know what to say more on that because I don't know. I haven't read. So I'm wrong about this. I am wrong about this. So it started as far back mid 1948. The NIH became the national institutes of health with the creation of four new institutes. Um, Biologics. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, Congress changed the name of the National Biological Institute to National Institute of... So originally it was called the National Biological Institute, Microbiological Institute, and then it became the NIAID to reflect the inclusion of... Maybe what I'm misunderstanding is he he gained control of it at a time when it was largely... Oh, I remember. In the 80s, Reagan was considering shutting down these organizations because they were not really useful. There wasn't essentially epidemics of allergy or infectious diseases and a lot of 
government money was being sent there, of course, is the Reaganomics sort of situation, sort of trying to curtail sort of government spending. And so they had to find, this is what the sort of the AIDS conspiracy people come in with is like, well, they had to find, again, this self-fulfilling prophecy of being able to maintain and keep this open. That's, I think, the connection. That's where I got it wrong. But it started, that's interesting that it started as the Microbiological Institute, NMI. Then it was changed in 55 to the NIAID. With, with, interestingly enough, a focus on immunology research specifically. So, The other question, too, about the NIH and its oversight of Fauci. So are the people who lead it more ceremonial? Like Francis Collins has this history with uh, genome research. So is that, is that a prestige position? And as, as a leader, you're, you're kind of toothless. Right. So I, that would require more research. Like, you know, the guy Collins was preceded by uh, Raynard um, Kington. Uh, and now the the successor was just the deputy director. And mm. uh, it says, let's see, is an American dentist and biomedical scientist serving as the acting director of the National Institutes of Health. Health. It's almost like a uh, coach getting fired in the NFL and they just promote you know, like the well, offensive coordinator. Well, that is that the other thing is, does Fauci have a legacy of weak bosses, right? Mm. You know, so, so or those bosses purposely put there so he can do what by was a revolving door of pharmaceutical influence, making sure that the Fauci, who seems to be the perfect plant for big pharma, mm -hmm. maintains his position by having incompetent bosses to some extent, quote unquote. Yeah. I mean, that's, these are all open questions, no idea, but yeah. Yeah. So just to be completely open about this, this is this is a question that I'm raising that would require a lot more research is that it is there a lineage of people running the NIH as Fauci's boss who are basically soft or toothless or in in ceremonial or prestige positions that basically allows Fauci to operate because uh, because all they've done since Collins retired was put in the deputy director as the director. Correct. So I no know. one really knew, knew who Francis Collins was before we heard about Fauci. Fauci was conducting all this. Now, yes, he's interfacing with Collins. They're talking about how to take down the virology or the, uh, the like Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford and the, the, um, the other two epidemiologists started the Great Barrington Declaration. It's like, how do we stop this or how do we stop the lab leak? You know, you know, they're, they're talking privately in emails about taking down legitimate scientists that have a evidence that presents contrary sort of narratives to what they're trying to promote. And so there's, they obviously have a shared vision. There's a solidarity around what they're trying to attempt to do, which is yeah, terrifying. And correct me if I'm wrong in, in thinking this, but it, occurred to me in reading through those emails between uh, Collins and Fauci uh, about the Great Barrington Declaration uh, that it was actually Collins was looking to Fauci to be the one to actually do something about it. You got he it. was he was basically like bringing it to Fauci like, hey, we've got this problem that needs to be fixed and, and I'm, I'm presenting it to you to get that fixing done. And this goes along with what Daniel's saying. Man. There's a certain psychology almost about a mentality, if you will, about um, Fauci to be 80 years old and still be on the fight, still be sitting there uh, getting sort of excoriated by someone like Rand Paul 
and others that have questioned him on, you know, lab manipulated viruses and gain of function technology. Then he sits there and it wasn't just um, him stating the Burks that he's not going to retire. Rand Paul said, you should, you should resign based on these allegations. It's like, absolutely not. I'll be here. You know, he's like 80 or 81. He has over $10 million because, you know, he makes 400,000 or the 800. I forget which one's pension and one's salary. I think it's over 400,000 a year. And then he has a pension of like something like six or 800,000. It's something absurd. Yeah, and, he's uh, grossly overpaid for a public official. Yeah. His I, wife I being a bio the best way to put it. Yeah. Like there's so many con- weird conflicts of interest too. And the sort of like n- sort of weird cauldron of nepotism. If you will. I don't even know if it's called that. I don't know. That's quite the right term, but close enough. It's weird. A lot of open-ended questions. A lot of research needs to be done because it doesn't make a lot of sense. What exactly is the NIH head? What exactly is Anthony Fauci able to do? What exactly happened when he became head of the NIAID in '84? What 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 state was that organization in the NIAID? What was it being threatened? I mean, there's so many questions. So, the but, big one though, as they open that video with, is like, do we see a potential? like throwing Fauci to the wolves. Is that in the cards or what? Because, you know, they do sacrifice their own sometime for the yes, public consumption. I don't know. I really don't have an answer to that one. I've thought about that a lot because we, we have it on the show all the time. Right. I don't think they have a replacement. Like if I'm going down the more conspiratorial side, it's like, well, if he's the big pharma's plant, if you will, they don't really have a reasonable replacement. Maybe Rochelle Lewinsky is sort of being groomed no. for that position, but I know, I know she's <laughs> no. not good enough though. She's, she's not, a, she's not sophisticated enough for the rhetoric. She's not a sophist, but she's not a good sophist. She's a sophist. She's not a good sophist. So she's, she allows actual truth to permeate uh, from her uh, food and sound hole. So, you know, it's just, <laughs> I don't, I don't think they have a replacement. I really don't. And so in this capacity, and also to your point, Daniel, the mentality, the type of psychology of an Anthony Fauci makes it so he doesn't want to even step down at some point though, this could be a grand sacrifice because if the Republicans take back the house and the Senate, I mean, you saw, you know, Jim Jordan and uh, Ron Johnson and the whole contingent of them are ready to bring charges or at least indict them with, uh, you know, some form of conspiracy. I don't know what it'll be on, but it'll be, and I'm not saying anything will come of that, but it certainly will be a, a, a charade. It'll be some sort of, uh, you know, political dog and pony show that'll emerge from it. And it'll be interesting to see what happens and who they bring in, if that actually manifests in that capacity. I don't know. Uh- that's a, a very curious thought, Tony, because um, I think it was on Friday, uh, Tim Cast had uh, a guest on who was a former uh, congressman. And one of the things that he pointed out is when the the party that uh, that you're with is in the um, is without power in Congress. Um, that's when you get to make all of the boisterous claims and, and do the big shows, all the big, uh, you know, uh, performative actions like the Democrats uh, for the, during Trump. Yeah, correct. Correct. But then when you actually manage to regain the power because, you know, the, the public has gotten fed up with what the other party was doing and all their corruption and yada, yada, yada. Um, 
nothing ever comes of, of those big performative actions that you were doing when you were in the minority. That's just how the game is played. Yeah. So it's just to placate your, your constituency. Mm -hmm. A conservative is a Republican who is out of power. (laughs) Well said. A Republican in power is a Democrat. (laughs) (laughs) Or a progressive. Yeah. Of some mentality. This is the lesser lesser spectrum progressive. A neo-prog. The neo-prog. Yeah, there we go. We got to do a whole deep dive on that sometime. But with that, this has been an incredible success tonight. We're actually at 1220. So at this point, I'll probably call it there, but I can't thank you guys enough. This was way beyond what I imagined it would be. Um, the discussion we were able to generate was just absolutely fantastic. And I hope it gave some insight into some of the complexity about uh, just ideas, sharing of like mind, different ideas around complex topics related to what's going on with the COVID narrative or protests or you know, Fauci, whatever we commented on tonight. And how it can extrapolate out to so many different areas. I mean, I think we approach psychology and philosophy and politics and history. And we were just, you know, the tentacles reach into all these different places because it's all sort of interconnected with the human condition. So with that, um, any last thoughts? And uh, why don't we give actually a couple last, well, first of all, let me say, anyone have any last thoughts or comments they want to make about anything related to what we discussed tonight? Uh, just real quick. Thank you so much, Tony, for having me on. And thanks to James and Daniel for being here as well and sharing ideas. And, uh, of course, thanks to, uh, Rich and LD and everybody else who's involved, uh, behind the scenes. This was great to get to be on, uh, GTW. And, um, the only thing that I had that we didn't get to was the course I took on being a vaccine ambassador from Johns Hopkins university, but I have a feeling that that's going to be evergreen and, uh, I'd be happy to come back anytime and tell you all about what I have learned. Actually, I would love that. We wanted to start the show off tonight with that, but I totally, we just got started and totally. It's not, it, I mean, it's not fantastic. And, uh, is it long? Is it long? It's, it's about a two hour course. And okay. it, oh, wow. it is, I would describe it as eerily bad. If, if these are the thought leaders <laughs> on the other side, bad. yeah. Um, you know, it's, it was disappointing. I, w- I was hoping it would be like a little bit higher hanging fruit to, to go mm-hmm. after, but um, there's probably. Find... Okay. I was going to say, maybe we can find something alongside that, like do that and see if there's other courses similar to that to see what can be, um, what we could comment on there. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud because uh, I don't know. If, you know, I haven't found out yet what rather Rich will be back next week yet, but and I don't know if what your schedule is like, but there might be the possibility to come on for an hour and discuss that. I would do that. Okay. And the way I'd like to do it is I'd actually like to put it up against instead of other course material, I'd mm-hmm. like to put it up against a family guy PSA <laughs> that Seth MacFarlane made when he was mad at the other people. At Even Fox. better. Yeah. And I, I found that that was like the best, like one for one comparison of like the quality of information. And wow. I, spoiler alert. I think family guy edges out Johns Hopkins as far as like presenting information in a coherent way. So one be damned. Uh, <laughs> but that's it for me. My website, school sucks And you can learn about the university and my other projects there. 
um, the, the recommendations for GTW listeners, uh, the John Taylor Gatto video series, uh, the series that I did primarily with my friend, Daryl Becker, but also with Tony called, uh, at the end, uh, this is a test where we, you know, did some not seeing eye to eye on this whole thing. Uh, Daryl and I, uh, had a lot of conversations through the early stage of the pandemic, trying to understand what was going on with various aspects of it. And uh, just as far as like narrative and media literacy, I do a series with uh, my friend Nathan Frazier, who's a copy uh, writer and a marketer. And the name of the series is Emotional Manipulators for Hire. And we talk about how through marketing in his case and through teaching in my case, we basically wrote programs and installed them into the heads of people. And uh, it's a lot about how to identify what those programs are and how to unwrite them and discard them and put in new and better and uh, more beneficial programs. Uh, so that's called Emotional Manipulators for Hire. You can find it through School Sucks. And it also is a nice kind of time capsule through the pandemic of like, you know, we're, we're using some kind of current event as like the, the stimuli and riffing on that and trying to build a lesson out of like whatever was happening at the time. So uh, again, thank every thank you so much to to everybody, and uh, I'd love to come back. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, talk about it in the background because maybe next week, depending on Rich doesn't come back, we'll do that, and I might have uh, Senna on to do some deep dives next week as well. So I'm already thinking, but that's only I have to talk to see what's going on with Rich. For those that are interested, before I let you guys go, Richard Grove is supposed to be back in studio next Sunday, but they are currently yeah, he and his family are in Florida, and. Um, they uh it's all depending dependent on the northeastern weather which has been very brutal recently especially up uh, in connecticut where they live uh big snowstorms big problems so i don't know what their schedule looks like originally they told me they'd be back by that sunday i have a feeling that they might get be pulling into the driveway <laughs> conveniently when the, we are getting ready to roll gtw in that capacity but i'm not sure they might be leaving earlier i i have to talk with them and see but richard grove might be back next Sunday. And if not for sure, uh, on this, which would be the 14th, you will be back February 14th. So if not, Brett, you're absolutely, I'd like to have you come back on and talk about that. And I might have Senna come on and do some deep dives. Well, I want to get you guys to do your plugs, uh, as well, James, your blog and where people can find you in Liberty radio and all that stuff. One more time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, first I just want to say, um, thank you to, to everyone tonight for uh, being so gracious. It was awesome, uh, to get to meet Brett and Daniel and, uh, spend a, a couple hours on a Sunday night, uh, just kind of batting ideas around and trying to answer some of these, uh, pressing questions that uh, we find in our lives these days. Um, I would absolutely love to do this again at some point. Uh, had so much fun. Thank you guys for that. Uh, and of course, you know, Tony and LD, uh, but I thank you guys every week on Liberty radio anyway. Uh, but yeah, you can find my stuff, um, on my website, manufacturingreality.org. I put a lot of my writing up there. Uh, I'm also, uh, writing for uh, grand theft world. Uh, and the easiest way to, uh, find that is, uh, on the grand theft world homepage. Uh, just scroll down below the most recent, uh, podcast episodes and you'll find GTW reports. Uh, and that's pretty much, uh, all the stuff, uh, that I produce. Uh, and then of course, uh, the big thing that, uh, I'm most proud of is, uh, grand theft world, Liberty radio. And, uh, we come at you, uh, every week, uh, we record on Monday nights, we publish on Tuesdays. 
uh, and we try to bring you three hours uh, every week of uh, some of the best stories. Um, hopefully, we uh, inject it with a, a good amount of humor, because uh, God knows that uh, we need more of that these days. Uh, but we also bring the uh, the best and uh, usually the newest uh, liberty-oriented uh, music. So uh, everything from Blooded the Brave to uh, Diesel Automatic to folks that I can't even think of right now. Uh, we usually try to get at least 10 to 12 songs a week uh, onto the show uh, of you know folks that... Um, that are making music nowadays that, uh, that we can believe in. Cause unfortunately, uh, a lot of what transpired with uh, COVID clown world is that the people that we used to look up to in the entertainment uh, industry, they kind of revealed, uh, their true colors, uh, through the course of all this. Uh, so I imagine a lot of us have had heroes that have fallen by the wayside in, uh, in the last two years. Uh, but that's kind of what we try to do at Liberty radio is, uh, is fill that gap and uh, point you in the direction uh, of maybe some better people uh, to start putting your uh, your faith and your belief into as far as that's concerned. Uh, but you can find us on Odyssey, Float, uh, Podcast Addict, Pocket Cast, and uh, Reason FM. And as long as you guys keep showing up and listening to it, we'll keep doing it. Awesome. And obviously, you guys are all welcome back on the show anytime. This is, like I said, been way beyond my expectations. The, the, the conversation we were able to generate was exactly... It's not only what I was looking for, but exceeded my expectations. I knew I had sort of a suspicion that it would, but I didn't know how it would go because you guys had never really, Brett and Daniel and I, we all know each other, but James, I was sort of throwing you into the mix. It was perfect. It was, it really went really well. And I, I can't thank you guys enough for participating tonight. And Daniel, I want you to get to uh, plug your uh, website, your book and your podcast all in one. Absolutely. All of my stuff is called Story of Nowhere. The book the podcast and the website. So everything you could find at storyofnowhere.com. And basically throughout those, the book and the podcast being the main two focuses of my work, basically I'm studying the various forms of utopian imagery and ideology and the networks of power which promote and sustain them. So that takes me all throughout history, covering a wide berth of philosophies. So it's a very eclectic presentation of things that I think those of us that come from the sort of tragedy and hope community could benefit from. And uh, you'll notice that there's, there's some overlapping of material, but I of course bring my own kind of my own zhuzh to the whole situation, you know? Um, in fact, I recently figured, uh, finished a series that I think would be of particular interest to people who are around for the tragedy and hope stuff. Uh, it's a three-part series on the origins of the British empire. And I kind of get into the strange, very strange founding myths uh, that surrounded the British Empire back in, let's say, the early 16th century. So I kind of break down into like the history of imperialism and modernism and all that stuff. So I recommend everyone check that out. I'm sure you'll like it, considering you're in this crowd. Um, but also, if you go to storyofnowhere.com, you can find a show that I used to do with Brett. And uh, we also brought on Kevin Cole towards the end of it called In Pursuit of Utopia. That's a good one to listen to. You can find some of those episodes there. I've also got a, a video show that my wife and I were doing for a while last year in which we review issues of the Council on Foreign Relations official journal, Foreign Affairs. So if you want to get us, we, we alternated. We would do the current issue and then we do a historical issue each episode. 
So you can get a little bit of historical context for global relations and then also the sort of current event updates and stuff. So that's also something worth checking out that we did. And I've got a new show coming out as well, uh, in which we, a friend of mine and I review utopian themed movies. So yeah. that's going to be fun. Be uh, but yeah, all of that's going to be available at storyofnowhere.com. And I really, I hope that, I know Tony's been saying this was a very productive conversation and I agree. It was great to meet you, James. And it was great to talk to you again, Brett and Tony. I thought it was a very lucrative conversation and anytime I could make it and anytime you'd be willing to have me, I'd love to come back on. It was a wonderful Yeah, we got to do this again. We got to do this again. I can't, I'll, I need to uh, just lay it out there for the audience. I vouch for your CFR present. I mean, all your presentations have been brilliant. I've listened to podcasts in the past, specifically around the utopian idealism um, and being sort of into classical philosophy and history and stuff of that nature. I can't help it. You, we, we certainly share kinship. We'll have to talk in the background more about that, but uh, you did a private presentation for the autonomy community back in early 2020, when the pandemic first started showing a chain of sort of a, a causal chain of a, a pernicious, ominous chain of CFR articles that were being sort of thrown out there. And uh, not only the titles of the, the journals themselves, but then the like articles within the journals that were showing a very sort of interesting pattern that they were sorting that they were promoting back then. Brett alluded to it a little bit, like you know, China, you know, welding people under their house and it had to do a lot with West democracies bad, China good, China managed the pandemic. The West didn't. And I remember, it, I forget the individual, but when I was helping, when I was living with uh, Rich and his wife, they would, um, so it was an individual part of the Trajan Hill community actually subscribed to the foreign affairs, uh, magazine. And so we get an actual, uh, magazine every month or whenever they did their publishing cycle. And, uh, that was interesting to, uh, to, you know, uh, peruse through because you get, as Rich would always say to me, it's like, oh, this is what's coming for the future. So it's a good sort of like general overview of what the future is going to look like. And that CFR presentation you did was certainly on point, very poignant to their situation. So awesome work. All you guys do such incredible work. And I want to thank you guys again, uh, tonight for joining me. This has been a huge success. I want to have you guys on back again soon. Whenever I essentially, especially when Rich is traveling, let's try to uh, prioritize and see if we can work something out and do this again soon. So, um, that might give more incentive for Rich to take off, which I don't want him necessarily to do. But uh, whenever that does happen, no, you guys will be the first ones I think about. So much appreciated. Um, you guys are welcome to stay on and listen to me drone on about these other various clips. Uh, you also you, you can do whatever. But uh, for now, I'm gonna gonna take it over and try to you know bring the ship home, get it to dock. And I think what I'm gonna do now is we're gonna go to a longer clip. And let's see what we're gonna do. LD, I think let's just go to, I feel like there's something I wanted to watch before that. Oh, there's the monkey stuff. Oh, I wanted to get to that. That would have been such good material to talk about, but we had such a good conversation. We didn't get to the monkeys. Damn. We will get to the monkeys a little bit later. I think for now, kind of want to give myself a little breather for some of the smaller clips. So let's go ahead and go to the Jackson report. And that's the first one on vaccines, lockdowns, and therapeutics. And we'll let sort of Jeffrey Jackson cover the gamut of news re related to everything from vaccines, lockdowns, and therapeutics. And I'll come back to the to the monkeys because that's that's entertaining. 
I mean, not entertaining. It's, it's very sort of ominous and portentous, but there's a little bit of humor that you can extricate from that very strange situation that happened near Danville, Pennsylvania, probably like two and a half, three hours away from where I'm at and like six or so away from where Brett's at. So, but uh, hopefully I covered long enough for LD to bring that up and got that up. LD. Yep. Got it ready to go. Ooh, there awesome. we go. Thanks for there joining us guys. If, if you're still there. All right. By the way, great work LD. You're the real MVP of the show. Cause uh, I don't know what the hell we do. So uh, shout everyone, the rock fin chat, giving the shout outs, rock fin, YouTube, <laughs> Twitch. LD is the one he's like the lifeblood of the show. Yeah. Rich may be the brains and you know, I don't even know how I fit into this very stitched together analogy, but we all, we all do our analogy. unique parts. Oh man. Okay. Let's play this. Let's, let's play go. this clip. Uh, well, I've been talking too much. It's time for the Jackson Report. All right, Jeffrey, you got to say, I probably had 100 people ask me, you know, if, if you were out there in D.C., so you better get to the next <laughs> one. Uh, just, apparently, okay. I'm just not a good replacement. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you have a better voice than I do, that's for sure. Well, <laughs> it's good to see you, Dell, and uh, great job there in D.C. I was glued to the screen the whole time, taking notes and, and uh, posting on, on the Highwire's website there. You can check out our news section. You always have some updates. But, you know, let's let's look to the north. We have a lot of stuff going on here in America, but in Canada... They have some stuff going on as well. And their prime minister, Justin Trudeau, appears to be fighting a losing battle against what is shaping up to be one of the largest protests in Canadian history as he tries to convince people that it's a fringe event. Take a look. The small fringe minority. Wow, this is a huge look at they go forever. Of people who are on their way to Ottawa who are uh, holding unacceptable uh, views uh, that they're expressing do not represent the views of Canadians who have been there for each other, who know that following the science and stepping up to protect each other is the best way to continue to ensure freedoms, our rights, our values as a country. I think you'd have to be absolutely in a coma to not be aware of what's happening up there in Canada. It's everywhere, all over my social media. Uh, it's, it's, at, it's so inspiring to see what's happening, especially after all the reporting we've had over the last two years of just feeling like Canada really just did in some ways, as Trudeau said, just seem to just keep complying as was their nature. But it is obvious now that they've hit the breaking point and Canada has had enough. And you can look at any social media account here, and there are people are really telling the story here with the live streams. It reminds me a lot of what happened with Vaxxed. When that happened, a lot the media is blacking it out for the most part or telling yeah. an untrue narrative. And you have people posting 
or embedded in the convoys going to Ottawa. But let's bring people up to speed here okay. about what exactly was happening. So at, even at the beginning of this month, there was a rumor that the uh, Canadian government would be implementing vaccine passports for cross-border truckers. Their supply chain had already been hampered by the restrictions and lockdowns, the really strict ones at that over the last couple of years. So loads needed to be delivered. Truckers were told that, you know, if this thing does come down in the middle of the, in the, middle of the month in January, that the truckers that were going out, because the supply chain's always going, they would be exempt when they come back in. So what that led to, the messaging change last minute led to, led to some mass confusion here. And this is what the headlines look like as this thing started to come in. Mass confusion amid changing messaging on trucker vaccine mandate. So what happened is the truckers were then told they were forced to quarantine. So they went back kind of on that promise on these truckers. So this is that headline here at the middle of the month. Unvaccinated Canadian truckers will have to quarantine under new mandate, feds say. And here's the headline on January 15th. Canada's COVID-19 vaccine mandate now in effect for cross-border truck drivers. So this is kind of really where it started. And, you know, here in the U.S., we saw the police. We saw the firefighters, we saw the airline unions, all of these unions at one point or another stuck up for their members when these vaccine mandates came down. They fought mm -hmm. for them. They tried to negotiate. Here we have in Canada, the Canadian Trucking Alliance, and they put out a statement uh, uh, regarding these, these protests the, uh, the truckers are doing currently. And it says this, the government of Canada and the United States have now made being vaccinated a requirement to cross the border. This regulation is not changing. So as an industry, we must adapt to comply with this mandate, said CTA President Stephen Leskowski. The only way to cross the border in a commercial truck or any other vehicle is to get vaccinated. So basically, resistance is futile. You might as well just you might as well just uh, go along with it and kind of just shut up. And that's not what's happening. And you also have premieres. We have the premier of Alberta. Uh, this is Jason Kenney. He took to Twitter to show some pictures. Uh, looks a lot like what's happening in the U.S. here, too. I'm getting pictures, wow. he says, like this from grocery stores across Alberta this morning. This is turning into a crisis. It requires immediate action by the Canadian and the U.S. governments. He goes on to say, I'm on the phone with the U.S. governors this morning who share my concerns. We're working on a joint letter to the president and the prime minister urging them to use common sense and the policy that has taken thousands thousands of trucks off the road. And, you know, in Canada, kind of much like the US, uh, the, the media still is a blockade for some information. So you get the yeah. op-eds, the opinion articles where you get some of the real voices that come through like this one right here. This was Trudeau uses trucker protests as political weapon. So Trudeau's basically saying, be angry at these people, these truckers who are protesting because they're keeping us locked down. They're the ones uh, that, that are causing the food shortages. But as it says in this article, it reads, even before the Trudeau government brought in the mandate on January 15th that requires truckers crossing the border to be vaccinated, Canada was short 23,000 truck drivers. The lack of drivers brought about by tough working conditions and at times onerous regulations may have existed before the mandate, but this mandate is making things worse. It goes on to say the Canadian Trucking Alliance, those are the people we just read that quote from, has stated that about 85% of its drivers are vaccinated, while around 15% of the 120,000 Canadian drivers who cross the border regularly are not. This means roughly 18,000 drivers can't deliver or pick up loads in the United States, which means fewer drivers at a time when demands demand is high for shipments. And Dell, we're going to do some basic math here. One okay. plus one equals two. And here we go. This is the headline just yesterday. 
Bank of Canada says food price increase to outpace inflation. You wow. don't say, well, I wonder why that could be. Uh, and speaking of the media in Canada, if you're looking to the, you know, what do we want to call it? Corporate media. This is the headlines you're getting. Hundreds of truckers headed to Ottawa in Freedom Rally. Convoy against vaccine mandate. Hundreds. Okay. Well, yeah. I contacted some of these truckers. I contacted some of the point people that um, I was told, you know, there's not really a, a, a single head organizer. This is kind of a distributed um, uh, distributed event. There's a yeah. leaders in every a, a province and, and so on and so forth. And they weren't, no one was really interested in jumping at a, a media conversation. They said, look, we're kind of we're, we're insulating from the media because you know they are being attacked, but they did put out a press release. And I'd like to read that here, some points on that. This was just yesterday night, it says here, this was on their Facebook account. You can go see this on Truckers Convoy. It says, on January 15th, a small team of Alberta truckers, their family members and friends came to the decision that the government of Canada has crossed the line with implementing COVID-19 vaccine passport and vaccine mandates. As of today, we have the support of millions of Canadians from across the country. In one week, we have managed to raise four $4.4 million in donations, although our initial convoy estimated to be 1,600 trucks. That number significantly increased to 36,000 trucks in just a few days. It is now estimated that the number of heavy trucks heading to Ottawa is closer to 50,000. Now, the question remains, what are they going to do when they get there? Well, here's their list of demands in this press release. Number one, the federal and provincial governments terminate the vaccine passports and all other obligatory vaccine contract tracing programs or inter-Canada passport systems. Number two, terminate COVID vaccine mandates and respect the rights of those who wish to remain unvaccinated. Number three, cease the divisive rhetoric attacking Canadians who disagree with government mandates. And finally, cease to limit debate through coercive measures with the goal of censoring those who have varying or incorrect opinions. Sounds a lot like some of the messaging we have here. Now, this weekend, weather permitting, uh, cl road closures permitting, they're expected to kind of converge in Ottawa, that is the capital city of uh, Canada. That's also the office of the Prime Minister Trudeau is also in Ottawa. And wow. there's uh, allegedly a press conference that's going to be held at that point, perhaps an, uh, a rally there with everybody. But the world's watching to see what happens at this point. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. And, you know, it's, you know, when you read like those list of demands, they're perfect. I mean, they're really perfect. It's exactly what should be being requested all the way down to an open discussion on this, which is what, you know, now, and we're talking about truckers. We're talking about guys and, and, and women that, you know, are really entrepreneurs. I think when, when I look at it, I think one of the beauties of the sort of trucking is a lot of these people, they don't work regularly, they sort of own their own truck. They're invested mm -hmm. in that, that experience. So, you know, when they're making these decisions, you said there's like no head of this thing. Well, it really makes sense. These are, you know, independent businesses, individuals, 50,000 of them now lined up on a highway stacked end to end as far as can be seen for mile upon mile upon mile. Um, it's it's inspiring and it just shows where what this has all come to. And, and the underpinning of this, Jeffrey, just, it just can't be lost. It's certainly not lost mm -hmm. on any high wire viewer, but the underpinning that I think is now in the awareness of everyone on this planet is the vaccine doesn't stop infection. It doesn't stop right. transmission. Those that made it are telling us, yeah, basically you're going to catch Omicron and you're going to have to learn to live with it. So why in God's name are we still forcing this failure? product on anybody and then destroying you know the the jobs and and the food supply and for us our healthcare workers and the ability
ability for people to take care of us and to fill our shelves with food. Um, it's an outrage. And I think slowly but surely, this is what is truly growing our movement. And we must continue to remember. And I want to, I want to really recognize, because we're going to talk in a minute about all of the news that sort of came at me and attacked me over this march. So I know that there are people watching today that may be watching the high wire for the first time. Maybe you got one of the vaccines and just didn't have a reaction that you liked, or maybe you got two and thought you'd done your job. But then when they started saying a third was what you needed to get, you said, wait a minute, hold on. That's not what I was promised. Maybe you've gotten a third and you hear the, you know, the writing on the wall, watching Israel go towards a fourth. It doesn't matter where you are coming from. Every one of us that is, you know, part of this conversation at one point has had a wake up moment. Many had injuries to their children years ago or from this vaccine right now. What we want you to know is all we care about is the truth. We believe we're all brothers and sisters here in this conversation, that the science, just as was stated by the demands of those truckers, must be a debate. We cannot allow it to be seized. It cannot be monopolized, certainly not by someone like Tony Fauci, who has never treated a single person in his life for any ailment. He is not a doctor. He is a bureaucrat. The doctors should be making these decisions, which is why the upcoming um, discussion around the Senate hearing will be so impactful. But for those of you joining us for the first time, welcome home and welcome to this conversation. Yes. And you mentioned the science, Dell. The science, if you look at it, it's certainly not settled. And the data is telling a different story. So let's stay in Canada, Alberta, Canada, for that matter. And let's look at their public health authority. They put out some data that looked like this. This is from the Alberta Public Health uh, COVID-19 statistics. And they have uh, specifically from this page. Now, this is a web archive page. Why is this web archived? Because these three graphs I'm, I'm about to show you are no longer there. They were taken down by the government. This first one is Alberta's public health cases. Now, these are the number of days between the first immunization and the date of a COVID-19 diagnosis. There's the cases. Now, notice as we go through these graphs, uh, there's something that sticks out. Now, the next one we're going to look at is hospitalizations. Again, these are no longer online. Hospitalizations, same kind of shape. So there, the bottom of line, between... so the total hospitalizations is that line going up, the vertical line on the left, and below is the amount of days since being vaccinated that we're either seeing infection rates or, or things like that. So here I can see inside, if I'm reading this correctly, just while everyone's looking at this, when I see that 20, it looks like the body of issues that's happening um, in this case, uh, total hospitalizations, really, it's just it's it's gigantic for that first 20 days and then seems to drop off. Is that how we're supposed to read that? Correct. Yes. Okay. That's, oh, that's exactly good. that's exactly what it's showing. And these were interactive maps, so you could, uh, when they were available, you can hover over those, and they would give you the exact numbers of every little data point on there. And okay. now we go to deaths. Finally, the deaths uh, shaping up looks like the same thing. Zero to twenty days is really wow. where that big spike is there. Um, so it's even like that, I would someone... guess that spike, if you rolled over, it would be right around fourteen days. It looks like right. Just just it's just more than halfway. Uh, to the 20 there for that super big yeah. spike, just as a, you know, just pointing that out. Okay. Just shy of 20. Absolutely. Yeah. So what, uh, what someone did this, this gentleman's name is Joe Smalley. He's a, he's a data analyst, uh, analyst, uh, quantitative analytics is a specialty 25 years in the capital markets, uh, for risk management and trading. That was a specialty. He took this data before it was taken down, broke it down. He has a sub stack. 
and he published this article at Substack. Alberta just inadvertently confessed to fiddling with the COVID vaccine vaccination stats. Now let's look at some of his charts that he created from those charts that are no longer there, from the data that's no longer there in Alberta. And this is the first chart we're gonna look at is hospitalizations. Now, if you look here at the bottom, we have a percentage of hospitalizations on the left column and across the bottom, we have the number of days. We have one through 14, that line is shaded dark, uh, one day through 14 days, 47.6%. Now, Del, remember, zero to 14 days after your first vaccination, you are still considered unvaccinated. You were unvaccinated in the trials, right. labeled unvaccinated in the Pfizer trials. You're also labeled unvaccinated in the US data and in Canadian data and Alberta. So what he's showing here is bombshell. He's saying that 47.6% of hospitalizations after people received their first vaccination were chucked into the unvaccinated category. Now, so to be clear, it, let me, so we, the, we, the people can get confused with this. What you're saying is we are looking at all of the vaccinated that end up in the hospital. This isn't a vaccinated versus unvaccinated graph. It's showing that all of the vaccinated that end up in the hospital, 50% of them were, or for, what is that, 47.6% of those vaccinated that end up in hospital, you know, were in there um, hospitalized before or, or by the 14 days in. So inside of that first 14 days is where that really climbs up. Okay, is that... Correct. Right. Okay. Diagnosed with COVID-19. That's Diagnosed. the other aspect of this. Okay, great. Yes. So now we go into the next one. And this one should really be the most shocking one. These are the ones, the deaths. So okay. we have here over 50, uh, over 50%, 55.6% of the deaths attributed to COVID-19 after the first vaccination and the 14 days were put in the unvaccinated category. That, that should be across so more every than half of their deaths that should have been reported as vaccinated, having died after, you know, from COVID ends up in the unvaccinated category. So let's remember that, that not only is that a shift where it comes out of their column, it's added to the column of unvaccinated. So that 55% in sense doubles in its power when it's taken away from one and then added to the other. It doesn't just go across, it doesn't just get subtracted, it's added. And so there you can see how they obviously, and what we're talking about, right, is this pandemic of the unvaccinated uh, yes. languaging that, that, that was being pushed on us here in Canada and all around the world. Right. And we're continuing to deconstruct this. Now, let's finally look at cases. Joe Smalley looked at the cases as well. And this one was 39.4% of cases were put in the unvaccinated category. Uh, again, inflating the numbers, allowing them to say this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And what does this all mean? Well, let's look at this headline because this tells the whole story. This is anti-vax Olympic gold medalist Sylvester Solani dies of COVID age 51. He was a Hungarian gymnast, won the gold in 2000. And it says here, Budapest newspaper Blick has reported that Solani fell ill in December and was put on a ventilator in the hospital before passing away on 24th of January. While Solani had, according to the publication, expressed anti-vaccination views on social media, the six-time world championship medalist had been vaccinated to allow him to continue to work as a gymnast coach. However, he contracted the virus soon after he received the jab. So what that means, he would have been thrown into the unvaccinated category for cases, unvaccinated category for hospitalizations, and then perhaps even the unvaccinated category for deaths. And this is how this plays out. And they couldn't right. even give him 
they they called him anti-vax in the headline, even though he had the shot because he wanted to continue to be a coach. This is it's not only sad to to see this and to report this, but the 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 breathtaking amount of data manipulation here has to be continually pointed out. And it's something that is amazing you're, that we're seeing this data come out now because we've been showing, we've been like sort of tracking in our own way, looking at data where we were sort of starting to really hone in on this idea. We've talked about it several weeks now that this, the vaccinated that are dying and are getting sick are, you know, being thrown into the unvaccinated category, which throws the entire thing out of whack. And now this is really, really powerful evidence of that. Right. Now, let's head over. Let's stay with the same theme. Let's head okay. over to Germany. Now, if you remember, in November of this year, Germany had some of the tightest restrictions they implemented on unvaccinated citizens. Uh, if you Just a reminder, this is the headline out here. Germany set to tighten rules for unvaccinated as COVID cases rise. This is right at the beginning of the Omicron variant. Uh, now that false narrative is unraveling. So we have a headline like this. This was uh, translated. This is Chencher. He's uh, Peter Chencher, the mayor of Hamburg, Regrets, quote, uncertainties caused by incorrect vaccination statistics. So they've been caught and now they're trying to really unravel this thing and make it look like it wasn't a big deal. It says here, wow. Corona infections with unclear vaccination status were attributed to the unvaccinated in Hamburg for weeks. Hamburg's mayor is now announcing clarifications and speaking of a, quote, use of different IT systems. Uh, Chencher had stated at the time in question that up to 95% of new infections were due to unvaccinated people. Those numbers were used to lock down unvaccinated people in Hamburg, the second largest city in Germany, almost 2 million people. Now, they were saying they're using different IT systems, but there was also perhaps flying blind the whole time. This is another article. This was translated from German uh, a German publication, incidents in Hamburg, vaccination status of those infected is often unclear. It says, this is shocking. In most cases, the Hamburg social authorities actually do not know whether someone is vaccinated or not. At the end of November, that's when those restrictions went in, in the 47th calendar year, it was not clear in almost 70% of the corona cases whether the infected person was vaccinated or not. Nevertheless, they were counted in the group of the unvaccinated. Even with the hospitals, the information is incomplete. The vaccination status of at least one third of all hospital patients cannot be specified. And here we have the health minister coming out and he's having to kind of even, uh, he's, he's kind of called the Tony Fauci of uh, of Germany. Health Minister, oppressive COVID measures for the unvaccinated were based on a software error, claims German Gee minister. Whiz. Man. These are bombshell. I mean, and, bombshell. and what we must always remember, because a lot of what we do here on the high wires look at data internationally, mostly because our data in America, unfortunately, even though we're the home of Microsoft and we're the home of Apple, we have the most corrupted data. We have the most difficulty getting to the data that moves out slower than everyone else's data. And so as we continue to see these headlines, I still see news anchors saying 95 percent of the cases are unvaccinated, even though we watched. Uh, what was it? Um, uh, I forget, was it Maryland or, or one of those states in, up around Connecticut that had this huge spike in vaccinated people in the hospital? But no matter the case, we know that if Canada is doing this and we're seeing this issue in Germany, that the vaccine and is having these issues and people are getting sick, they're being hospitalized. We're all the same people. We may live in different places, but we all have two arms, two legs. You know, it's the same vaccine we're using everywhere in all these populations, whether it's Pfizer or Moderna, everyone's using the same. You know, I guess it's still four vaccines. So it's impossible to wrap your head around the fact that the data in Germany would be completely different than the data in America or that the data just across our border 
border, a line you don't actually see out there on the land makes a difference, but, you know, is different than the data that we're getting here in America. So it really makes you have to take pause that in what is supposed to be the greatest nation in the world, transparent with its people, still appears to be, you know, involved in the same lie that these other nations are now starting to have to admit to. And you're hoping there's an outlier here somewhere, but as we dig and dig, it, it, it's the same story over and over. Yeah. Over the last couple of weeks, we reported uh, about what's called negative vaccine efficacy out mm -hmm. of the UK's public health data, meaning basically that the the if you get a vaccine, you have a greater chance of uh, having a COVID case, negative vaccine efficacy. Yes. Well, we have new numbers out of Scotland that this is, again, this is directly from their public health authorities, the government numbers. Uh, Scotland is showing that in spades. So let's check this out. Let's okay. look at the numbers. It's pretty cut and dry. Scotland Omicron restrictions uh, to end on, on Monday, says Nicola Sturgeon. So they ended, this is the headline here, sorry. They ended their restrictions just about a week ago um, out of nowhere. And, and they've been very strict. Look, I mean, Scotland was like one of the strictest enforcers of, I mean, they were the vaccine passports were coming. They were locking people down. I mean, they really went kind of hog wild on the whole lockdown thing and pandemic. Yeah. And right. right after the UK announced they were going to kind of open back up or ease some of the restrictions, Scotland jumped in there, did the same thing. And you got to wonder, right. those are the two countries uh, that were really showing this negative vaccine efficacy. So yeah. let's go back to that Scotland data. This is Public Health Scotland COVID-19 uh, winter statistical report. Now, what this is showing, we're going to show a couple tables here, but this is showing age standardized. So it's age standardized, meaning you're not going to have outliers. And you can't argue and say, well, this was just old people driving up the numbers, or this was just young people making the numbers lower. This is a, this is standard acro standardized across all the ages. So we're about to show, this is the cases the case rate per 100 thousand individuals by week in vaccination status so the first chart here we have some circles on it okay. um, on the top of the first chart these are the unvaccinated okay. so we have some numbers starting at the top says 540.82958.52 so the dates are off the so left so everybody 18th of december through the 24th and the 25th and third first so this is you see the dates and then in this column the middle column age standardized cases so it's per 100,000 so 540 per yes. 100,000 uh, around December 18th that rose to 958 cases per 100,000 in December 923 per 100,000 in and uh, in in January and then at the end of January it sort of dropped down to 412 per 100,000 right and if you take that first line now so you look at the the beginning of the December the first yeah. really column there it's 540.82 you follow that across to the second circled number this is after the first dose we went from unvaccinated to one dose that rose to 780.31 so wow. we went from 540 per hundred thousand to set roughly 780 per hundred thousand now we go uh, around christmas we have unvaccinated 958.52 the first dose that rose to 1409.70 and it's like this across the board uh january 1st 2022 we have 923.27 that goes to almost 1400 with 1393.46 and then the most recent update here, 412.77 on the unvaccinated goes to 543.98. So I mean, every it, one of those. It's so important to point out here, Jeffrey, because we, when we look at numbers, you know, we're not used to it. 
you know, we hear this mantra, well, it's because more people are vaccinated that more people are, are getting, you know, having breakthrough cases or getting sick or whatever the case may be. But this is per 100,000. This gets rid of this argument. Even if there's a smaller group of unvaccinated, it's in that group. It's per 100,000, 400 per 100,000. In this larger group of the vaccine, if it is larger, it's still per 100,000 that the rates are going up. So clearly this shows us unequivocally that the vaccinated are getting infected more, that somehow it's it's helping them get infected compared to those that didn't receive that first dose of the vaccine. It's out. And, and, and again, when we talked about this before, we've been pulling the data ourselves, right, and trying to, you have to kind of break it down or articles are doing that. This isn't an article. This isn't a journalist. This isn't some mathematician that's pulled this data. They're literally just printing from the health department. Here's the facts, Jack. Vaccinated yeah. people are yeah. getting sick at higher rates. And another way to frame that, perhaps, uh, is because this is still unsettled science, is the vaccine is driving these cases to a to a greater degree than the unvaccinated. Yeah. Now, that was only dose one. Let's okay. look at dose two versus the unvaccinated. So this is the second chart here. Same kind of format, same timeline, same dates. We have that 540.82 on that yeah. first line. After the second dose, we're jumping up to 13, uh, 128.29. And then around Christmas, we have 958.52 in the unvaccinated. Now we're jumping up to 2,551.91 wow. uh, 1st of so January. We're more this than year. doubled now. The one shot was like, it was like, you know, it was, it was like another maybe third is, you know, on top of it. But this is literally more than doubling the amount of infected now once you've had two shots. Unbelievable. Right. And, and, and you can see it all the way down. It's it's yeah. it's larger by by at least a doubling, and it's for all the way up to uh, January fourteenth, twenty twenty two. And this is what their their information is saying. So this is still on the website um, as as of this broadcast. I don't right. know if they're going to take this down. We have the screenshots. We have the information. You can sign up to our newsletter and get this information sent to you directly into your inbox on Monday. But it's interesting because we're we're sitting back looking at this. I know you and I have talked, Dell and the team. Yeah. Why? What are they? What are they doing here? Why are they doing this? Is this maybe why Scotland just pulled the restrictions out of nowhere in the UK? Well, we have uh, we have their Prime Minister Sturgeon saying, "Well, these restrictions were worth it." So the sh she's trying to frame the narrative now. So they stopped the restrictions, but COVID in Scotland restrictions impact worth it, says Sturgeon. So she's saying like all of these lockdowns, all of these issues that it's caused, it was really worth it, and we're going to back off it now. But we really did a good job. It almost sounds like she's trying to save her job to me. That's just that's just yeah, a, a thought. We're going to see a lot of that. Here's my thought, you know, as the, you know, that when we started seeing Boris Johnson saying it's over, I'm shutting all the lockdowns, all the masking, it's all over. He, you know, we were saying he's running for the hills and people saying, oh, it's a setup. You know, he really, and, and look, maybe it is, we, we're, we're still investing. We'll keep our eyes on it. But here's what I think, you know, possibly, here's, here's a theory. I mean, I want to be clear with my audience. When we, we just showed you a bunch of facts. Now we're going to get into a little theory here, which means it's just an idea. It can't be proven, but maybe it rings true for you. It seems to me that if you are a world leader, that you, you know, get convinced by your health department that we should lock down because people would die and there's going to be this great vaccine coming. And frankly, even if you didn't really like, do we really need to, I mean, lock down? I mean, it looks like it has a pretty low death rate. Maybe they say to those people that are a little bit smarter than your average bear, look, 
Yeah, we're pushing a little bit harder than we should, but the truth is, is we really need everybody vaccinated in order to make them healthier people. It's for the greater good. So just get behind us and push this, this pandemic with us. Really push against any other drugs that could possibly end this nightmare for anyone because, you know, that will get in the way of our getting this vaccine out as emergency youth authorization, as we pointed out, can't be authorized as an emergency if there's already products that work. So let's push those aside. And you can see the useful idiots. I mean, I don't believe these are the evil people. They're looking at the agenda of, well, it'll be for the greater good. We'll have a product. We'll get it funded. And then we'll be able to save the world. What happens when you play this game? You've absolutely, you know, compromised your own value system, but you did it because the end game will be a great vaccine that you were promised. And now all of a sudden the data is coming in and you're sitting there as Boris Johnson say, what did you just tell me? Wait a minute. Did you just tell me that the vaccine that I locked everybody down to wait for, the vaccine unicorn you promised me was going to come and save the day, that it's actually making people get infected? It's actually driving the pandemic, not stopping it, not protecting it, but actually driving the pandemic? Is that what you're telling me? Uh, It appears that that's the case. All right, that's it. I don't care who funds me. I don't care about pharma. I don't care about the health department. I am going to go down. This is a political suicide if I stand behind this now. Hopefully, if I just open this up, get people back to their lives, they'll forget what I did to them for the last two years because you promised me we were going to have a working vaccine. I mean... To me, that's like the Occam's razor perspective right here. That's the simplest Mm -hmm. way I can describe why Boris Johnson and why, you know, Scotland and other nations are just dropping everything and immediately out of nowhere. Pandemic craziness one week and the next week. It's all over. Moving on. Got to learn to live with it. Right. Right. And it makes you wonder, what about the countries that are pushing the boosters in the face of this? Uh, What's going on there? Where where are they? Where where is their head? In the United States here, we have our our hands full with some court battles, uh, along with what's happening kind of with the protests. But if you remember from about a week or so ago, we reported the breaking news on the Supreme Court. This was the Biden mandate that was struck down there. Supreme Court blocks Biden vaccine or test mandate for large private companies. This was through OSHA. Well, just uh, recently, we got a call from our lawyer, Aaron Siri that helps us out at the Informed Consent Action Network. And yeah. he asked if he'd like us to withdraw that. Why is that? Because of this headline, OSHA withdraws its workplace vaccine rule. So the Supreme Court struck that down and OSHA just withdrew it. So right. now that, that does not mean uh, we're talking all of them. So this there's there's a lot of them happening here. So that doesn't affect the military. That doesn't right. affect the CMS, uh, Centers for Medicare Services, healthcare workers, or the uh, federal contractors. The federal contractors are on pause at this point from an injunction from a Texas judge. But this is just the OSHA mandate. But that, right, that, let me, let me just latest. jump in here really quick for the audience that's brand new. You may not know this, but not only are we a news network, we have a legal team and we sue to get to the truth. We also sue for people's rights. Uh, the sort of like the activist side, I guess, if you will, of what we do. We had one of the cases that was up before the Supreme Court. Um, we had a car dealership that was c- complaining that because they had 100 employees and had to vaccinate them, that they were going to lose employees to smaller uh, car dealerships that didn't have that mandate. And therefore it was unfair. That was sort of the case that Aaron Siri was running for us. It was still piled in, even though they only chose a couple of cases, not ours to rule upon. The ruling affected our case. But for everyone, you're thinking, well, it feels like it was already over. Remember that that first case in front of the Supreme Court was simply for the stay to say, we want you to just uphold, like stop, stop the, in, you know, the, the mandate from beginning while this case is figured out in court. And the mm-hmm. Supreme Court then upheld that stay and 
said, we will not let this go forward until we've decided in court, which meant there was still a court case to be had on all these cases. But President Biden, the administration just then, as we're now reporting, said we're pulling the entire case for OSHA. The OSHA mandate is over. It is, there's nothing left to decide. They've decided that that stay signaled that the Supreme Court was never going to rule in their favor. So this is, this is over. This part of it's done. Will they bring it through some other, you know, avenue or what? Perhaps. But what we know is this is a complete and total victory now in the Supreme Court on the issue of the mandate of vaccines for everyone, every employer with at least 100 employees. So it's, it's certainly a celebration for all those people that work at large companies. Absolutely. And it's it's happy to report this because a lot of people have been working on this behind the scenes. And speaking of Aaron Siri, he has his hands full now. Um, if you'll remember, he was working on behalf of an organization called Public Health and Medical Professionals for Transparency. And they were yeah. behind this headline out of Reuters about a judge, uh, paramount importance, said the judge, judge orders FDA to hasten release of Pfizer vaccine docs. So they brought a lawsuit uh, with Aaron seeking all the documents that the FDA relied upon to license Pfizer's COVID shot. The right. FDA came back, and this is just a quick background. The yeah. FDA came back and said, we can only produce 500 pages a month. Um, hundreds of thousands of pages existed. So that would put the timeline basically to about 2076 for the full release. The right. judge ruled against that here and said, you were you to give 55,000 pages a month starting March 1st. Right. Well, here is the update in that case. So, okay. This is direct. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, this is uh, directly out of uh, Reuters again. Pfizer intervenes. Uh, Pfizer pushes to intervene in lawsuits seeking COVID vaccine information from FDA. Um, Aaron himself wrote at his Substack here. Similar, he wrote kind of a behind the scenes. If you really want to read about this, FDA asked the court to delay first 55,000 page production until May and Pfizer moves to intervene in the lawsuit. So Pfizer's asking to come in as a third party um, it assured the court that it's only here to help. It's only here to expedite the process. But this is a pretty incredible situation. I mean, we were told that these regulatory agencies are separate from these pharmaceutical companies. And here, when the when the chips are really down and transparency is about to come out, you see Pfizer swooping in. So their the lawyers are moving in, basically saying to the Department of Justice, hold my beer, get out of my way. We are the parent company. I think proving overall who's zooming who. Clearly, Pfizer's in control of our government, not our government in control of Pfizer. They're literally just pushing the Department of Justice lawyers aside and saying, we're bringing our own lawyers to fight this now. Uh, this is a case with the FDA. What in the hell is the Pfizer bringing their lawyers to deal with a case with our government? I mean, this is, if ever there was proof of what we've been arguing, that this is a captured agency, it would be that that capturer brings in their lawyers to protect them. Right. And understand one of the main arguments from the FDA, meaning that they couldn't or the reasoning that they gave that they couldn't produce these documents fast enough. is because they didn't have the staff. Well, Pfizer's lawyers are going to cost so much money that they could hire the extra staff <laughs> to bring these to bring these documents out. So it really doesn't make sense. And you add to that, um, the U.S. government is mandating Pfizer's products, as Aaron writes, it's giving immunity to the safety uh, yeah. of the, the product and so on and so forth. It's marked marketing it. And so now they're representing it in court against basically just transparency. This is how hard it is to get transparency in the American uh, regulatory system on unvaccinated products here. Amazing. I, my understanding is Aaron's going to court on this tomorrow. Boy, that's uh, yes. 
uh, to be a fly on the wall of that court. Um, amazing, amazing yeah. circumstances. And, and I look, we've got the I, I feel confident. I think we've got the best lawyer in the world, the best constitutional lawyer. I think he'll pick his teeth with the Pfizer lawyers. Um, but uh, we'll see how it turns out. And of course, if you want to hear about it first, what do you have to do? Sign up to our newsletter at thehighwire.com. Uh, I mean, this is it. Don't you want to know what's going on? You hang at the edge of your seat. Uh, Aaron will post it here first, whatever the results are, before you'll even see it on the high wire. We'll make sure those of you that are committed enough to receive the data and information that we share here, we'll make sure you get that, that breaking news as soon as it happens. All right. All right, well, Jeffrey. Dal, amazing, so amazing work. You continue to astound me with how much you can crunch together in a couple of days. And uh, we're so thankful to have you. Really got to make sure you get out to the next rally. Uh, I wish you all could have been there. I wish my whole staff could have been there. But instead, they were here making sure and you were making sure that the updates kept going to the website and the broadcast was going out. So to my team, sacrificing being a part of the, one of the, the greatest parties like Woodstock out there. I want to thank my team for providing uh, the live stream um, that has been you know, congratulated by, by the way, the senators and the people that were involved in that hearing. So thankful of the quality of the stream that's coming out through the high wire. We'll continue to do that at these rallies. If you want the best visuals, if you want the best link in the streaming and know that it's always going to be there, make sure that you go to thehighwire.com. Jeffrey, thank you so much for your work. I'll see you next week. Okay. Thanks, Dell. All right. That was phenomenal. I actually hadn't watched that yet this week. Um, Seeing the data come out the way it has, first in Alberta, Canada, Hamburg, Germany, and Scotland about, and this is something that we commented on last week about the, the BMJ, the British Medical Journal came out, and Peter Doshi stated that it's hard to get the raw data so other people can crunch the numbers outside of those who have invested interest uh, in this. Um, and seeing the spike in COVID cases associated within the you know 14 day or just beyond that period of being vaccinated is wildly interesting because we had presented this on the show a oh my goodness at least a month or two probably two months ago but this real quick let me just give some context to this cumulative analysis of post authorization adverse event reports of pf etc for the BioNTech um the uh, vaccine uh, received through February 20th, 2021. Now, what's interesting about this is when you look at one of the adverse reactions that's associated with this report, let me see if I can pull this up, VAED. So everyone talks about AD, antibody-dependent enhancement, and that's certainly one that's also, I believe, recognized on this report. Um, but VAED is something that people aren't quite aware of, but this is a vaccine-associated enhanced disease which is fascinating. So I don't quite know. Let's see if they have a definition somewhere. Vaccine-associated enhanced disease, including vaccine-associated enhanced respiratory disease. So there's VAED and VAERD. Now the vaccine is producing the spike that causes the disease, um, COVID-19. It would stand to reason that it's, uh, th that in fact, the uh, vaccine could potentially, especially as it's producing the spike in the body, would then people would test positive and you'd have higher rates of people testing positive for essentially the disease. 
and potentially higher. And But what's even more troubling is seeing this strong correlation between those testing positive, becoming infected supposedly, and then mortality. That is extremely ominous to what this uh, experimental gene therapy is actually doing. So when I look at you know this release of information in regards to adverse reactions, and one of them, important potential risks on table three is considered vaccine-associated enhanced disease and vaccine-associated, uh, sorry, I was looking at my vaccine-associated enhanced respiratory disease. Well, again, I get to this, I owe it to some subromite at this point, but this self-fulfilling prophecy, it's like you're producing, you're telling the body cells, body cells to produce the spike and have an antibody response to the specific spike that causes the disease itself. And it's doing so at an alarming rate. And it's actually uh, going all over the body that we're going to, you're going to see very soon. Cause I'm going to play a segment from the panel that Ron Johnson had on January 24th with all those doctors including Robert Malone and Pierre Corey and McCullough, so forth and so on, talk about this issue, about how it moves throughout the body, how there's a number of studies associated with this. It doesn't stay at the injection site. And so it's getting to other areas that it shouldn't, and those cells are then producing the spike and it's getting confused and the body's attacking itself, such as the heart, the reproductive system, so forth and so on. So to see this admission and now to see it sort of being played out in these studies, this is what's interesting about the international studies. I'm putting myself back on camera here. The international... so. You know, I've had friends try to present evidence from like state health departments or the CDC, for example, in America. But we can't, as Peter, Do as the BMJ, and I'm, I'm sure Peter Doshu is somewhat behind this. Um, I think is one of the major editors there. That, or maybe the, one of the founders of the journal itself, stated that it's hard to get the actual raw data. You can't get the raw data, so you get in in the trivium. You know, we, we talk about if you don't have the general grammar correct, the who, what, when, where, the why is never going to be correct. My dad says this about reports all the time when we, we do these um, large analyses in these corporations trying to collate data in these large uh, financial systems. It's like if any part of this data is wrong, it can be extrapolated and then it creates a whole nightmare situation. What we allude, alluding to actually what we talked about earlier with the, um, uh, with the, the predictive models that they were using the Sage system and Neil Ferguson and all that sort of stuff. Again, like if the data is wrong, the logic, no matter how perfect you execute it is going to be invalid. The logic is going to be invalid because the data is not true. And that's the problem. We don't have access to the data. Now this goes along with what Norman Fenton said, right? Cause they had actually had access to Norman Fenton was a statistician that called out the, um, uh, NHS, which is in the UK, uh, national health services about the, so they did release their data, but he showed that the data they released essentially organized a large sample size into one contingent group that had, a, I think from zero to 60 year old, but with like no breakout of sort of cofactors associated or attributes, in other words, associated with that cohort or with those co cohorts, so to speak. So they didn't break it down by age, sex, comorbidities, you know, any of these factors. And when you do so, you can manipulate the data any which way you want. And that's just one example of ways in which you can easily manipulate statistical data is by manipulating the sample size. But at least the UK government through the NHS released the data, even if they didn't, they, even though they collated all that into like one large group 
those data. And so, you know, when you look at it like that, at least they released it in America, it's incredibly difficult. Look at what they're going through with Pfizer right now. They're trying to get the data released within what by May. And now the, the, uh, Pfizer lawyers are trying to step in and delay that again. Um, it just, and we also know that the first 90 day release was devastating, you know, 1200 dead over, I think out of the 40, so thousand that participated in that, uh, sample size, half of them had ad severe adverse reactions. So it's like, you know, when we look at this, it's not surprising to see that this is all of a sudden manifesting the way it is in these actual medical journals outside of the United States, where they're a bit more open to allowing the data to actually be, uh, not only released, but then sort of statistically scrutinized by other experts, um, such as that individual they showed I'm the spacing on the name. I should have wrote it down that, um, you know, this sort of capital management, uh, uh, actuarial scientist sort of thing. And, uh, being able to show that, like, look, you take this data and it looks absolutely damning to what's going on. And also not only just with infection, but with death, I mean, you know, Alberta, Canada, again, Hamburg, Germany, and in Scotland itself. Um, and I'm not surprised to know that the one I think in Canada got taken down, no Germany, if I remember him correctly saying that. So it just goes to show without the data, we can't have without this, the, the actual raw data, we can't really have meaningful discussion because then we just have to trust with the, what has been processed, but we don't have the, the beginning sample size to know how they processed it. And that's sort of the problem. So they can sort of, you know, create it. They can, and that with the way, way in which you can very easily manipulate data, they can create any sort of narrative they need to create in order to justify that it's supposedly safe and effective. Yet at the same time, I go back to this document and I'm seeing that an important potential risk as known as early as February 28, 2021, which means they knew it before that. This is the really, this is about the time when the vaccine rollout was starting on 2021. As vaccine-associated enhanced disease, we're not even talking about antibody-dependent enhancements. It's a whole separate issue. But essentially, the vaccine is causing the disease. Is as you know, there's not a real good working definition of this, unfortunately. But that's sort of how I'm interpreting it as, and especially knowing the mechanism of the vaccine itself producing the spike that causes the disease. That would make sense. What's terrifying is the increased rate of mortality and the fact that they put that in the non-vaccinated camp. If that doesn't say everything, I don't know what more needs to be said. So incredible reporting, um, this uh, incredible reporting by Jeffrey Jackson. And it's just, it, it's sort of, it's connecting back to a lot of the elements that Rich and I presented earlier on about what's going on with not only the data manipulation, this goes along with what Robert Malone said, the data is heavily sanitized in America, especially. This is why when I talk with friends that are more on the normie spectrum, they try to present data to me from state or uh, um, federal health departments. I'm sitting there sitting, sitting like, but then I have contradictory studies, even out of Israel, you know, out of Denmark, out of South Africa, you know, out of Japan, where we got one of the first studies about it traveling all over the body. And so like, there's all these different studies that are being done that are contradicting the studies that are being done in America, which means if we're not going to commit fallacies, we have to argue based on the evidence that's available and we have to scrutinize the studies themselves. And that requires us to have at least the raw data, which they're not really releasing in America. You can see how difficult of a process it is to actually get the raw data. That's the most important thing. The logic oftentimes is the easy part. It's the raw data that everyone gets screwed up or tries to manipulate in order to, to pro, order for the logic to be processed or understood in such a way that, you know, paints a certain narrative. And then we're back to the idea and the concept of self-fulfilling prophecy. So we have to be very careful of this and um, really just tremendous reporting. 
by um, Jeffrey Jackson. And this, you know, I think this came out. Yeah. So I got, I remember this, so it was around December 23rd. So this would have probably been on that show. This came out Thursday, December 23rd. So it would have been around the Christmas show. What was that? A day after Christmas that when we reported on this, it'd be worth going back and taking a look at that show and see what we talked about in regards to some of these adverse reactions. And this says here again, as the FDA, let me make this bigger for people so they understand what this is. As the FDA prepares to approve Pfizer's new pill for treating high-risk patients affected with COVID, more information about the dangerous side effects tied to its vaccine are coming to light. Uh, just yesterday, reported another death tied to the vaccine in New Zealand. Now documents released by the FDA reveal the drug maker Pfizer recorded nearly 160,000 adverse reactions to COVID vaccine in the initial months of its rollout. The data was obtained, or excuse me, were obtained by a group of doctors, professional, then this is the key point, professors and journalists calling themselves public health and medical professionals for transparency. They filed a FOIA request uh, with the FDA asking for the release. And the first uh, tranche of documents uh, revealed that as of February 2021, when Pfizer's shot was being rolled out worldwide on an emergency basis, a drug maker had compiled more than 42,000, that's the number I saw, okay, case reports detailing another 160,000 individual adverse reactions to the vaccine. The data show the bulk of the adverse event cases, which means why is the number such a discrepancy between the numbers? Because there's multiple adverse reactions out of that 42,000, out of those 42,000 case reports. That's how you get to that number. The data show the bulk of the adverse event cases, both serious and non-serious are classified as quote unquote general disorders. So that's where this comes from, uh, just for reference. Okay. So with that, um, you know, we're beginning to see the fallout of this and the fact that like this is being recognized by other countries and areas and uh, scientists around the world in regards to the fact that the vaccine itself is causing the disease and potentially the death that is being associated with deaths um, to the unvaccinated. So again, what does this say then about the data of theirs or the yellow card system in uh, the UK or all the various uh, adverse reaction systems and databases across, around the world? How much is not being reported, right? That's, I mean, it certainly begs the question. I just wonder, and uh, we'll have to you know, see what the continual fallout of that is. But thank God that there's enough transparency uh, with what's going on with studies conducted overseas and the fact they're a little bit more liberal in releasing that data, those data in contrast to what we're experiencing in America, which is much more to Dell's point, uh, contrived and top down. And we can't get access to that. We have to go through these, these long sort of, uh, processes in the courts and FOIA requests, and you have to sue, you know, manufacturers and there's all this different various avenues we have to take to try to obtain even a modicum of information associated with the raw data from which they use to calculate the statistics about the supposed safety and efficacy of the vaccine. With that being said, I want to move on to the Ron Johnson COVID-19 roundtable because that was absolutely amazing. Now I wanted it's I think it was around four and a half to five hours. So obviously I can't play the entire thing. There were two clips. Um, I'm probably going to play the Owen Shore one because I was the one I watched the most. And I felt they had had some really hard hitting, um, uh, sort of pieces within that. Uh, but there's also another one underneath in the show card for those who are interested that's about 40 minutes long. It's also a little shorter, the Owen Schroer run, which is just him sort of commenting, letting it run. Cause he's doing it real time. He was doing the Alex. I think at that point he was sitting in for Alex Jones and, um, this wasn't the war room, I believe. I think this was the Alex Jones show and, uh, they were just letting it play. 
this real time and they were sort of going to break and going in and out, but I thought they got some really good moments in there and it's a little shorter. And I know the, sh- you know, the show tonight with uh, the incredible round table we had earlier, sort of, I want to condense it down a little bit. So I think what we're going to do um, is under the Ron Johnson COVID-19 round table LD, it'll be the one I highlight, which will be doctors find like between COVID vaccine and cancer. And so it's an interesting round table. It's also some interesting debates that emerge um, between some of the scientists, meaningful debates, um, as far as, uh, okay. The vaccine. Yep. So, yeah. Pulling that right up. Yep. And then from there, uh, in order, we have a long intermission, but it's really only one or two clips, but, uh, I want to showcase this post future work society by true steam media. So we're going to, I'm going to try to expedite that, but I want to get to the monkeys a little bit. So we're going to want to do a couple, uh, clips about what happened in near Danville, Pennsylvania. We can't forget and, the McCox uh, section for Yona. The McCox. Of course, how could we? That's... How could we? <laughs> Only right, for yeah. Yona. We'll we circle back. Fire, fuel the fire to the Rockfin chat that I'm sure is just you know ablaze with all sorts of interesting memes associated with this crazy show. But uh, All right. McCox. We will circle back, Jen Saki style. 40% off. So I asked the crew, I said, guys, let's find who's ever reporting on the Ron Johnson hearing today. Let's find some stories. And they said, oh, and there's barely anybody talking about it, barely anybody covering it. So it's like it doesn't even exist. We were able to find two. You had one on Zero Hedge, watch live, Senator Johnson holds star-studded COVID-19 second opinion hearing. Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Brett Weinstein, Dr. Jay Bachara, Dr. Ryan Cole, Harvey Reich, George Farid, Pierre Corey, Dr. Urso, uh, Dr. Marlick, Dr. Kiridi, Dr. Malone, Dr. Wiseman, the list just goes on and on. Uh, we've got another one here from Red Voice Media, COVID-19, a second opinion, Ron Johnson, moderated panel discussion with experts. This has been ongoing about two hours now. I want to go live to the OAN feed, the only network that I've seen actually live covering it today. Let's pick up some of that coverage right now. Ron Johnson, Dr. Robert Malone, Peter McCullough, and so many more talking the truth about vaccines that the establishment doesn't want you to hear. And we look in the yellow card system in the UK, we say the same thing. And we look in the UDRA system in the EU, we do the same thing. We have just fulfilled the Bradford Hill tenets of causality. Meaning, I am telling you as an epidemiologist, the vaccines are causing these fatal and non-fatal events to a large degree. And many of those skilled around the table, I'm sure would agree. Okay, so that transitions perfectly. Kyle, I'm going to have to actually ask you to give up your seat for Mr. Tom yeah, Renz. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got contacted by attorney Tom Renz over the weekend, who represents some whistleblowers within the Department of Defense. Uh, and Tom, I, you cannot, you don't have much time at all, okay? Uh, he showed me his data, or he showed me the data that is being extracted from, what is the name of this database? CMS. DMED. Pardon? DMED. It's the Defense Medical Database. And I'm going to just kind of cut to the punchline because we just don't have very much time at all. But this data, so these are whistleblowers that have been extracting data out of the Defense Department database. They have noticed an 
And a very alarming increase in instances of certain conditions compared to a five-year average, you know, in, in the, like a 10 times number in some cases. Uh, they also have evidence that with myocarditis, the data has been doctored already because they, they did a, a search inquiry in August that showed a certain level of myocarditis. I think it was like 20 times higher. 28 times higher, something like that. Uh, but now, in January, it's only a couple hundred times, or I mean, it's uh, two times higher. So it, there appears to be doctoring of the data. Now, my staff has already sent, this morning, we sent a record preservation letter to the Department of Defense to try and protect this data. But, Tom, why don't you just quickly, because we have other things I do want to get to here, please tell me... Uh, Apparently one of the whistleblowers is brave enough to come forward and give a name or I would not have allowed you to come. To yes, Senator. So we've got three whistleblowers who have given me permission at this point to share their name. Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Teresa Long, DOMPH, Dr. Samuel Sigloff, and Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Peter Chambers, DO and Flight Surgeon. All three have, have given me this data. I have declarations from all three. This data is under penalty. Of, uh, this is under penalty of perjury. We intend to submit this to the courts. Uh, we have substantial data showing that uh, we saw, for example, uh, miscarriages increased by 300% over the five-year average, almost. Uh, we saw almost 300% increase in cancer over the five-year average. Cancer is not being talked about except for by Dr. Ryan Cole. Thank you, doctor. Uh, we saw, this one's amazing, neurological. So f neurological issues which would affect our pilots. Over a thousand percent increase. A uh, thousand. Ten times. That's ten times the rate, and obviously that resonates. 83,000 per year to, I'm sorry, 82,000 per year to 863,000 in one year. Our soldiers are being experimented on, injured, and sometimes possibly killed. Dr. Corey, thank you so much for your stance on the corruption. That's precisely what it is. They know this, and Senator, uh, when these doctors are attacked, not necessarily the people in this room, I'm give, not giving names, they call me. I'm the one dealing with the medical boards. I'm the one watching the witch hunts. I'm the one fighting them off, and I'm the one telling them where to go. I'm going to keep doing that. Senator, we also have, uh, let me give you this last thing, and then I'll shut up and uh, get out of your way. 928, 2021. Project Salus weekly report. Project Salus is a defense, a defense department initiative where they report and contra, uh, they take all this data that doesn't exist supposedly and they give it to the CDC. They're watching these vaccines. On that date and around that date, I have numerous instances where Fauci and that entire crew were saying it's a crisis of unvaxed. It's 99% unvaxed in the hospital. In Project Salus, in the weekly report, the DOD document says specifically 71% of new cases are in the fully vaxed and 60% of hospitalizations are in the fully vaxed. This is corruption at the highest level. We need investigations. The Secretary of Defense needs investigated. The CDC needs to investigate. And thank you so much, Senator, for having the courage to stand against these special interests. Yes. So, yes.
Seriously, I was just saying that in the break. Thank God for Ron Johnson. We need to pray for Ron Johnson. We need to pray God's hedge of protection over Ron Johnson and these great doctors and whistleblowers. Here's Ron Johnson. Notice, they must preserve these records, and this must be investigated. Okay? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Senator. Thank you. So... The increase in cancer is something I've been hearing about for months. And quite honestly, I've told people that are reporting this to me, I don't think the public's quite ready for that yet. Okay, but you've just raised this issue. Apparently, uh, Dr. Cole, you're aware of this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because this, this, is, this is frightening. Thank you, Senator. And this is a challenge in terms of aggregating data. I saw a signal early on of certain viral conditions. Dr. Parks pointed out mechanisms. I noticed certain viruses increasing. Well, these same T cells, immune cells, keep cancers in check. So I do about 40,000 biopsies a year. I'm a busy pathologist. And I thought, gosh, I'm seeing more of this type of cancer and this type of cancer and this type of cancer. And so I've tried to talk to other laboratories and aggregate a bigger data set, which obviously these federal data sets are a very easy way to see that signal. Obviously, I've been canceled, I've been ridiculed, I've been um, maligned, etc. for saying so, but I've been observing it. And I can't deny observation. That's how science happens initially through observation. Then we confirm through hypothesis, experiment, and data. So yes, we're seeing it. And now when we travel with these groups and summits, I have oncologists, I have radiation oncologists. I am seeing an uptick in cancers. I'm seeing these odd, stable cancers take off like wildfires after the vaccines. It is happening. We need federal funding. The NIH isn't looking at this. Getting a grant to look at anything related to the vaccines is next to impossible because they're all right that's dr ryan cole talking now folks this is so this is incredible this is this is this is my like is anecdotal my observation this is like the prelims go ahead and pull it down but we needed this is like the prelims or the warm-up opening ceremony to nuremberg 2.0 i mean are you hearing what these doctors are saying they're seeing a radical increase in cancer post-vaccination, and they know why they're telling you the science how it's destroying the cells that attack cancer you know, something strange is happening here. And of course, you're tuned in because you know what's going on. We know what's going on. But to new audience members or just the general population that's that's confused at all of this, not really sure what's going on, maybe starting to wake up. Yeah, we've got this hearing with Senator Ron Johnson and dozens of doctors. By the way, we're going to be joined by one of the doctors that's on the panel in about half an hour. Dr. Marble is going to be joining us live on the air to discuss this. But yeah, we've got this panel of doctors and a senator, very little media there reporting on it and covering it, talking about their clinical data, their government data, and just their general experience since COVID in the vaccines, in, in the deadliness, all the lies, all the cover-ups, all of it. It's really powerful. We're going to go back. But you have to ask yourself, what is going on here? Pfizer CEO says annual COVID jabs would be an ideal situation. Oh, he'd like that, wouldn't he? To see his profits continue to skyrocket. Fauci coming out and saying the same thing. We need unlimited boosters. What do vaccinated and unvaccinated people have in common? They're never, they will never be fully vaccinated. So what is going on? If, if, if these people actually cared about your health, if these people were actually trying to do this for good reasons, they'd come out and they'd be honest about this. They wouldn't try to scuttle the information from getting out. They wouldn't be censoring people that are questioning it. They wouldn't be hiding their own data for, for decades into the future. 
They wouldn't be attacking doctors and members of the media that question the vaccines. And, and when they see all the side effects that, that have been mentioned at this hearing, they would back off and they'd say, hey, you know what? Something's going on here. Uh, we know a lot more about COVID. You're probably going to be fine without the vaccine. Let's step back. Let's stop mandating these. Let's stop forcing these until we have a little bit of better idea about what's going to be the long-term side effects of this experimental technology, mRNA technology. But no, they say full steam ahead, vaccinate everyone 100 times, damn the side effects, damn the death, damn your freedom. So you got to just scratch your head and say, wow, what is wrong with these people? What is going on here? So we go back now to the panel, Senator Ron Johnson, and, and just a bevy of heroic doctors reporting here. The media will ignore it. We won't. In fact, we'll probably upload the whole hearing to Bandai Video at some point, if not today, tomorrow. But here it is, the doctors, whistleblowers, and everybody warning the world, trying to get the truth out about these vaccines and COVID. The experimental data on the genome in the P53 in BRCA, can you explain that to everyone? Yeah, real quick. So we have genes in our body. We have mechanisms in our body. We have bad cells in our body every day. Our body says, oh, I can kill that, knock it off, you know, shakes hands with every cell. You're gone, you're gone, you're a bad cell. There are genes, there are suppressor genes, P53, it's the guardian of our genome. There's another breast cancer gene, BRCA gene. We know that the spike protein binds to the receptors for these genes and can activate them. That is a mechanism of the spike protein. So putting this spike protein in the human body via a, a gene shot that is completely investigational, these are not approved, and to mandate something that's investigational that can bind to cancer promoting sites. I'd like to just yeah, clarify and take that a step forward. P, what P53 does is it checks your DNA yes. before it replicates and it makes sure that it's fixed. So P53 is the one tumor suppressor gene that is most um, tied to cancer because once there's a mutation in P53, the mutation rate just skyrockets Correct. and you're going to develop enough mutations that that cancer is going to have a much more likelihood of becoming metastatic. Absolutely. So correct. P53 is the essential tumor suppressor. Now, do we know for sure that um, the spike protein is binding it and inactivating it so that it cannot make sure that your DNA is replicated um, effectively and, and without any errors? No, but that's why why we should have tested these for cancer-causing potential before we started giving them to our kids. There are some confirmatory hey, can I, can I, studies. Yeah, I'll put it into the record yes. uh, paper by Jiang in May yes. uh, where it goes into this data. <clears throat> SARS-CoV-2 spike impairs DNA damage repair. Thank you. The, the, the key, one of the key points is, is we, do, we still don't officially know what the structure of these, of these so-called vaccines are. I mean, we, we, we do have some information now that's been published by a Nobel laureate group from Stanford looking at the sequence from discards and, and comparing it with, uh, with, the, with the PANS. And, and, and there are what are called untranslated regions. Has anyone ever heard of this word, untranslated region? Anyone? 
Yes. A few people. Okay. Everyone has been told that the RNA in there is just RNA that's making this spike protein that's going to make your nice little cute little vaccine, just like those mumps and polio vaccines that we've all had as, as, a ch as children. No, wrong. There are untranslated regions, and I'm going to read you what they are. There's, 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 there are three human gene sequences in those untranslated regions. One of them, we think, I'm working with a group of molecular biologists and genomics, one of them, we think, is targeting the mitochondria. I'll tell you what that gene sequence is. It is a, where is it? The three prime untranslated region comprises two sequence elements derived from the amino terminal enhanced of split ASMRNA and the mitochondrial encoded 12S ribosomal RNA to confirm RNA stability and high total protein expression. That's what, that's what, that's what a WHO document says. Now, if that's true, if that's true, that, that could mean, we don't know, we need to find out, that could mean that the expression of the spike protein is actually being expressed partly at least in ribosomal, in mitochondrial ribosomal. <laughs> This is so wrong. Right, right, right mitochondrial yeah, no. ribosome. No, no, no. Yeah. That means First that one. means it could be a chemical expression. We, you know, Dr. Wiseman, listen, you're certainly letting us know you're qualified, but I don't know what you're talking about. But, but, <laughs> well, what so I'm talking I, about, Senator, is what I'm talking about, Senator, is in every single drug in package insert, you see a chemical structure. Don't do you not? There is a chemical structure. We need to know the exact chemical structure, the exact <clears> sequence <throat> of the RNAs and the DNAs in these vaccines. Right. Okay, they are being withheld from us. FDA needs to show us what those structures are. They need to explain what the pseudouridine is doing. You need, they, they need to explain this paper from Sahin, who is the, who is the founder of BioNTech in, in 2019, excuse me, 2014, they talk about non-natural nucleosides. What are those non-natural nucleosides doing? He talks about the toxicity of them, the pseudouridine. None of that is being discussed. So, None of that. So, so I, I want to clarify a little bit I agree there. with you. Okay. We need a lot more information. I want to clarify because people have said these are mRNA vaccines. mRNA only always goes to protein and we can't do anything. First, we know that people have re reverse transcriptase. Yes, it can make DNA. Yes, it can go back into the DNA. But there's something else about RNA. RNA can make little hairpin loops. RNA can regulate your DNA. So when you put an mRNA vaccine or RNA into your body, it can get in and it can be alternately spliced, can bind to your DNA, and it can regulate it. For positive or for negative, it can change your gene expression, and there's stuff in there that can do that either intentionally or unintentionally, and we don't know. It's completely unethical because we let are me, just let me just translate this real MR, quickly RNA um, because you know RNA if you're hearing this, guys, pull it down real quick. If you're hearing this, you probably said, "Hey, you know, we heard a lot about about this on Infowars a year ago, two years ago." Folks, this is like death by a thousand cuts. If you come up to me and you cut me one time somewhere, I'm probably going to be just fine. You cut me 10 times, 100 times, I'm probably going to bleed out. That's basically what they're saying is going on with this mRNA technology is it's like death by 100 cuts just constantly attacking your DNA, attacking your DNA. That's why they keep pushing these boosters. I guess either they think keep getting boosted will really work or they just really want to completely destroy your immune system, want to completely destroy your DNA. That's what these. That's why this doctor here is so fired up about this because he knows what's going on. Dr. Peter McCullough talking now. Cause myocarditis. The FDA indicates for Pfizer, Moderna that they cause myocarditis. We now have over 200 papers in the peer-reviewed literature on myocarditis, sadly showing the rates of myocarditis are far in excess of what the CDC ever imagined. 
we've identified that boys are uh, have a predilection for this far more than girls. The maximum age group, the peak age group is age 18 to uh, 18 to 24. So it's actually the college age. The risk extends up to age 50. And I can tell you that in this age group, it is clear the risks of the vaccines are far greater than the risks of COVID-19, the respiratory Boom. illness. That's Two everything papers, right there. That is everything UCC right there from Dr. McCullough. The risk of the vaccine is worse than the risk of COVID. Bingo. So we go back now live to the hearing with Senator Ron Johnson and dozens of elite doctors, the second opinion on COVID and vaccines hearing. This is what we get when I investigate. I mean, this isn't to do with this. But th this is after a couple of years trying to get information out of another agency, and we finally get the information, and it's all redacted. This is, this is how the, the, administrate, the, you know, the federal government, the agencies, comply with congressional oversight. We're glad, to, we're glad to share with you, Senator, because we have quite a bit of those that aren't blanked out. And we also want to tell you, listen, the side effects, the only one that they're recognizing, that's an outright lie. I've got the Pfizer documents. Pfizer said in their FOIA documents that they released, they said, we're looking for these side effects. The FDA said, we're looking for these documents. We've got their documents showing what they're looking for. They're not sharing it with the American people because they're covering this up. Corruption was the word of the day, and I think it needs to be reiterated. So somebody really quick in their testimony talked about what the drug companies were supposed to turn over when they made application. Yeah, yeah Dr. Carrieri, our... I mean, talk, talk about that specifically. I mean, Okay, so, so on the day in which the Pfizer vaccine was authorized under federal regulatory law, that data had to be made public to the American people. By data, I mean the, the clinical trials data that Pfizer submits to the FDA that the FDA then reviews and decides whether or not we're going to give... And why wasn't it? Uh, well... There, was there a waiver granted by FDA? Or? No, no. What they said was... Um, you know, we have a lot of FOIA requests, and they, they didn't deny that, that they had to release it eventually because that would have obviously contradicted federal law. So what they said instead was like, you know, even though we have a budget of $6 billion, I think it is, um, you know, we only have a, a handful of employees to handle these FOIA requests, and, you know, they have to make a lot of photocopies of okay. these documents. So, so they, now they, they it's it. 75 now, years. Now a judge has ordered the release, not at 500 pages. Eight months. months. 55, yes. Yeah. We'll We'll get that sooner. I did, again, we're running out of time. I did want to talk about some of the other revelations. Uh, you mentioned FOIA. The, the FOIA under, for Japanese regulators showed that this vaccine's not staying in the muscle as we were kind of all Correct. led to believe. Boy, boy, that's going to be say. interesting, Animal guys. Studies. Real quick, just pull it down real quick. They're now, we'll see. I, I would imagine that there's going to be back and forth here. But as of today, you just heard it. In eight months, it may be down to seven now. I'm not sure when the ruling was made, but let's say eight months from now. So we'll say September. We're supposed to get all of the unredacted documents on the vaccine side effects in September of this year, right before the midterms. Wow. Think about the political impact that that meteor of information is going to have on the political landscape that is that is major incoming right there let's go back live to the hearing so they were going to use uh, lipid nanoparticles to do it the problem was the lipid nanoparticles went into ovaries bone marrow 
<clears throat> adrenal glands and other tissues. So it's still being worked on. Studies are still being done. But I was going to ask Dr. Malone because um, uh, Dr. McCullough had just talked about the fact that he has concerns. Do you have concerns for this vaccine in children, knowing that it's going in the brain, the bone marrow, the adrenals, and all these other organs? So the answer is yes. I've said that repeatedly. I've uh, put out a four-minute clip in which I talk about the damage at risk to children in brain, heart, coagulopathy, reproductive you systems. You know, I, I'm realizing systems. something here now as Dr. Malone, the inventor of mRNA technology is speaking. You'd think you'd want to hear from him. Uh, if you're the media, you think you'd want to play this, and, and we all know what he's saying right now about it. But, you know, it's funny because of all the things that the COVID-19 vaccine does, you notice that it doesn't do the one thing they claim it's supposed to do. It doesn't stop COVID. And it never did. And it was never designed to. <laughs> I mean, this is just, I'm telling you, man, you want to talk about science fiction dystopia? I mean, we are in it. They forced the vaccine in the name of COVID, but yet it doesn't stop COVID and it does thousands of other things to your body except stopping COVID. Here's Dr. Malone, the inventor of the technology that they're injecting us with. Listenly in detail about reverse transcriptase and what it can do, et cetera. But I can tell you that we moved off of trying to develop further these mRNA and DNA complexes um, based on our work in non-human primates and in mice. We spent years uh, with both commercial funding and various public funding, not NIH, trying to advance this technology. Many, many different catenic lipid formulations, compounds tested, screened for toxicity. We could never overcome the hyperinflammatory characteristics of these uh, polynucleotide catenic lipid complexes. We could never get there. Now, the Carrico and Weissman assertion, and some, you know, it's inside baseball. Um, I, I brought Katie Carrico into this you know, like a decade before, after I'd made the basic discoveries. They assert that the inclusion of the pseudouridine reduces the inflammatory response, but the the data show that that is a marginal decrease, and the data also show from their competitor, it's important to remember that they are BioNTech, Katie's a vice president. Um, so their competitor in Germany has shown very good res immune response without the pseudouridine. So you're right, pseudouridine is a synthetic compound. The logic is that incorporation of pseudouridine reduces the inflammatory response, but the inflammatory response is still there. And to your point, Rich, we are clearly seeing not only um, specific effects associated with spike protein, but nonspecific effects associated with the liponanocomplexes. How do we know that? Because Moderna um, gave us a presentation to their stockholders recently where they rolled out their phase one data on their influenza vaccine candidates that are using the same technology platform. So no spike protein associated influenza antigens. And in their hands, at the 100 microgram dose, which is the dose that's used in the um, um, emergency use authorized vaccines, 90% of the subjects had adverse events compared to 30% in the placebo group. This is phase one data. Now that data has not been disclosed publicly. It was only disclosed to their stockholders. But what it clearly demonstrates is that the catenic lipid RNA complexes have intrinsic toxicity 
above and beyond just that associated with the spike. So when we get into these arguments about is it spike, is it the lipids, blah, 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 it's both, okay? We, we have a tendency to get binary. It's either this or that. No, it can be both. Regarding the, um, uh, the data package from Japan that Byron Bridal first acquired, and then I think I was the first after that. People often get confused about this, but Senator, this is the thing that worries me among the most is that that limited data that was not produced to any quality standard that any clinical trial, you know, precursor, non-clinical data package I've ever seen would be allowed to be used. What, what the FDA and the regulatory authorities all over the world allowed was for Pfizer to collect data involving um, unrelated RNAs, other candidates, amalgamate it together and submit it as a package. And in those data, which are not according to good laboratory practices, they did demonstrate that these lipid nanoparticles go all over the body, just as Richard is saying. And oddly, they seem to differentially go to ovaries and bone marrow, but ovaries relative to testes. And it's important everybody kind of latches onto this and they say, oh, there's spike protein in the ovaries. No, that's not what they measured. They didn't ever measure spike protein. What they measured was the lipid component, these synthetic lipids, which is the other thing you didn't mention in this cocktail, okay? These synthetic lipids go to ovaries. Now, who cares? Well, when your child is born, when your daughter is born, she has all the eggs she's ever going to have in her ovaries. And we do know that, and the CDC now finally acknowledges after women all over the world complaining about their alterated, altered menses and getting, I mean, it was, a, it was, I felt like I was in the mid, mid 20th century. It was attributed to hysteria, much as your own story. These alterations in menstruation were, were, were believed to represent hysterical women. The CDC Folks, this is, is now incredible. acknowledging it. I just, the whole world needs to be hearing this right now. And I'm just overwhelmed with relief that everything we've been talking about for two years is now happening with world-renowned doctors and senators in massive panels. Well, I'm very Are you excited, Alex? I bet you are. You got your new supplements back in stock. Okay. So let's just go over this real quick. They mentioned this P53. So this is something that um, Dell Bigtree and, and actually it was Jeffrey Jackson on one of the Jackson reports many, many, well, actually it feels like it's many months ago, but the paper was officially submitted, I think August 20th. So it might have actually been a couple months ago. Uh, it was published in Viruses 2020. Let's see, on December 22nd, 2021, it was published a month ago. I just want to read the abstract of this because this sort of says everything. Let me make this bigger. This is about the P53. Oops. Um, okay. Abstract. So first, uh, SARS-CoV-2 spike impairs DNA damage repair and inhibits recombination in vitro. Abstract is severe acute respiratory syndrome of coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2 has led to the coronavirus disease 2019 pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. Adaptive immunity plays a crucial role in fighting against SARS-CoV-2 infection and directly influences the clinical outcomes of patients. 
Clinical studies have indicated that patients with severe COVID-19 exhibit delayed and weak adaptive immune responses. However, the mechanism by which SARS-CoV-2 impedes adaptive immunity remains unclear. Here, by using an in vitro cell line, we report that the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein significantly inhibits DNA damage repair, which is required for effective recombination and adaptive immunity. Mechanistically, we found that the spike protein localizes in the nucleus and inhibits DNA damage repair by impeding key DNA repair protein, BRCA1 and 53BP1, sometimes referred to, I believe, as P53, recruitment to the damage site. Our findings reveal a potential molecular mechanism by which spike protein might impede adaptive immunity and underscore the potential side effects of the full-length spike-based vaccine. So obviously, this is in vitro. Um, a lot of times, in vitro doesn't always translate to the human situation, but the fact that there's some epidemiological um, observations noted by RENS uh, in regards to a 300% increase in cancer and a thousand percent increase in neurological conditions that, you know, this in vitro study, uh, might actually, uh, portend to what could be done in vivo. So, uh, once we uh, put it into, you know, a person's body, which is exactly what's happening right now, because the entire world is being experimented on with these new synthetically, uh, produced like, uh, these, uh, synthetic, uh, gene therapies pathogen producing synthetic gene therapies as rich likes to say, and is absolutely true about what they are. And that would be closer to an essential definition of what these quote unquote therapeutics actually are. So I just wanted to get that on the record. I know that was reported on a couple of months ago, but at that point it was just uh, submitted and then not been published. It's not published. Uh, so there's a potential mechanism by which we can understand why there would be an increase in cancer in those who have been vaccinated, but we'll have to see What's really concerning is what is this going to look like two years? Remember, we're only a year into the vaccine rollout. People sort of forget that. I mean, that study was just published about a month ago, officially published, submitted back in August, but officially published a month ago. What's this going to look like in two years, five years, 10 years? This, it really makes me wonder at this point. It really does. So with that, um, it's two in the morning, and I want to get to... I want to get to the, the, the intermission as quickly as possible because the intermission is going to be somewhat long. One of the things this week, obviously, was the big news, and our show title is based on this, the Spotify seppuku, this whole situation with Neil Young demanding that people remove this. We actually mentioned it during the roundtable I had earlier, and I'm going to reserve this for Liberty Radio and James to comment on this during Liberty Radio since it's actually sort of there's a congruence between the fact that they showcase uh, music of a freedom nature while at the same time promoting um, study, stories that we can't get to and, go and, and commenting on stories and news items and clips that we can't get to. So I'll leave this up for him to get dive into, but for those that want to check it out, this is sort of the subsection. I call it Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan breaks the internet. And so that's what it looks like a bunch of different, it was big news this week because it had a cultural impact. So something that was, you know, Joni Mitchell and there's a couple other ones they mentioned, we mentioned earlier that are demanding the same thing. Um, you know, Tedros, I guess, has come back, come, come out and supported Neil Young against Joe Rogan, a bunch of nonsense. And so, yeah, there's all, all that's going on in the background. So I just wanted to make people aware of that big pharma corruption. This was interesting. Jimmy Dore does sort of deep dive into Pfizer's in, intentionally deceived and defrauded the U S justice department about their $2.3 billion fine, but 
how much more negligent it actually was, even though it seems like such an unbelievably hefty fine. And the fact that that fine was also built into their budget to understand that they still make profits many times over that. So it's worth paying a, yes, $2.3 billion fine uh, in accordance with how much many more billions they'd make on top of what they were doing with uh, off-label prescriptions and all those sorts of ideas. So wanted to get into that, but because of time, um, I think we're going to sort of I want to get down to the intermission, but I do want to cover this hundred monkey story because there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of confusion, a lot we don't know what's going on with it. And it's a short clip and I can sort of get into this pretty quickly. And there's a funny clip after it that I want to show. So this is what I want to do. Let's go ahead and play the two clips in the hundred monkey section back to back. Um, and that together would be about six, seven minutes. And then I'll come back for some quick commentary on this Epoch Times update on Pennsylvania one, which seems very scripted and very strange. And so I'm going to let LD bring that up. So we'll play, you can just play them back to back the Brian Wilson clip and then the Stephen Crowder. It's actually Dave Landau uh, bringing some satire to a very sort of morbid real uh, reality. All right, you got it. Thanks, bro. On January 21st, a truck and trailer carrying about a hundred lab monkeys collided with a dump truck along Route 54, just off Interstate 80, near Danville, Pennsylvania, which tore the trailer wide open and sent animal crates flying all over the highway. Three of the monkeys, macaques, escaped and went on the run, but since the 22nd, they have all been captured and killed. According to the CDC, the macaques arrived in New York from Mauritius, an East African country, and were in route to a CDC quarantine facility, either in Florida or the Midwest, according to conflicting reports. The CDC is now monitoring local residents for cold-like symptoms. Is this a wannabe Wuhan lab leak repeat? Michelle Fallon, a woman who came in contact with the monkeys after the crash, on the 22nd reported that she is experiencing symptoms, pink eye, and a cough. After visiting the emergency room, she was given a rabies shot and antiviral drugs. On the 21st, Michelle was driving directly behind the trailer of monkeys when it crashed, and thinking the animals were cats, she got out of her car and tried to help clean up the mess of animal crates on the highway. I walk up back on the hill, and this guy tells me, he goes, oh, he's hauling cats. I'm like, oh. So I go over to look in the crate, and there's this green cloth over it, so I peel it back, I stick my finger in there, and go, kitty, kitty, and it pops it up, and it's a monkey. Because their DNA is similar to that of humans, the macaques are often used in medical studies, and they have been in high demand during the COVID pandemic, each costing up to $10,000. Starting in 2020, there has been a shortage of these monkeys, which researchers want for COVID vaccine experiments to test the effectiveness of various shots. This wouldn't be the first time that lab test monkeys have led to an outbreak of a cross-species disease. In the United States Navy 
medical newsletter from July 5th, 1968, in the preventive medicine section, there's a warning about green monkey disease. The African green monkey is in the same animal order, suborder, and family as the macaque. The article describes a shipment of green monkeys being brought from Uganda to West Germany to harvest their kidneys for vaccine manufacturing. More than 20 employees who took part in removing the kidneys became ill with green monkey disease, and seven of them died. Symptoms included weakness, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, rash, and conjunctivitis, also known as pink eye, just like Michelle Fallon has experienced in Pennsylvania. In addition to green monkey disease, in 1958, monkeypox was first discovered by Danish virologist Preben von Magnus, originating in macaques from Singapore. This disease has habitually appeared and reappeared, jumping from monkeys to humans ever since. Eleven African countries have reported monkeypox since 1970. The United Kingdom reported cases in 2018, 19, and 2021. Israel had cases in 2018, Singapore in 2019, and in 2003 and 2021, the United States reported monkeypox cases. In 2021, the Washington Post reported that a veterinarian in Beijing, China contracted a herpes virus from macaque monkeys while working for a research institute where he dissected their bodies. A month later, he experienced nausea, vomiting, and fever before he died. So if diseases from monkeys are transmissible to humans and are known to have serious side effects, like death, then why are these types of animals being used for scientific experiments? Does their usefulness as test subjects outweigh the risks of contracting a disease from close proximity? Are researchers trying to engineer a deadly monkey virus as part of a gain-of-function research project? If so, how much more deadly would it be than a bat virus? virus, like COVID, considering the similarity of our DNA. Hopefully, this is the last you'll hear of the mysterious Pennsylvania monkey virus. This is Brian Wilson with InfoWars.com. Look, we're not going to get off this monkey topic because it's important. Mm -hmm. Fauci likes his monkeys. Speaking of monkeys... Mm. Did you know that Morgan Island... Not my island. No, not Gerald. Gerald A. <laughs> Did you know that Gerald Morgan Island... No! <laughs> ...in South Carolina has been nicknamed Monkey Island because it's full of monkeys? Oh, my God. It just what? makes common sense. <laughs> All the monkeys on the island are owned by the NIH and are subjected to Fauci experiments. Animals and animal experiments are not right or left. This is an issue that can bring both sides of the aisle together. Morgan Island, also known locally as Monkey Island, growing up in South Carolina's low country, we always thought this was a retirement home or sanctuary for primates Morons. or monkeys that had been used in experiments. We'll come to find out after White Coat Waste did a FOIA request and gather documentation. They're taking approximately 600 primates and monkeys and using them on scientific gruesome and barbaric experiments, much like the puppies that, by the way, Dr. Mm -hmm. Fauci never responded Aww. to our letter about Ugh. the beagle puppies. So uh, I might have to rename this island from Monkey Island to Fauci Island just to get a response on these things. Um, it's crazy. It's barbaric. It's gruesome. And it's got to end. 
gosh. Fauci also made a, a different group of lab monkeys uh, trans oh. and gave them AIDS, you know, for science. For science. We did not. It's right on the website of what NIH funds. They take male monkeys. They put them in metal boxes. That's where they're forced to live. They subject them to hormone, so-called hormone treatment. And from that, they're supposed to learn something about HIV transmission. Now, never mind that monkeys don't actually contract HIV. Hmm. They don't actually develop AIDS. This is a study that could be done with human volunteers, and we might actually find something out that would help human beings. Hmm. Wow, that's strange, because they, I thought that monkey did have AIDS because he was offered a new sitcom on CBS, Two and a Half Monkeys. That's... <laughs> oh. <laughs> and he was also offered a spot on CNN. Okay, well, I was referring to... He's taking uh, over Cuomo's old spot. Yeah. Is that what he's doing? Okay, I thought it was something about that. Co-hosting with Brian Stelter. Yeah, Brian Stelter, though, I, I, I know is not... Uh, well, you know I don't. A monkey. So, uh, he's not a monkey. 100% <laughs> hetero. If I had to bet on one of those two things, it's not a monkey. <laughs> not a monkey. Uh, it's bringing a little levity to a very dark situation, seeing all those... Uh, video clips of monkeys being experimented on really frustrates the hell out of me. Um, why can't we just leave sort of nature alone and leave the animals alone? I don't quite understand it, especially because many of these don't even pertain to anything we'd be able to understand in regards to uh, disease. But then again, also working on them is very dangerous because of similar DNA. They can jump from without doing any sort of gain of function when you harvest organs or, you know, deal with sort of internal structures of the uh, uh, monkey body, viruses can jump from the monkey to the, the, the human that's doing the work, the dissecting and, and uh, the different various uh, work associated with that. And because of that, why would we want to introduce new viruses that are really exclusive to monkeys into human populations? And that's without even doing gain of function. God knows what's going to manifest let me just kick my cat out of the way here what's going to manifest if they start or already doing gain of function uh research with monkeys which obviously have a very similar genome to uh human beings and so that's something to be aware of now just a quick update this is behind a paywall uh no it isn't oh good yes it is i thought so so i, I was able to get some of the elements of it by doing a quick snapshot um let me see if i can quickly yeah okay so a woman who said she came into contact with escape monkeys in pennsylvania several days ago said that she's not sick all of a sudden i want people to know i'm not sick i found out i was at a birthday party i found out i was at a birth she, she found out she was at a birthday party i think what she means here is i found out i was at a birthday party friday night and people there had COVID 19 michelle fallon told local news outlet the daily item I was exposed to the monkeys and exposed to people with COVID. It was the worst day of my life. Fallon, meanwhile, said she was only taking precautions from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, and state health officials. I explained what happened. They said I was at very low risk of anything, but I went to go get checked out anyway because I started to not feel well, Fallon told the newspaper. I want people to know I'm not sick regardless of what they are reading that has been put out there in the media. She continued, I only spoke to a few media outlets, but I've been talking to PETA. Pennsylvania state police on January 21st um, or said on January 21st that a trailer collided with a dump truck causing crates of monkeys to be dumped near route 54 and interstate 80 in Danville, Pennsylvania. 
three of the animals escaped, blah, blah, blah. What I want to know is what, who was the man that told her, oh, it's just cats? In a Facebook post and in interviews with local media, Fallon said she came into close contact with the monkeys after believing they were cats. And according to her, she said a man, some man told her that they were cats. I would like to know who that man was. She said she developed pink eye and other symptoms after coming into close contact with one of the primates. So that's kind of strange considering that there's this um, one of the viruses that was mentioned by Brian Wilson uh, is associated with a symptom of pink eye in regards to uh, primate transmission to humans. I was behind the truck that was in the accident. I saw the truck veer off the road and saw the incident, she said. When approaching the creation, Fallon recalled, and that's where I lost. I'll have to do more behind the scenes because I'm not going to pay for this right now. But I guess the point is she's sitting there stating that she went to, okay, these are monkeys that have been manipulated in some capacity. Uh, they're research monkeys. In fact, they not only captured them, but they killed them immediately. Okay. So they allow this woman. So we've had to go into lockdowns and go into quarantine over COVID, but they allowed this woman to experience this during the day and then go to a party later that night. You know, they didn't give her any sort of warning. They didn't talk to her about what the monkeys would have. And maybe they don't want to disclose those details, but maybe they could have, you know, said so euphemistically and so far as stating something of the nature of, you know, um, we can't disclose the nature of the research, but, you know, just out of caution, we express that you should not be in contact with other human beings for a certain amount of time. Nope. None of that. You can go out, do your thing, come in contact with other people, nothing to see there, nothing at all. Oh, by the way, it's just COVID because COVID somehow not produces pink eye, please. Um, not saying anything is really going to manifest from that. And I'm hoping alongside Brian Wilson, that this is the last we really hear of this story. But you got to remember, what the hell is up with Pennsylvania outside of Philadelphia Airport, International Airport? There was that vaccine research laboratory or whatever, or research center. They remember the vaccinia virus and uh, smallpox, I believe it was, was discovered there. Vials, at least with those labels on them, were discovered. And of course, the CDC swooped in and saved the day and make sure they were delivered into safe hands. Because we all know the CDC is quite safe in regards to what they do. Just, you know, again, and that was what, three months ago when we reported on that story. And now we're dealing with lab monkeys crashing on sort of the eastern, northeastern border of Pennsylvania. Like, give me a break. Um, I don't even know what to say at this point. Uh, but it's something to be aware of. And God knows that the fact that there are research monkeys being delivered, being delivered from Mauritius to New York and being driven to some either someplace in like what he said, uh, what was it like uh, the Midwest? And I forget the other place he stated these research facilities um, is really troubling to know that there's all this research going on and related to viruses, vaccines, therapeutics on these animals, which is in one level, extremely unethical and another level uh, raises serious, besides the ethics behind it, raises serious concerns about, well, dun, 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 Issues with leaks, lab leaks, monkey releases. I mean, my God, 12 monkeys, 100 monkeys now. I mean, it's at this point, life imitates art, and art seems to imitate life, something of that nature, as I've said before last week. And just a quick update. Um, Daniel mentioned that they we had mentioned Barry Manilow was also a part of those 
some of the artists that were demanding that their news or news their music be taken down from Spotify, but apparently the man Barry Manilow one is not true. So thus far, I think it's just uh, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell. So just to correct the record on all that. And since now we're at 2:20, and the intermission is going to be at least an hour long, I want to go ahead and get started with the intermission so we can sort of get to the end of this show. And I think what we're going to do, I just want to real quick put this on the document cam. The intermission uh, had a couple, I had a couple different choices this week. James Corbett had the annual fake news reward awards that he released yesterday. It's about an hour long alongside uh, true stream media, which also released their production about the future of work. James Corbett's productions are always masterful. And this one's uh, has some humor built into it, but it's also news items that we're well aware of. Uh, that happened over the past year. And so I think in that regard, I'll just suggest that people on their own time go and check that in, go and check that out. It's very good. Um, and there's also this Hitchcock MacGuffin effect that Corbett uh, comments on, uh, on J with Jason Burmis. That was going to be one of the intermissions. I'm going to suggest that people check those out in their own time. I'm kind of more curious with this um, post uh, work society that true stream media, since this is more of a novel sort of subject to approach and comment on. Um, I want to see what research they've done in regards to that. So I think we're going to go ahead and play the True Stream Media production, Aaron and Melissa Dykes. And I think I have a little, we're probably after that going to do a uh, the uh, Academy of Ideas, Why Are Most People Cowards? And sort of get into um, some of the psychology around the rise of tyranny in regards to people not standing up against it. And so those will be the two elements we play together. It'll be about an hour and 15 minute intermission. And then we only have one or two clips. I'm going to come back and play for you. As mentioned next week, if Richard doesn't come back in time, which right now it's totally up in the air, I don't quite know if they will or won't. Um, but if he doesn't, I'm going to save my United Nations League of Nations, well, the precursor to the United Nations, the League of Nations sort of deep dive I'd planned tonight utilizing a number of resources, including Anglo-American establishment and the strategy and hope. And I was even going to bring in some elements of um, uh, the open conspiracy, as well as uh, John Taylor Goddard's work, the underground history. But I'm going to save that, I think, for the beginning of next week. And I might have on a special guest that'll help me sort of uh, explicate that deep dive uh, in greater detail. And so I might save that for, for then. But there is at least one or two clips I want to get to because this Ukraine situation is strange and obviously we know it's there's a lot more going on behind the scenes in regards to why there's so much belligerent activity happening um by our state department by nato by germany and various other nation states and their state departments in regards to the buildup uh on the ukrainian border with russia anyway so without further ado let's go ahead and go to a truth stream media production about the future of work entitled on the real future of work and Melissa Dykes. We are witnessing the next revolution. Its name is automation. Its agent is the machine which can think for man and act for man. The servant that is so versatile and so powerful as to become master. Suddenly we hear a 
people disadvantaged and displaced. Uh, there's going to be hundreds of millions of people laid off, people who don't know what kind of jobs to get, don't know what they want, and they're basically going to be relying on things like universal basic income, other government benefits to make up for wages they don't have as they try to fit into a society that, frankly, doesn't need any of us except on the level of, of consumers and <laughs> it's it's just kind of creepy so basically i started this video while trying not to be in the way of my spouse for like the 15th time in the last hour trying to make some food for the family and look over all my email and social media contacts and get distracted by other side things that are going on while trying to dig into really what's at the heart of the future of work. And I was there at the grocery store when I first saw this and I realized I wasn't just there for food supplies and resources, but for the last remnants of human contact that are left, essential shopping, and I'm staring at this Time Magazine special edition the, on the future of work. Where do we go from here? And I wouldn't really single them out all that much, but the whole idea behind it is as if they thought up this phrase and as if their own journalistic integrity brought them to this important issue, considering how much this affects everyone, you, me, everyone. I did think it was worth pointing out that this is the very opposite of they just came up with this phrase, the future of work. This is the buzz phrase that has been workshopped and handed down hierarchically. I don't think I need to tell anyone that the World Economic Forum has just been all over these related issues, but they themselves put out a future of jobs report for 2020. They have their own center for the new economy and society, and this particular term, the future of work, has become an official buzzword for commissions and studies in various states, California, Massachusetts among them, I think Utah and a few others. And I remember too that it was a topic back in 2018, several years back before the pandemic, of the very secretive bill. I'm sorry, that's the wrong answer. They were meeting in Turin, Italy, June 7th through 10. And while they were talking about artificial intelligence, the inequality challenge, populism in Europe, free trade, quantum computing, and a weird topic called the post-truth world, they also floated the future of work. And so there in Turin, Italy, where industrialists and titans of Silicon Valley, bankers whose family have been uh, in charge of running various things for generations amongst all these important politicians and quite a few media people, a lot of editors of major papers, including the Financial Times, amongst all these people, you have in 2018 Benjamin Pring, 
the co-founder and director of the Center for the Future of Work, which is another sort of think tank type of thing based in the U.S., and they're all over this issue. So just first of all, it's not like Time Magazine conjured up this term to describe what's happening, and they really weren't very transparent about how much that term has been used by other study groups and other sort of steering groups that are, that are helping to shape what's going on, you know. And they're certainly not telling us what's being discussed inside of these secret meetings where they're workshopping these things and bringing them forward. But we do know that the founder of the Center for the Future of Work is hanging out at the secretive Bilderberg group, Benjamin Pring, and he's in discussions with people from the finance world and the media world, banking, uh, various prime ministers, important political people, a lot of media people, but also the director of UNESCO, the president of the World Economic Forum. Back in 2018, that was Bourget Brunde. More recently, it's been Klaus Schwab. They change out the figures, but these types of people are frequently in these discussions, and they're off the record, and they're private. And they also include many people involved in economics. There's a Harvard University economic professor. There's a minister of economy, science, and innovation from Canada. A minister for public expenditures and reform out of Ireland. Former vice chairman for both the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Israel. A professor of economics from the Netherlands. Members of Google and DeepMind and other big Silicon Valley corporations. LinkedIn, Harvard-MIT's Ethics and Governance of AI Initiative Director, members of the Council on Foreign Relations, computer science and communications professors, and someone whose title is Professor in the Economics of Innovation and Public Value. Doesn't that just have future of work written all over it? And you got budget and human resources people and other economists mixed in with all these powerful world leaders. And there's a similar sort of cadre of people representative of this idea in the last few years leading up to the pandemic, the last time that the group already secretive and off the record, the last time they officially had a publicly admitted meeting, which was in 2019. And so they followed up the Future of Work Institute guy with another person called Nick Bostrom, who runs the Future of Humanity Institute over at Oxford. And so these people are openly talking about these very issues. And, you know, like I said, it's tied in with Google, Alphabet, Eric Schmidt, Microsoft, and the people who are trying to roll out universal basic income and a mega technocratic system that's just completely streamlined. Anyway, this Time Magazine future of work is staring me in the face at the grocery store while I'm not talking to other living human beings and I'm just standing there blanked out waiting for my turn to swipe my plastic card and have things rung up by the barcode. You know, while I'm doing that, I keep staring at this magazine. I flipped through it a little. I took some pictures and, and for some reason I just really didn't want to contribute my money to this magazine. I didn't want to bolster their sales or anything. Not that it really matters. So I went on eBay and I got a, a second-hand copy. Ha! So there. But I figured I did need to flip through this. And the propaganda is very typical. It is a lot of propaganda and buzzwords. It's a lot of lip service. Uh, they spent a lot of time playing up diverse faces. 
the issues of various types of minorities in the workplace and addressing the very real problems of inequity that exist there. They've, they've been problems throughout the development of our time generally, and especially as an agricultural type of society shifted into an industrial and then post-industrial type of society. And you really do have to remember those kinds of transitions as we get into this. But Time Magazine breaks down, you know, the challenges and opportunities, what this pandemic has done to us, and how the age of technology has changed things. And of course, wasn't it just so fortuitous that when everyone had to stay home because they might get the... <coughs> that technology was there to hold us. They had our backs, right? The internet had grown full enough that this pandemic, it was in their hands, wasn't it? You better believe it, okay? And this is all about who's going to be the intermediary on what we know as reality. Because it's a post-truth world. So in a way, you're making an argument for our technology companies to become even more uh, involved and even uh, that they will become even more needed going forward if we're going to move towards much more information technology, information sharing. And so let's be a little bit grateful that these companies uh, got the capital, did the investment, built the tools that we're using now, and have really helped us out. Imagine having the same reality of this pandemic without those tools. Where's reality? Can you reach out and grab it? You better grab what you can. You look through this, and they're, ta they're talking about changes in the air. No the way companies structure things is going to be different in a post-pandemic world. You don't think. It's time to radically rethink how we work. There's the issue of hourly workers demanding better pay and benefits. The challenges and opportunities. We're not going back to the past. It's the issue of people not feeling fulfilled from their jobs. And this one, lovely wording. The pandemic revealed how much we hate our jobs. Now there's the obvious answer of the year award. Like they didn't know that decades ago. Career, they didn't know that, thing. really. Uh, they've known for a long time how little rewarding it is for people to, to put in their labor, especially hourly wages and a lot of low-paying service jobs. But then again, the white-collar corporate world, equally unfulfilling, largely pointless, and it's just a lot of paper pushing. And we're going to get into the reasons why. Then they get into the age of technology. Will remote work actually work for us? Can companies embrace empathy and, and how work might improve under this model? Well, I mean, it really is hitting on a lot of real issues, okay? <laughs> you can't expect human beings to barely get by on hourly wages and be treated like crap by everyone they interact with. You know, obviously that's going to be a problem. The mass unemployment and layoffs was in the first wave of what happened. And then there was the mass resignations and quitting. And this is just all tied in with the technological plan here. The crisis that begs for a response, the crisis that looks for the fulfillment of a pre-hatched plan, the type of crisis that forces attention onto the path that somebody wants, you know, emerged, okay? And we all know what happened. They closed things. They told people to stay indoors, to social distance. 
And even now, more than two years into it, so much mental energy of everyone that I know, I'm sure that you do, is just completely focused on the danger of its... I'm sorry. What are they hiding? What are they not telling us? The issues between, you know, effectiveness, very real issues, and the very real issues of civil liberties and a digital authorization, a pass for access to businesses, to travel, to the world out there. But these are really just caveats and pieces of the larger issue that they really want to interrupt. They use that word disrupt a lot. They want to disrupt normal human society. The pandemic started it, and they intend to continue it. They make it very clear in these writings. And I was kind of going back and forth between the Great Reset and a couple of documents I found online. It's all kind of an intertwined issue. But this idea comes up that that there has been a dual disruption, right? In the, in the longer trend, automation and technology has been hounding at us ever since the start of the Industrial Revolution. The period which, between 1750 AD and today. This we call the Industrial Revolution. Which, I don't know if you realize, was at the exact same time that the American Revolution started. Whether or not the hour has come to break with the mother country, to some, like Tom Paine, Everything that is right or reasonable pleads for separation. Tis time to part. That they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary. Now, with Thomas Jefferson's words, the die is cast. I think the key sort of turning point with, with factories and automated looming machines and that sort of thing really started very close to the revolution. The Watt steam engine, the Bolton, those guys were part of the Enlightenment. It was hand in hand. Next, you know. the power of steam, which had been known for centuries, this time in the first practical steam engine. Textile production in England expanded further. The factory whistle awakened people in the mornings and measured off their long days of toil. Along the Atlantic seaboard, the English factories and machines were quickly copied by the alert Americans. In the South, cotton long had been raised, and there was an abundance of slave labor. But one slave could separate only about a pound of staple from seed per day. The saw teeth of Eli Whitney's cotton gin could separate from 50 to 100 pounds per day. It didn't really catch up with people until the latter 1800s. Cotton became king. The spinning and weaving mills of the Northeast were multiplied and enlarged. Thousands of added workers went into the textile mills. When things really became mechanized, industrialized, factories, machine work. Next, there came a great surge of invention. In a single decade, from 1840 to 1850, 6,000 patents were granted, the most important being the telegraph and the sewing machine. And more and more, um, People moved away from farms. You know, they broke the agriculture system in America. Slaves were no longer in bondage, but they were sent into big cities to work in the machines. And it's a trade-off. You know, life is never without problems. Some things got better. Some things didn't. Uh, it is the height of bitter irony that the Negro people of our country should begin their strongest, most united demand for job rights, among other rights, 
at the very time that the door to employment appears to be closing in so many places. The pressure mounts. More jobs. Better jobs. Now. Moving forward, they reached a point with the technology, and we did cover this in the Minds of Men. It's very much part of cybernetics and the technological revolution that happened with mind control research. Known during the first six meetings by the longer title, Circular Causal and Feedback Mechanisms in Biological and Social Systems, these cybernetic conferences combine the innovators of the physical and biological sciences with those of the psychological and social sciences to tackle the, quote, comprehensive study of man. And it's the problem of the third and fourth industrial revolutions. They say we're on the fourth industrial revolution now, which is post-industrial. And around the World War II time period uh, came, I think, what was considered the third industrial revolution, where really a type of scientific management, operations research was one of the key words, a, a study of the data and a, a cataloging of what's most efficient and effective in terms of management, coincided with the rise of technology's ability to do things on humans' behalf and do it more efficiently and faster, and communications itself is a huge part of that. A psychologist was involved in this experiment, along with a biophysicist and a physiologist. This was the birth of personal computers, robotics, satellites, and artificial intelligence. From the very beginning, models created in the digital computer of the brain were also inversely symbolic of the mechanization of the mind, which might one day be conquered one neuron at a time. And basically, by the time the bomb drops and ends World War II, automation is completely a foregone conclusion. Norbert Wiener talked about it explicitly in the late 40s, just a couple years after the end of World War II. And he was working on stuff. He was part of the war effort on the science and research side. And he begins to talk to management societies about the degree to which automation is now a foregone conclusion. Speech about everything that his technology can do and how easy it is to replace human action, to program what people do, and to use the computers and the machinery to do it for them. And in 1951, he starts talking partway through the speech about the elimination of the human being in the process entirely. He says this elimination obviously could lead to great unemployment. We have a very interesting situation here with catastrophic possibilities what we have is the possibility of a second industrial revolution. He says, I'm not only talking of overall labor, I'm talking about white collar labor too. And really cutting into the economic backbone of ordinary people. And this is in 1950. He already knows that these machines are not limited by relatively simple matters, that they're going to get more and more sophisticated, and that there's really very little that regular people can do that machines can't do in replacing them. Most everything that we're doing is replaceable. So what does that mean for jobs? He, he's actually warning the managers in 1951 that they've got to control the implementation of this. He says, we have to adjust ourselves socially to it. Mind you, we can adjust. The adjustment will not come automatically. 
I mean that we cannot deprive people of jobs and still value them in terms of the amount they can earn on such jobs. And management knows that automation is here and it's just a question of implementation. My personal opinion is that the world will organize into things that humans are good at and computers are good at. Now, what are humans good at? The most important conversation happened in the lunchroom when Arturo Rosenbluth told the other attendees about his work with math genius Norbert Wiener on so-called teleology and goal-seeking devices. As it turned out, the behavior of organisms and machines could be neatly and simply modeled around the feedback loop. Margaret Mead was so riveted that she chipped a tooth. She said, recalling the meeting, it was 1942. When you really had the design of what needed to be done. And starting around that time, Norbert Wiener starts this kind of talk of, what are we going to do with the leisure of people? We have this new problem, not of employment, but of leisure. Uh, has Emrak been helping you any? Well, frankly, it hasn't started to give yet. For the past two weeks, we've just been feeding it information. But I think you could safely say that it will provide more leisure for more people. We have to find ways for people to occupy themselves and still fill uh, a certain type of fulfillment and still experience enough fulfillment to remain human and remain functional but also be um, sort of satiated as their actual labor is needed less for their consumption still needed and their standard of living is still needed. There is always a place for the man who can earn his pay. This is basic to our thinking. The trouble is that in many places, the machine is moving up alongside the man to compete with him instead of serving him. How can production grow while jobs go down? The answer lies in the machine, in automation, in greater efficiency per man hour. There are more and more places where you can't beat the machine for efficiency and earning power, as more and more men are learning to their sorrow. So it's a big problem, and the reason I don't think that we saw more from management with automation that early on in 1950 is not just because some of it takes time to develop and implement and just because the idea of automation is there, it's not the same as having each test that's manufactured uh, up to speed. But also, it was really just a management problem of implementing on the human side. How many of these corporate jobs, like I said, have been paper pushing around glorified reasons for people to get up in the morning? I mean, uh, these white collar jobs, <laughs> I mean, probably most of you have seen like the Office Space movie the image of these corporate jobs sitting around terminals and water coolers and coffee rooms, a lot of that work has always been pointless, you know? It's just occupying people in the larger transition phase, which has taken several generations. I think work is pretty much what society says it is at any given point in time, and I think it's essentially a matter of how society wants to define it. And I would... I accept the Freudian notion that man's tie with reality is through work, and that work is essential if you're going to have a stable society, uh, so that I would not want to eliminate it. But I do think we're going to have to redefine it. We may have to call things work that in the past have been thought of as leisure or luxury or fun or play. 
perhaps we might even create a happier generation in, these, in this way, I'm not sure. And we know that our biggest problem is that we're all victims of habit. And because someone has been accustomed to working eight hours or because the executive occasionally puts in some extra time, he can't understand why his workers shouldn't still continue to work eight hours at a time when it's no longer necessary. It's hard to understand that it's no longer necessary to have everybody working eight hours or more. At any rate, obviously a lot's happened since World War II to bring us to this point. And now's not really the time to recap all that. But getting back to the pandemic times, the development of technology and artificial intelligence in particular, in combination with COVID, has created what these people, these future of work buzzword people, are considering a dual disruption. The effects of COVID, they say, accelerated the technological displacement of work. It accelerated what was happening with artificial intelligence. It accelerated the automation, the replacement of human labor altogether across virtually every field. Uh, a new kind of revolution is beginning to occur around the world, not here alone. And as is usual with this kind of a social revolution, uh, in the past, the events have always overtaken us. And my only purpose now is to call enough attention to what's going on. Okay, so what they're revealing with this language is it's not so much about the pandemic <coughs> and its diseases. That's not really the story. It's about the acceleration of something that was already planned and already unfolding that now has happened suddenly and taken a pivotal turn overnight. And you've got to begin to recognize and separate the distraction for what it is from the larger issue. Yes, there are very real important issues surrounding the story of a pandemic <coughs> and its disease and solutions, but that itself is just one of the roads into this larger story of technological replacement and automation, which I know you all know quite a bit about. They come in empty and the machine takes over. the machine gives them life, turns them into symbols of ourselves, queuing up for the future, moved by forces beyond our control, getting on board for a destination that remains vague. The men who watch the machine tell us something about modern work. Well, that's mostly what they do, watch. And yet they are highly skilled men. Each one understands the operation from start to finish, knows where to look for signs of trouble, what to do when the machine goes wrong. Mostly they watch the machine with what might be called an engaged detachment. And it showed up in all these movies. And, uh, you know, it's a major theme in our dystopic stories and culture all around. You know, we've been warning each other and we've also spooked ourselves out with stylized ghost stories of this world to come, this blend of, uh, of Brave New World and 1984 mixed with, you know, high-tech computery type stuff. Of all of them, I think um, Michael Crichton's Westworld and the sequel, Future World, really come to mind. And it, it was a very cheesy uh, movie, I thought, especially the sequel, Future World. But it was also very on point. They started with the idea that there's a getaway, there's a fantasy Disney world of the future where technology can let you live out 
all your fears and desires and the fantasies of what it was like in the past. You can make it with a robot or have a shootout with a guy from the Old West, or you could play chess in a lifelike, augmented reality super set straight out of Alice in Wonderland. And it gives people something to do. And those machines went awry, the few actor machines that stood in for those fantasies. But in the second part of the story, the sequel, what they get up to is that really that technology of automation, these robots, these artificial intelligence robots, aren't just a fantasy pleasure device. They're not a vehicle for transporting you to your fantasies of various sorts. They are a vehicle for replacing humanity itself. And in the plot of this movie, they start from the top down and start inviting in and replacing one for one influential and powerful, rich, uh, celebrated people from society and replacing them with lookalike robots that are programmable and that fit in with the world they're building. That's the sort of thing we're talking about. And as they get us to stay home from work and yield to the <coughs> pandemic and give in to this fear of intimacy, this fear of human contact, and this view that humanity itself and each other are a problem to ourselves, uh, they're very much creating new problems, obviously. We've all been trained and our courts are geared to it and our thinking is geared to property value. How long is it going to take until we get around uh, to uh, human value? We gave a serious thought to human value as we do to property value. I'll give you an illustration of that. If on Third Avenue tonight some fellow... Uh, breaks a window. He'll get arrested and he'll either be uh, uh, he'll be brought to court and he'll either be fined or he'll be sent away for breaking that window. But some company can sit down and shut down a plant which will destroy a whole uh, town. Now we must ask ourselves, who's done the most damage in the community? The fellow who broke the window? Or the people who have shut down a plant which destroyed a whole town? It really reaches a point of isolation. Well, the effect anyway is going to be isolation. They keep telling us the goal is connectivity, and networked around the world, get on social media where you have no one in the room with you. You're responding to memes with emojis from your toilet, where you're sending messages to people you kind of know, maybe a few of them actually have become real friends of yours, but most of them are just on your populated network tree of people you kind of know, you kind of have something in common with, but you're not really connecting with. And this is great for a future that's going to be dominated by corporations, where corporations themselves become the monarchs and the leaders of our society. But here is truly the most wonderful and exciting thing I've ever had the chance to talk about. It's the Westinghouse Total Electric Home. A home where electricity does everything. Heats, cools, illuminates, launders, preserves and prepares foods, entertains. It even lights a path to the front door with rayescent strip lighting. 
When you step inside the total electric home, you step into an entirely new concept in living, organized around electric centers, such as this entertainment center. Electric heating and cooling keep the home constantly and automatically at the most livable temperatures all year round. Sterile lamps kill airborne bacteria, while electrostatic filters remove pollen and dust. This is great for a future where corporations do not need our human labor, but they need our eyeballs and they need our attention and they need our inherent fears and desires. You know, a lot of this is Edward Bernays' propaganda PR 101, right? Uh, the Century of the Self was the definitive documentary on it. Very eye-opening if you haven't seen it. This episode is about Freud's American nephew, Edward Bernays. He showed American corporations for the first time how they could make people want things they didn't need by linking mass-produced goods to their unconscious desires. Out of this would come a new political idea of how to control the masses. By satisfying people's inner selfish desires, one made them happy and thus docile, which was the start of the all-consuming self, which has come to dominate our world today. A lot of it is what Sean Parker and other Facebook and Silicon Valley titans have said about their own technology. Their goal was to keep you engaged for as long as possible. When Facebook was getting going, I had these people who would come up to me um, and they would say, you know, I'm not on social media. And I would say, okay, you know, you will be. And then they would say, they would say, no, 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 no. I value my real life interactions. I value the moment. I value presence and I value intimacy. And like, I don't know if I really understood the consequences of what I was saying. It literally changes your relationship with society, with each other. God only knows what it's doing to, to our children's brains. Does it matter if it's a bad response or a positive response? No, they don't care. They want your engagement. That thought process was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while um, because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. The founders of the great Silicon Valley spying empires like Facebook have publicly declared that they intentionally included addictive schemes in, in their designs. It's a social validation feedback loop because you're exploiting a vulnerability in, in human psychology. And they found out that if engagement is the goal, they can get more engagement out of negative, provocative, hate-filled responses than they can from get-along, good, Sally, friendly responses, right? Um, so the algorithms naturally catch the negativity and amplify it and introduce negative people to each other and all of this. When researchers try to determine whether positivity or negativity is more powerful, they're roughly at parity. They're both important. but. The difference with social media is that the algorithms, they're looking for the quick responses, and the negative responses, like getting startled or scared or irritated or angry, tend to rise faster than the, uh, the positive responses, like building trust or feeling good. Jared Lanier, who was part of uh, the whole project of telecommunications nationwide, 
you know, at the turn of the, of the century, he said that in an interview. So Sean Parker, Jared Lanier, and uh, Pally Apatia, these kind of people. I feel tremendous guilt. Um, I think in the back, deep, deep recesses of our minds, we, we kind of knew something bad could happen. But I think the way we defined it was not like this. It literally is a point now where I think we have created tools that are ripping apart the social fabric of how society works. The short-term dopamine-driven feedback loops that we have created, and it is a point in time where people need to hard break from some of these tools. Have warned and sort of invited us into the boiling frog water of what's really going on. These social media companies really want to isolate us and harvest our engagement for lack of a better word. It's made people jittery and cranky. It's made uh, teens especially depressed. And because it's, it's so algorithmic, it doesn't involve direct communication and people don't get the cues to understand what's happening with them. You know, my solution is I just don't use these tools anymore. I haven't for years. Um, and it's weird, I guess I kind of just innately didn't want to get programmed. And so I just turned, tuned it out, but I didn't confront it. And now to see what's happening, it's really, it really, it really bums me out. So they need us as consumers up to a point. They really don't need our human labor and work anymore. Not really. Yes, they need influencers. Yes, they'll keep a certain level of jobs around for stability. But things are changing really rapidly. And we've reached a point where... They have patents on how you can earn crypto uh, in the physiology calculus of your body while you're watching ads on a Microsoft platform, just for instance. And they have plans for children to make crypto money while they're playing video games. Okay, maybe it's cool for kids to make some money on the side, but what they're really learning is to entrain themselves and behaviorize themselves into greater and greater consumer passive engagement with these, quote, social media platforms, with these immersive metaverse quasi-worlds, right? And so what is a corporation, a new monarchy, what do they really want from their citizens they want them to be a captive audience. They want them to be readily receptive to everything they want them to consume and deprived of everything that would compete with that. And that really is namely human contact and socialization in the world that we've known up to now. As the men do their hard, heavy, old-fashioned work, they look over their shoulder at the mechanized movement of cargo. Not many men are needed for this. Not many pairs of hands. The decision to automate, therefore, is forced upon us. We must separate pay from work. The combination of the power of the machine and the skill of the machine creates a situation where we now know, no matter what we do, we will never again put all Americans who are capable of work back to work. And these... Uh pockets of unemployment, permanent unemployment, are beginning to appear around the country. Even if you're out and about and you're interacting with people that aren't really your favorite or they're okay, there's something inherently important uh, that's developed out of the way that species have developed on this planet, the way that human behavior has built up, but a lot of animal behavior too, 
on an importance around socialization. There's something inherently important uh, in our brains and our mental health with eye contact, handshakes. I could have told you that. Being at a social circle, you know, working together in some capacity in our tribes and our societies and our groups, our communities, whatever you want to call them, by imitating that online and inviting people into quasi versions of that they're hoping to placate people enough to substitute those needs while at the same time creating a certain atmosphere of lack out of desperation for that kind of human contact and then selling people on a false engagement of that type of contact they mention in Time Magazine they've got Zoom and Apple FaceTime and everything that they've been doing corporate meetings on, but you really can't look into the computer and look into someone's eye at the same time. You can look at their face on the screen, or you can look into the camera, and if you look into the camera, you have a little bit better eye contact, but you can't really see the other person. Or if you look at the other person, you're not really making camera eye contact with them. And they know that's a problem, so they have patch apps that correct for your lack of attention, that fake your eye contact with the person on the other end to give a false impression that you're really making some sort of eye contact and therefore some sort of human contact between you because there's just something about it. And they know they have a problem with that. Any real man knows a firm handshake, a look in the eye, that's basic respect. And they know that the lack of touch creates uh, a real dearth in, in what it means to be human. And this is very much a crossroads into the world of transhumanism. You know, somewhere beyond this are a species of human-like people that aren't human anymore. And if they don't have enough emotional maturity, enough empathy, enough interaction with each other, these humans of the near future or of an alternate world, hopefully it can be turned around and averted, um... They're a very impoverished type of human. If they're still human at all, they're humans who will be very lacking in all types of emotion and neurochemicals associated with the physical and social contact in this world. And it hasn't shown to be very healthy in a physical, physiological, and mental health type of way for people. They already know that. Dr. Hebb discovered a clear threshold at which a man's mind, any mind, would break down within a matter of days. Many participants hallucinated within just 48 hours. Those who stuck it out began to see things, hear things. Some felt their heads had become disconnected from their body. Others felt they had two bodies. One claimed he saw purposeful squirrels marching with sacks over their shoulders, while another claimed he'd been attacked by pellets fired from a miniature rocket ship. Hebb and his researchers concluded a changing sensory environment seems essential for human beings, noting that without it, a major breakdown in thought processes akin to a psychotic break could be quickly achieved in just a few simple, inexpensive steps. That's why the worst punishment in prison is to be put in the stripy hole and isolated from everyone. And even 24 or 48 hours at that point, and when they cut you off from light and everything, it could be extremely detrimental to the human psyche and in a prolonged sense, it leads to early death. They've done all these studies, they have the statistics, and they've shown that a certain level of isolation, it causes the hypothalamus to shrink, 
and various types of important internal fluids are deprived, not flowing where they're supposed to, and a part of the self sort of shrivels up from that, and it, it leads to an early death. It is worse than chain smoking, right? They've got statistics on that. People die statistically 15 years earlier from that. You know, there's a range of, I'm not that social of a person compared with some people for sure, but I still appreciate some social interaction. And I've really been feeling the loneliness and deprivation of that these last couple of years, especially, and working from home generally for uh, about a decade now, I've noticed, okay? And instead, you know, they want us kind of cooped up so we can't wait to escape this world and interact with their fake play worlds while we've all agreed to our own isolation. What do they need laws and punishments and crimes and and police officers for if they can get everyone to isolate themselves and deprive themselves of something in life, you know? That if you deprive someone of their senses for long enough, they will become totally disoriented in time and space and in their entire thought process. Without external stimuli, one is left in a closed circuit. Thoughts will go round and round and round in an endless loop. When the information is fed back in, and it's the only information available, what else could be the result? But that even nonsense would be a logical conclusion. When isolation is used as a weapon, Dr. Felix made clear, anyone could be broken down by this technique. When you look into the rationales and the writing here in the Time Magazine and the Great Reset and these other comparable publications and all these public statements, it becomes pretty clear that the climate crisis also becomes a pretext for the acceleration of automation. And once again, whereas there's, of course, very real environmental issues, the real driving factor of the limitations surrounding climate crisis when it comes to human action is really based on keeping people at home, introducing digital intermediaries, cutting down on the lifestyle of things and putting people into uh, the digital representation. And the end result of that is isolation from human contact, removing all of us theoretically from society. And South Korea has taken this to the extremes. They were just in the news for aiming to cut human interaction and begin building a, quote, untacked society. No human contact. And they're going to invest heavily in removing layers of human contact. And among other things, they plan to build their own metaverse for the capital city in Seoul and build a digital government with avatar representatives, not real representatives, no one you could redress grievances with. Well, I mean, technically you can file complaints and you could pay your bills and your taxes and what have you. And since they don't want people congregating, you can also go to their famous festivals in the metaverse. You know, fine, interesting idea. But the way they make it seem is as if it's going to be 
solidly built into place within about five years. They're introducing it now, they're building it up, but they make it sound like they intend for it to be complete as if everyone would be required or at least heavily encouraged to operate within that system within just a few short years. There's sort of a cute overlay to this as if the world is going to become an animal crossing wherever you are and you're going to go walk up to your little digital mayor and pay your little pittance tax and everything. But underneath that is a system that not only transfers all the power to Silicon Valley and other makers of the technology, but it literally dehumanizes people. It doesn't just give business to monopolies. This isn't just about money. This is about some very strange human engineering. And where does it end? You know, it's fine to have a machine deliver fast food to you and not have many old workers flipping burgers and scooping fries. But uh, <laughs> but when that's the end-all be-all and there's no human to talk to about your issues, if the computer doesn't recognize your problem or doesn't understand your question or doesn't have an answer for that, you know, who are you going to ask? You know, maybe the metaverse is going to be very interesting. I'm not trying to take away the merits of, of a system like this potentially. And again, like it could be very cute, have all your favorite celebrities in their avatar form and you could meet them allegedly or whatever. But it's, it, I don't know, it feels like a trap. They write, Untact has made many aspects of life so convenient. I reserve my library books online, which would then be sanitized in a book sterilizer before being delivered to a locker for pickup. Because, again, I made this point before, books are the number one transmitters of diseases between people. It's very scary what you could pick up from reading a book whenever. <laughs> Introduced in 2020, Untact is a South Korean government policy that aims to spur economic growth by removing layers of human interaction from society. It gathered pace during the, the pandemic, <coughs> by no means done with the pandemic. It's expanding rapidly across the sectors of healthcare, business, entertainment, and again, government already has been taken into account. All of it. The push to create contactless services is designed to increase productivity, cut bureaucracy, but it's also fueled concerns about potential consequences. A sociological professor says that while there are advantages, it also threatens social solidarity and may end up isolating individuals. Gee, you think? If more people lose the feeling of contact during the lack of face-to-face -face interaction, society will encounter a fundamental crisis. I really think that is true. And there's a lot of truth to it. I think there's some really big issues there. Civil services are getting a facelift under the untacked policies as well. Soul City plans to build a, quote, metaverse, a virtual space where users can interact with digital representatives of people and objects, avatars of public officials who are resolved complaints. So if you thought they were puppets in empty suits before in government, now it's literally going to be avatars that are just images of public officials. Who knows if they're even elected representatives anymore. And instead of talking to the real people you can never get through to, you can have like a chat bot with the face of the government official answer your questions. So that'll finally feel like democracy at last. Am I right? I mean, the empty big suits working for the corporations now will literally just be avatars of cute, respectable officials who look like authorities, and underneath it, they're really just low-grade AI. 
<laughs> Maybe they always are a government. Several local governments have launched AI call bots to monitor the health of those self-isolating. They also talked about a robot that'll chew you out if you're not wearing a mask while it sterilizes everything. I just think it's crazy. Sociologist Choi Young Rule says Untacked provided some advantages, allowing anonymity through electronic devices, freeing people from the pressures of formality, reducing emotional labor associated with the service industry, the latter problem being acute, where customer service is highly valued, hierarchical structures persist, and abusive behavior by those in positions of power, known as gabjil, is commonplace. But feelings of loneliness and social fragmentation remain. And those are going to be some of the biggest trends, really. Loneliness and isolation are just playing out going to be some of the biggest issues. Some unions in heavy industry demand what is called loneliness pay, an extra percentage like flight pay, to be given workers who spend their whole working life removed from human contact, relating to a machine. So with something like a billion people who are going to need to be reskilled in the next five to ten years, many of whom lost their jobs instantly during the pandemic or now as layers of technology take over their jobs, uh, there's going to be hundreds of millions of people laid off, people who don't know what kind of jobs to get, don't know what they want. And they're basically going to be relying on things like universal basic income, other government benefits to make up for wages they don't have as they try to fit into a society that, frankly, doesn't need any of us except on the level of, of consumers. And <laughs> it's, it's just kind of creepy. And there's an app for that. There'll be an app for everything. We'll be networked and connected to death. AI will be in charge of almost everything. Telecommuting will be the way to go. You know, they're going to have these holographic speakers at presentations. And uh, obviously, you already know they plan to clamp down on travel. People will be in their homes playing and watching things and making NFTs, I guess. And that's fine or whatever. But we've already seen that they're not going to tolerate free speech this is going to be a very controlled and monitored system where a keyword given to AI is going to shut down everything you've worked for. Maybe you're criticizing the subject of the keyword and the AI doesn't know that because you just mentioned the keyword. So now you can't even call out something that is bad. The authorization and validation tech has already been forced on us and, and quite clearly they, they intend for that to expand. So, Time Magazine said on page 77, quote, People evolve to shake hands and gather together, even when doing so spreads disease. So there must be something beneficial to it. Yeah, there's something about the natural world. We're social creatures by nature, they always say. And there's something about the interaction, the energy between people, what happens through eye contact, shaking of hands, hugging when it's appropriate, these kind of things. Uh, they could try to replicate them in the metaverse, online, in the digital environment, but it just isn't the same. There's a physiological thing that happens for our health and sanity, you know, and there's also just something legitimate about it, something authentic. 
that's going to be really hard to reproduce and I don't even really want to see them succeed in reproducing it I just want what's authentic and natural and, and beneficial to remain so I guess I'm doomed to be a relic of the past but you could see just with the pandemic and the climate crisis as buzzwords and operative uh, topics you know that they're perfectly willing to sacrifice what's human for the environment, for the greater good, and for any of these other interrelated reasons. But really, underlying it, when you look at the analysis, the coming wave of automation and the benefit that that offers to corporations who basically just want to exploit people and don't want them to be fulfilled and have the basics that they need from human interaction, um, it allows them to exploit through this wave of automation uh, all kinds of things, an app for everything, uh, a way to stay connected to people, a way to make it look like you're looking at people for real in the 3D world, like you're making real eye contact because it'd be too hard just to get people together in a room and let them have that because they could spread disease through shaking hands. You've heard all this kind of talk, but frankly, I think they know better. They've groomed these these topics, these pet words. They've loaded them with meaning. They've saddled it with decades of propaganda or years in the case of this pandemic. And they've conditioned people not to know what's even for their own good. They've conditioned people to, to shame people for trying to live the old ways or just try to maintain what humanity's left. You know, they can make all the avatars and holographs they want, but I think... The next real <laughs> is one of human loneliness and isolation. And I think it stands to be extremely bad for mental health, very bad for the physical health of the body, the physiological health. I, I, it's very clear from the science what the benefits are to shake hands, to touch, to hug, to be held by your mother. I really pity those people who didn't have nurturing parents, you know, but... For them to try to cut it out for everyone, to try to take that layer away and put on a happy layer of, you know, the digital mother, the digital mayor, your digital friends. I don't see how it could ever be fulfilling. And it could be very, literally very harmful for millions and billions of people. And if they really follow through with all this and take it to its extremes, there will definitely be consequences for human health. No doubt about it. So I'm in an obsolete uh, <laughs> a job that doesn't exist anymore because now they've got new um, new things I think called monitor boards. This is the last the last straw. In my opinion, anyway, this is it's the end of the road after this, is there, there is no place else. Beyond our world, there's another world.
and it's right here on my face. Welcome. This is Horizon. Think of me as your guide slash self-appointed spokes avatar here to show you around. You know, Horizon is filled with possibilities. You can play stuff, make stuff, fly stuff. Whoa! Really love the stash, Stuart. What up, Stuart? Wait, I want a mustache. Horizon isn't about rules or limits or pants or people telling you not to fly an airplane while drinking your fresh ground fair trade French press morning coffee through a curly straw. Isn't that right, Debbie? Mm-hmm. It's about getting out there and trying new things, making your mark, making friends with an Australian named Mark. Oh, actually, I'm from New Zealand. And you can even build a world of your own, like laser tag moon landing. Or this islandy place with these cutie patooties. In Horizon, the world is your lobster. Isn't it oyster? That too. So come, join us. A never-ending, ever-changing world beyond your world is waiting! Wow. This content is made possible by individuals like you. Become a supporting member and access our growing library of membership courses and videos. Learn more about our membership at academyofideas.com slash members. Authoritarianism in religion and science, let alone politics, is becoming increasingly accepted. Not particularly because so many people explicitly believe in it, but because they feel themselves individually powerless and anxious. So what else can one do except follow the mass political leader, or follow the authority of customs, public opinion, and social expectations? The American psychologist Rollo May wrote these words in 1953, and in the decades that followed, the West tiptoed into tyranny. A mass surveillance state was established. Free speech gave way to increasing levels of censorship. Statist bureaucracy and stifling regulations invaded ever more areas of life, and tax rates reached levels that in the past would have caused a revolution. However, in recent years, this tiptoe into tyranny has turned into a sprint as some Western countries are flirting with full-blown totalitarian rule. But the existence of power-hungry and psychologically disturbed politicians who desire total control is not what makes our situation particularly precarious, for such individuals exist in all ages. Rather, our troubles lie with the fact that very few people possess the one virtue that can turn the tide back in the direction of freedom— that being the virtue of courage, and as Alexander Solzhenitsyn warned in 1978, a decline in courage may be the most striking feature which an outside observer notices in the West in our days. Should one point out that from ancient times declining courage has been considered the beginning of the end? In this video we are going to explore how a hyperconformity and blind obedience has infected the West and, in the process, crowded out the cultivation of courage. We will discuss how a widespread cowardice is permitting the rise of authoritarianism, and how a rebirth of courage is the antidote to our precarious political predicament. The pathological conformity that infects the West is generations in the making and the result of a confluence of factors. 
It is driven by a value system in which social validation occupies a preeminent position. It is furthered by the use of social media and the fact that success on these platforms is achieved by virtue signaling and conforming to the moral flavors of the day. It is also a product of an education system which deifies the democratic ideal and promotes the rights of the majority over the rights of the individual. These factors, combined with others, has created a society of hyperconformists. And as Rollo May explained, the opposite to courage, in our particular age, is automaton conformity. One of the ways that Western conformity manifests is through a blind obedience and a pathological need to follow rules. Most people believe that to be a good person is to be a compliant person, and to do what one is told by those in positions of political power and their lackeys in the media and celebrity culture. In acting with blind obedience, the conformist fails to differentiate between morality and legality, and so remains willfully ignorant of the fact that government rules can be immoral, driven by corruption, and that sometimes they pave the way for individual and social ruin. Or as Rollo May explains, Our particular problem in the present day is an overwhelming tendency toward conformity. In such times, ethics tend more and more to be identified with obedience. One is good to the extent that one obeys the dictates of society. It is as though the more unquestioning obedience the better. But what really is ethical about obedience? If one's goal were simple obedience, one could train a dog to fulfill the requirements very well. To see other people exercise independent judgment, self-responsibility and self-reliance disturbs the conformist's belief in the value of obedience and so threatens their sense of self. It is not the case, therefore, that the conformist obeys while permitting others the freedom to make their own choice. Rather, as Stanley Feldman explains in a paper titled Enforcing Conformity, people who value social conformity support the government when it wants to increase its control over social behavior and punish nonconformity. Valuing social conformity increases the motivation for placing restrictions on behavior. The desire for social freedom is now subservient to the enforcement of social norms and rules. Thus, groups will be targeted for repression to the extent that they challenge social conformity. When a majority advocates for the government enforcement of conformity, a society places itself on what the psychologist Irvin Staub called a continuum of destruction. As the government uses coercion and force to punish a non-compliant minority, The majority rationalizes their support of such authoritarian measures by further demonizing the non-compliant, thus leading to increasingly severe government measures. One psychological consequence of harm-doing is further devaluation of victims. People tend to assume that victims have earned their suffering by their actions or character. In several countries in the 20th century, such as the Soviet Union, Turkey, Germany, Cambodia, and China, Government measures such as banning certain minority groups from restaurants, pubs, cafes, and other public spaces, imposing curfews, expelling them from their jobs, forcing them to pay fines, and restricting their freedom of movement and assembly, functioned as the first steps on a continuum of destruction that ended in mass scapegoating, mass imprisonment, and mass murder. In his book The Psychology of Good and Evil, Irvin Staub elaborates on the psychological mechanism that facilitates a continuum of destruction. How does harmful behavior become the norm? Doing harm to a good person or passively witnessing it is inconsistent with a feeling of responsibility for the welfare of others 
and the belief in a just world, inconsistency troubles us. We minimize it by reducing our concern for the welfare of those we harm or allow to suffer. We devalue them, justify their suffering by their evil nature or by higher ideals. A changed view of the victims, changed attitude toward that suffering, and changed self-concept result. To counter the continuum of destruction that is a product of too much conformity and too much government force, more people need to act with moral courage. Moral courage entails a willingness to encounter risks so as to defy immoral orders, reject authoritarian government control, and to stand up for the disappearing values of truth, freedom, and justice. And as Rushworth Kidder explains in his book Moral Courage, where there's no danger, there's no courage. Anyone can endure security and well-being. The real challenges arise in the face of hazard. So it is with moral courage, where danger is endured for the sake of an overarching commitment to conscience, principles, or core values. Some acts of moral courage are accompanied by mild risks, such as being ridiculed, insulted, or ostracized. If, for example, we speak out against a status quo belief in the presence of a group of conformists, or if we refuse to adhere to social practices or mandates that are immoral or idiotic, we may lose friends or attract choice words from the obedient, but this is a small price to pay in exchange for doing what we believe is right. For as Rollo May explains, the hallmark of courage in our age of conformity is the capacity to stand on one's own convictions. However, sometimes acts of moral courage are accompanied by more grave risks including, but not limited to, the loss of employment, physical or financial penalties, imprisonment, or in some cases, even death. Of all the agonizing ethical dilemmas facing humanity, writes Rushworth Kidder, few are more wrenching than the choice between what's right for the world and what's right for you and your family. Carl Jung called the men and women willing to confront great dangers in defiance of tyranny the true leaders of mankind. And to learn about the mindset of one of these leaders, we can turn to the story of Viktor Pestov. In 1967, Pestov was a 20-year-old living in the Soviet Union. His family was well off by Soviet standards, and his mother was a high-ranking member of the KGB. Yet Pestov could not avert his eyes from the boot of tyranny that was crushing society and so he took a keen interest in political matters. And when Soviet tanks rode into Czechoslovakia and violently stamped out the human rights protest known as the Prague Spring, Pestov told his friend, We must do something about this. Pestov and his brother set up a clandestine group called Free Russia, and he warned those who joined that they would likely be arrested within the year. Yet all agreed that the battle for freedom justified the risk and so they began publishing pamphlets exposing the lies of the Soviet regime and snuck out in the dead of night to distribute them. The KGB quickly identified the group as a threat, and in 1970, Pestov was arrested. His mother was fired from the KGB and never allowed to work in Russia again, and Pestov was sentenced to five years in a Soviet prison camp. Pestov decided to stand up to the Soviet regime and therein place himself and inadvertently his mother in great danger because he could not in good conscience sit idly by as a corrupt regime of thousands destroyed the lives of millions. He understood that if he did not stand up for the freedom of others, he could not expect others to stand up for his, and that if nobody did anything, everyone was doomed. And so, he chose to face danger, to fight for freedom, and to place a portion of the fate of society on his back. 
He saw himself as fighting against the malevolent idea that someone will think for you, someone will make decisions for you, and as he explained, a person should be the master of his own fate. In a conversation with Rushworth Kidder, Pestov reflected on the grave dangers he voluntarily faced and on the five years he spent in prison. I believe I did the right thing, Pestov concluded. I wasn't silent. I was saying and doing what I had to do. There was a very small contribution of mine to the fact that the communists were pushed out of power. Unless more people can muster up the moral courage to renounce conformity in favor of standing up for freedom and for what is right, and at the very least make a small contribution to combating tyranny, Western societies will continue moving towards what Ayn Rand called the stage of the ultimate inversion, or as she warns, we are fast approaching the stage of the ultimate inversion, the stage where the government is free to do anything it pleases, while the citizens may act only by permission, which is the stage of the darkest periods of human history, the stage of rule by brute force. Become a supporting member and access our growing library of membership courses and videos. Learn more about our membership at academyofideas.com members. It's a very prescient and salient point by Ayn Rand. Um, it's a stage of just brutal uh, depravity. Um, the fact that human beings lack any sort of moral conviction or courage or any sort of individuality within that sort of system. And systems like that have manifested in the past and they create the worst sort of tyrannies possible. And it's antithetical to human nature, which is why human nature ultimately rises up against it. But then it seems like over time, due to the successes of individual sort of cultures that emerge from that sort of tyrannical situation, I don't know, it's just the success of the, the sort of economic struggle that emerges, emerges from that. But for some reason, to the, the wealth generated, it seems to go back into a sort of uh, downward spiral or downward trend. And there's a sort of ebb and flow of culture and history that one certainly can analyze and becomes conspicuous if one studies history long enough. Um, you know, uh, we could talk about the, the Roman Empire, you know, the Greek city-states, even before then, the Achaemenid Empire, which would be the Persian Empire. And um, it's rise and fall. And there's certainly, I mean, Will Durant used to point out this, but there's a, a definite uh, moral decay that takes place within the culture itself that that is sort of uh, a metastasized cancer that doesn't always come from prescriptive authorities on top. It becomes, comes from the fact that a moral decay happens in the average person or a sort of apathy develops um, due to the excesses of normal life that are available to them. And they don't engage in any sort of courageous behavior. This is obviously echoed by individuals at a more psychological level like Carl Jung, uh, Joseph Campbell, and obviously a sort of contemporary or modern interpretation of those ideas would be Jordan Peterson that talks about the sort of hero idea and the call to action of the hero. And oftentimes what's not mentioned about the hero's journey that the hero and, and the most significant stories has to be sacrificed. So there is an ultimate sacrifice um, in this struggle. I mean, when you use the example of the, the Russian that stood up and decided to publish pamphlets and go about distributing them in Soviet Russia, he knew that he was going to sacrifice his mother's position and he was going to be sentenced to the gulag. He knew that was going to happen. So at what point do we... When do we reach? Our, when do we reach our breaking point? You know, I, we had discussion with Brett Benad, and privately, I've talked to him about this, and he and I agreed 
you know, one of the things that's very pernicious about our situation, this alludes to what Aaron, um, uh, Aaron Dykes was talking about is the issue of, we live in a society, such hyperabundance that it's very easy to give people at least the semblance of the idea of meeting their most, most basic of needs, food and shelter. And of course, with the internet and this, this sort of intermediary between consciousness and this, this closed system it creates, um, we're at a precedent in history never before experienced. And a pre rather, a precedent is now being set in history where we're not sure if like a, a sort of a courageous individual will rise up and will overcome um, the sort of tyranny that's manifesting. Because before in the past, in other words, people responded to the incentive of the, of the inability to meet the most basic of needs. And on, right now with this machine culture, this automated culture that's developing uh, economically, it's likely that those, at least those most basic of needs will be met across a large swaths of populations, not only in the West, but the East and even in developing countries. And that's very pernicious because we don't know what that's going to look like in the future. Are they, in other words, do they have us so well mapped out, especially this element of standing up against the tyranny that they have that's built into the model that they're rolling out. And so far this intermediary, this, this cybernetic feedback loop they're creating through the panopticon technocracy they're bringing in. And will that prevent that sort of natural element in the human spirit to want to rise up against it? you know, it remains to be seen. It certainly does. Um, I do want to just point out, I mean, because he, Aaron Dykes brought this up and Rich and I had read this book, oh, many, many, many years ago. Um, let me see here. I have the page I want to talk about, but I'm just going to get into it very quickly. Obviously the human use of human beings by cybernetics or then subtitle cybernetics and society by Norbert Wiener. So um, I'm not going to run to my library and try to dig through and find the copy, but there's a couple of key sections I wanted to point out. And while I scroll back to the section I had highlighted, which is on page 152, I want to go over the definition of cybernetics, at least etymologically speaking, and how it's used in different contexts and different times. So cybernetics, a noun, theory or study of communication control, coined 1948 by U.S. mathematician Norbert Wiener, 1894 to 1964. Uh, Latinized from Greek kybernetes, which means steersman, metaphorically a guide or governor from kybernin to steer or pilot a ship, direct as a pilot, figuratively to guide or govern, which is of uncertain origin. Abiks agrees that the word has no cognates and concludes foreign origin is probable. The construction is perhaps based on 1830s French kybernetique, the art of governing, a cybernetique, something like that, however you pronounce French. And going to the work, let me see here. So this carries on the metaphor of being a steersman or helmsman of a ship. On page 152, Wiener writes, here feedback is used to regulate the velocity of a machine. In the ship's steering engine, it regulates the position of the rudder. The man at the wheel operates a light transmission system employing chains or hydraulic transmission, which moves a member in the room containing the steering engine. There is some sort of apparatus which notes this distance between this member and the tiller, and this distance controls the admission of steam to the ports of a steam steering engine or some similar electrical admission in the case of an electrical steering engine. Whatever the particular connections may be, this change of admission is always in such a direction as to bring into coincidence the tiller and the member actuated from the wheel. 
Thus, one man at the wheel can do with ease what a whole crew could only do with difficulty at the old manpower wheel. And so what he's doing is he's, and in this chapter, if I scroll up, it's called the first and second industrial revolution. So he's sort of comparing and contrasting sort of manpower and the emerging sort of automated state, the sort of the, the scientific management, the assembly line mentality, machines able to do mass production. And then he's talking about it in the context of greater and greater efficiency where man gains even more control over a machine in the context of like a, a steersman, for example, especially a more complex steam powered engine and more when humans were needed to help amplify those jobs. Um, now those jobs are no longer needed jobs in the loosest sense of the word, meaning that, uh, this technology stands in place of that as an intermediary. And now one person can do what many men could only dream of doing, um, in this closed system. Now, when we fast forward it a little bit, now he, he talks about this and the first and second industrial revolution. The second is sort of like machine to mach machine to machine communication and this idea of feedback and uh, automation on a level of complex machinery where beyond just rote organization and tasks that are pre-programmed, there's a sort of fuzzy logic that can emerge. There's a sort of ability to be able to do probabilistic models and almost an emerging simulacrum of consciousness within the machine itself, which will render human beings even more useless and more worthless, at least in the context of needing to do nothing more than fix any machines that break down. But of course, the machines might be able to fix themselves over time. So again, going with Aaron Dykes's point is pushing the human human being farther and farther out of uh, out of being altogether. And so, if we fast forward to page one fifty nine, I think this is sort of an important element here, if I remember correctly. In other words. The machine plays no favorites between manual labor and white collar labor. Thus, the possible fields into which the new industrial revolution is likely to penetrate are very extensive and include all labor performing judgments of the low level in much the same way as the displaced labor of the early industrial revolution included every aspect of human power, human capital. There will, of course, be human capital in the form of physical labor, I should say. There will, of course, be trades into which the new industrial revolution will not penetrate either because of new control machines or not economical and industries on so small a scale as not to be able to carry the considerable capital costs involved or because their work is so varied that new taping will be necessary for almost every job. I cannot see automatic machinery of the judgment replacing type coming into the use in the corner grocery or in the corner garage, although I can very well see it employed by the wholesale grocer and the automobile manufacturer, which we've already seen today in our own times. The farm laborer too, although he is beginning to be pressed by automatic machinery, is protected from the full pressure of it because of the ground has to because of the ground he has to cover. The variability of the crops he must till, which is obviously being trying to be genetically engineered to be more and more automated on that level as well. When we look at what Monsanto and uh, Bayer and these other ag chemical ag companies are doing, and the special conditions of weather and the like that he must meet, and they're trying to control the weather. <laughs> You can see uh, everything they're looking at through the lens of a prescriptive uh, closed system feedback loop where they'll be able to run these probabilistic models and uh, try to generate the best outcome and act upon that without needing much human interaction, if any at all. Even here, the large scale or plantation farmer is becoming increasingly dependent on cotton. So he goes into examples. But the point I think is that he's pointing out that both blue and white collar jobs 
are largely going to become an, a, an aspect of the past. Uh, Wiener, obviously, or Wiener, is an interesting figure in history, both in mathematics, um, but in, certainly in the cybernetics movement. And in, I'll watch it over, I think, in part two. I don't know if we got to it, but there's a whole section, I think, a little bit on um, some of his contributions. But um, it's fascinating. I mean, obviously, if I had, well, I do have the brain, but I'm not going to bring it up right now, Rich's brain, to show all the ominous connections associated with perpetuating these ideas, especially amongst the global elite. Um, but he is one of the sort of the mathematical spokesperson, this continuation of creating a society, an automated society where human be beings become less and less needed, which of course goes alongside, you know, sort of the UNESCO, Julian Huxley eugenics concept, going back to Galton and Thomas Huxley's father being evolutionary biologist and Galton being a uh, psychometric statistician and mathematician himself following the line of Mathis. Thomas Malthus and the geometric problem of population growth. In other words, there's a eugenics line that ties itself the whole way back to not the origins, but only a century or two after the origins of the Royal Society of perpetuating a new idea about human beings and a new idea of, I think, the human position and, and apotheosizing this new emerging science, making it godlike while at the same time disposing of the old mechanisms of control, which were your standard religions based off faith. And now we can dominate uh, the world. As Francis Bacon, I think, stated or uttered, um, knowledge is power and nature to be uh, under, um, nature to be obeyed must be understood. I believe something to that effect. And by, under, by using our knowledge, and he championed the inductive method, we'll be able to understand and control nature. And that was sort of the, you know, much of the enlightenment era, uh, aspect of this, this, you know, the age of reason and so forth and so on. It's this idea of gaining more and more control over our environment, but doing so interestingly has, uh, not amputated this necessary need for something of the effect of a religious notion of transcendence. Now we're just doing it instead of through faith and, you know, and uh, prayer and whatever the you know various church and the, or various theologies preach. Now we're doing it through actual physical interaction with machines and technology, and obviously individuality is being completely rewritten in that script. And we're only seeing sort of the worst and beginning to understand some of the the horrific manifestations and machinations that could emerge from that realization. Um, you know, weaponizing the religious instinct in human beings, I think is really one of the most pernicious elements that's happening and has happened throughout all of history, but is manifesting itself now and one of the worst situations possible because we have advanced technology. So it's a manifesting itself in technology instead of just some abstract belief or faith, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And that, that uh, ties into a lot of what Daniel McCarthy does in trying to understand this idea of utopianism something Carl Jung stated as one of the primary archetypes inside the human collective unconscious, this, this call back to a golden age that is we, we all sort of yearn for, but in the yearning for that, what is not realized is in every golden age, there seems to be a lack of individuality and a lack of the distinction. So there's an inherent paradox with the idea of a golden age utopia and individuality distinction and volition. <sighs> okay. With that being said is, Oh, stupid light. Got to get to these two clips very, very quick. Uh, and then I'm, we're going to call it. Uh, let's do 
I think it's the Ukraine, uh, John Bowne report. So under the Ukraine section and technology, economics, and politics, it'd be the very first clip. And then we're just going to get on the record, Klaus Schwab talking about the young global leaders and bragging about it back in the day. So we'll get this one on and then I'll come back and I'll direct LD the next one. And then we'll find some comedy to play us out. So. David, I'm not so sure he has uh, is certain what he's going to do. My guess is he will move in. He has to do something. If Putin takes aggressive action, we are prepared to levy serious and severe costs, period. And if any Russian military forces move across Ukraine's border, that's a renewed invasion. It will be met with swift, severe, and a united response from the United States and our partners and allies. Is an invasion likely, as President Biden suggested? Mr. Lavrov seemed to suggest it was up to the United States and later dismissed talk of invasion as hysterical rhetoric designed to provoke Ukraine. The globalists want all sorts of regional conflicts and fights and civil wars to, again, further destabilize and crash confidence in systems because they want the nation states to go down all at once, basically, to bring in their new global corporate governance. What we are very proud of now is a young generation like uh, Prime Minister Trudeau certainly penetrates the cabinets. And I know that half of this cabinet, or even more half of, uh, half of this cabinet, are for our actually young global leaders of the world economic form. And that's why they're racing to get their social credit score, vaccine passport apps in, to act as the new digital currency platform. This is their admitted plan, it's what they're doing, and it's happening now. We have to prepare for a more angry world. Constantly monitored by facial recognition cameras that are able to instantly put a face to a name. Now the Chinese are also ranked, given a mark out of a possible 950 points. A score in the 700s is considered good, around the 500 mark is not. Giant pallets, billions of dollars of anti-tank missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, you name it, being delivered and being put on the U.S. State Department Twitter website, masses of U.S. and NATO troops forming all around the borders uh, with Ukraine while telling you that Russia is imminently about to invade Ukraine. The reason Russia's building troops up is they see the buildup of the West. Russia doesn't have a history since the early 1980s of invading any country. They came in with Trump's support and helped knock out Al-Qaeda and others out of Syria, and then they left. If Russia further invades Ukraine, there will be significant costs and consequences. Russia will be held accountable if it invades. The risk of a conflict is real. This is an extremely dangerous situation. We're now at a stage where Russia could at any point launch an attack. I'm not saying Russia's perfect. I'm a loyal American. But we have globalists that hate our country that are running into the ground that are telling us that there is an imminent Russian attack. And Russia is saying we are not about to attack. There are U.S. troops building up and bringing weapons in, not just along our border with Ukraine, but along other borders like Poland and other areas. And the U.S. admits it. And, and why are you doing this? Of course, we're massing troops. You're massing troops on our border. In support of its obligations to the security and defense of NATO and the security of its citizens abroad, 
at the direction of the president and following recommendations made by Secretary Austin, the United States has taken steps to heighten the readiness of its forces at home and abroad so that they are prepared to respond to a range of contingencies. But, but the same gaslighters are telling us again that Russia is the aggressor. U.S. Embassy orders evacuation of non-essential staff and diplomats, family members from Ukraine, saying they believe there's an imminent attack by Russia and saying they believe Russia will stage a terror attack on their own forces on the border as a pretext for attacking. Straight out of the Russian playbook to try to, uh, through sabotage operations, through false flag operations, through blaming the other guy uh, to create that pretext, to give an excuse to go in. Well, the globalists always invert and project what they're doing. They have the history. They have the motive. They've massed the troops first. So I would look for them to attack Russian forces so that when Russian forces defend themselves, they'll claim it's a false flag. Or to attack Ukrainian forces and to say that Russia did it. And then a major war is launched, and now you have Biden's 2022 midterm election plan to get Americans unified behind a proxy war with Russia. Terrifying proposition of unifying America, which I don't see happening at all, but it certainly is an interesting proposition to throw out there that potentially America could be in some capacity unified and the world unified around this proxy war while they shift the COVID narrative to climate change and potentially God knows what else is going to might happen towards the end of the year, maybe a new variant, mail-in balloting, and all of a sudden this uh, bloodbath that the Democrats are worried about doesn't actually come to fruition, at least doesn't manifest as as, as gravely as it was initially uh, believed it was going to happen, and therefore they still maintain enough control to carry out the rest of their globalist plans. Um, but who knows? It's an interesting uh, proclamation. And... Uh, insight. Nonetheless, I want to play a quick promo. LD, if you could pull that up from earlier, I meant to get to that and totally spaced. Uh, we talked about the issue of courage and people not being, not willing to stand up uh, in the face of on growing tyranny and more and more going along with the crowd. And the, one of the issues that we've noticed, especially in autonomy, is people have lost their voice. They lost the conviction. They lost a, lost a sense of confidence. And through the autonomy course, I want you to hear a, uh, a student talk about some of the benefits that can manifest by helping to find your own voice, helping to find uh, your own conviction, your own confidence to move forward in the world. So you do have that courage, not just to better your own life situation in your own business or work environment, but maybe to carry that forward, to pay it forward to the larger society as, at a, uh, as a whole. And so I just want to give some brief words real quick on some of the benefits of Rich's course autonomy and what people can expect to, to uh, obtain from it. Ready for something crazy? If you spent time in the standard American school system from kindergarten through high school, you've spent 15,000 hours of your precious life in a classroom. Shocking. But yet, look at where we're at. Many of us feel totally ill-equipped to function in this crazy, overwhelming, hyper-competitive world. We get anxiety at the prospect of adulting, and entrepreneurship totally just feels like a pipe dream. This is the thing. 
I found a resource that has made the hugest world of difference for me and my journey of confidence, self-reliance, and success in an unpredictable world. It's called 19 Skills for Success That School Never Taught You. It's a free resource that I consider to be totally priceless and has taught me many of the skills I need to know to be flexible and to succeed in a world full of uncertainty. Who knows what the next few years could bring? I believe that you were made for more. And if you could succeed without these tools for self-reliance, wouldn't you have done it already? Nodi, where can they find that resource and begin the process of going about that? Getautonomy.info slash 19 skills. Um, nice. Almost there. Getautonomy.info. Okay. Slash 19 skills. Slash 19. Okay. Very good. I'm a product of, well, autonomy, but certainly working with Rich. I was, if people would listen to podcasts back in the day, I, um, was did not have my own voice, even though sometimes he let me participate in some of the podcasts. And I was always very nervous of just saying something wrong or not being, you know, not having enough information available and being able to recall at a moment's notice, all these different vectors of, of anxiety that were largely uh, my own self-construction to keep myself in a box where I felt safe. And there's that concept of safety that Brett alluded to earlier tonight. And it's about breaking out of that, about being our own personal heroes, about finding our voice and being able to stand up in our own right. That's why I'm able to do this today. So I'm a testament to what he has uncovered and then uh, developed into a course to help other people find their voice, help other people develop conviction, confidence, and the ability to you know, learn some basic sales techniques, to learn the values of entrepreneurship, which help bolster the middle class, which they're currently destroying, also gives freedom and autonomy to individuals to produce their own income, to improve their lot in life and be uh, the narrators to their own script rather than being an unwitting participant in someone else's script to loosely summarize John Taylor Gatto from the ultimate history lesson. With that being said, um, I just want to get one more slight, uh, actually John Bound got it on there, but I want to get the whole one minute clip on the time capsule that we call uh, GTW. It is under the Great Reset LD, and it will be the very last link in the Great Reset. Uh, oops, in the Great Reset uh, subcategory. Yeah. Okay. And then just is play it that. the, the yeah. embedded the, YouTube video here? Yeah, just that one. It's only a minute. So go ahead and All play right. that, and then we'll come back and finish it out. And I have to say, um, when I mention our names, like Mrs. Merkel, um, even uh, Vladimir Putin and so on, they all have been young global leaders of the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. But um, what we are very proud of now is the young generation, like uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, um, President of, Pres of uh, Argentina and so on, that we penetrate the cabinets. So yesterday I was at a, at a reception for Prime Minister Trudeau and I Come on, guys. Really? know that half of this cabinet right. or even more half of, uh, half of this cabinet are, for, are actually young global leaders of the world economy right. form. And that's true in Argentina too. Wow. 
Yeah, sorry. That's true in Argentina as well. It's true in Argentina. It's true in France now. Mm -hmm. I'm here with the president, with a young global leader. But what is important for me? Yeah, Emmanuel Macron, you know, Victor Orban, uh, Vladimir Putin, Justin Trudeau. Um, I have a so couple many... interesting addendums that I've, mm -hmm. I've kept track of since last year, um, only available through the Wayback Machine. Alexander Soros is no longer on the site. Uh, interesting. And Dan Crenshaw is no longer on the site. Oh, so I was going to just bring up the congressional. Yeah, wow. I don't know what that means necessarily. You know, maybe they cut ties. It would be an interesting question for somebody to ask Dan Crenshaw sometime. I know, I think he's been, uh, I think maybe I saw an interview where he was, uh, and he kind of mocked it. So I don't know, just something to keep in mind. Because actually, I, the reason I thought of it was, uh, the No Agenda podcast this past Thursday, uh, Adam Curry was well. They were they were both talking about the world economic. They were talking about this. Uh, they probably played that same clip actually. And at the end of the show, he mentioned, "Oh yeah, Dan Crenshaw is on there, by the way." And uh, I thought I went and checked the website to make sure. And to be clear, I actually I tried to message him on Twitter. I said he's he's on there, but only via the Wayback Machine. So that's crazy. I could have sworn a couple of months ago you were showing a list of these individuals and I thought I don't know if that was with through the Wayback Machine back then. So that this might have been more recent. I'm speculating, but off a sort of confabulation in my memory. But yeah, that is I, very fascinating. I found that last winter uh and saved it. Um I can't remember what trigger, but yeah. I, I've saved that and I pull it up uh periodically. When, There's uh, a number. I don't propagated. think he's the only congressman on there. I don't know. Maybe some well, Tulsi Gabbard is on there as Tulsi, well. Tulsi, that's the one I was thinking. But she, of. Is like, but she no was longer. never. She's not removed. She's okay. not removed from the site. She's still on there. That's fascinating. That's very strange. I wonder why Dan. Well, I you know I could speculate that Daniel Crenshaw, uh, due to his ties to being sort of this anti woke sort of Republican, you know, boisterous individual that doesn't want to be tied to, you know, a base that essentially is condemning this sort of movement, even though he's, he's part and parcel of that school of thought. And I don't know, I'm just pure, purely theory crafting right now, but that's where my mind would go at four in the morning, just trying to figure out like, why the hell, what do you want to separate away? What we do know seemingly is he was a part of it. So he can't deny that past if he's denouncing it and had some sort of former rebuke of it, you know, so, you know, more power to him, but I don't know. It seems a little shady to me and we'll have to see how that with, all plays out. Yeah. With the things that he, uh, seems to be talking about or supporting often, it, it seems to be in line with him being some yes. sort of uh, deep snake in the grass. As people like to call yes. it. Yes. Yes. Well said. I agree. Well, with that, uh, last couple uh, points, uh, GTW Town Hall, Tuesday night, 7 o'clock p.m. Uh, right now, it's being run from 7 to 11. When I do start conducting my logic course, which is going to begin the first week of March, probably on Thursday at 7 o'clock. I haven't fully set the date, but it'll be sometime the first week of March. Um, 
I'll probably lower the time for the town halls just during the, during the time I run my course, just so I don't overwhelm myself, uh, during the week, but for now it's seven to 11, uh, come join us. And if you join the GTW community, you know, show them how they can join, uh, you get access to the pilot course I'll be running, free access to be a part of that course. We're going to go over the informal fallacies and definition. We're going to keep it very simple, very straightforward. And they're on the screen, $10, 2,500 a month um, participation. That'll give you access to a lot of uh, productions that have not, Rich has not uh, put out there, but are being made available for uh, GTW members, as well as, like I said, the pilot course, as well as the, the GTW community that shares resources and conversation all the time, as well as uh, just, um, and, and many, many more items that we're trying to fit into the pipeline to bring as much value to as many individuals as possible that are seeking truth and trying to understand their world uh, more rationally and in the face of this tyranny and irrationality. So with that, I think we're going to call it there. Let's see. Let me see if we can find just, uh, is there any funny clips <laughs> to play us out? Yeah, have just a look and uh, I'll just give a quick thank you mm -hmm. to all the community members, uh, everybody that participates in town hall, especially, and big thanks to the Rockfin tippers this evening, this morning, wherever you are. Nicholas, Ksenia, Tcan, Matt, Dallas, Well Emanuel, and Bent Reg. Thanks again, you guys. And uh, I wanted to give a shout out to Tommy, who I met in Long Beach. He was there from San Francisco. He'd flown down to go to the Sam Tripoli, Eddie Bravo comedy show. And he recognized me and came up. <laughs> And asked if I was LD from the Grand Theft World podcast, and he was. Yes, we had a we had a good talk, and uh, that was a fun time. I was hanging out with another autonomy student and a couple of her friends, and some of us went up on stage, asked some questions at the end. I think there's a video out there somewhere. I have to track I'll have down. To show that next time. That's pretty. Fun. Yeah, we. That's we awesome. Asked, got to meet some people in the community though. Yeah, we asked serious qu serious questions at a comedy show, so I, don't know. I haven't seen <laughs> Planting the video. seeds. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> and for those that are uh, wondering where the fuck Rich is, he'll be back hopefully next Sunday. Um, if not this next Sunday, which will be what the seventh? Uh, no, well, I'm way off. Why is this? Not, oh, to look at January. So the sixth. So it's close. Um, he should be back the sixth. That's the plan. If he does, but at worst, at the latest, he'll be back. Certainly for the show, the thirteenth. I may have to run one more by myself. If if so, might have Brett Benat join us for the first hour just to talk about this vaccination propaganda course he took, just to get an idea of what's being um, presented out there for normies um to present sort of vaccine how to present the vaccine to uh those that are hesitant uh when we so we're sort of scrutinize that and criticize that um and he said it's pretty awful and very low-hanging fruit but it'll be kind of fun to do so but i also have a someone i many people have heard me mention many times senna might join me for some very intense deep dives I'd like to do a deep dive into the united nations and it's precursor in the uh, League of Nations, which failed, and sort of go down some some deep rabbit holes the way Rich and I would normally do it. 
and uh, sort of had a deep dive plan for that tonight. Got sort of sidetracked with Orbit Wiener and just the the amazing roundtable discussion we had earlier. So depending on whether Rich makes it back or not for Sunday next Sunday's show, we'll determine whether or not I have some more people join me. But if he doesn't, I'll, of course, we'll have those individuals hopefully join me and we'll have more interesting and nuanced conversation. And then by the 13th at the latest, he'll be back and we'll be back to the normal uh, flow of the show. And with that, I would say, oh yeah, yeah, throw that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, Luke has great t-shirts, but if you want something more subtle and uh, Grand Theft World flavored, <laughs> go over to freedomunitedrevolt.com. There's a selection, a growing selection slowly of uh, new shirts like this certified to think. So you don't need any uh, anybody to certify you to think if you got a brain, right? There you go. <laughs> and there's a little Grand Theft World graphic on the back. Freedomunitedrevolt.com. Go check it out. Very cool. Very awesome. That's That's been a project you wanted to get started. Oh, my goodness. Uh I'm glad you got that underway because I remember it's something you were talking about actually when I first met you and um, on that faithful trip across the country with Justin to uh, yeah. Porkfest. That was just, that was just an idea. Started as but an idea. But you actually brought it into manifestation. So that's uh, kudos to you for getting that done. And more and more ideas will be added. Sort of like what Luke's been doing. Just keep adding on. So synergistic like that. Uh, let's see. I couldn't, you know, JP series, you've been play, sort of playing him out a little bit. Let's do the, um, let's do this. The Carlin, George Carlin. Someone mentioned about George Carlin in the town hall. And he's like, why don't you play some Carlin? I'll play one of the more famous clips. It might have, I hope we didn't already do this on GTW, but everyone knows this one, but just a sort of refresher and a reminder about the idea of the American dream and, uh, his sort of cynical and sardonic way of expressing it. And that'll take us out. Hey, I want to thank everyone for tuning in tonight, for allowing me the opportunity to engage with you. I understand I'm not rich and I share in different uh, interests in rich, especially intellectually, more on the philosophy side and ancient history. But nonetheless, um, I appreciate the conversations I was able to have tonight with the roundtable of Brett, James, and Daniel. And I hope to provide as much value for those that are members or just in those that frequent or patronize our show and uh, in, in a unique way and do something a little bit different here and there that it's just not me droning on and diatribing about, you know, the shit that's going on over the past week. We can get sort of more of a discussion, more of a dynamic discussion around some of these ideas and have different people present different viewpoints around it um, that are also doing their own research and that are also very aware of some of the background uh, situations, actors, organizations that are affecting our lives today. So, and again, next week, if Rich for some reason doesn't make it back, we'll do it again. I'll find someone, find a couple individuals and line them up and we'll have a more meaningful conversation. I'm hoping in that dialectic format, the way I provided for Rich to help sort of stimulate his memory around much of his research uh, is useful to helping uh, people in the audience understand what we're trying to present and preserve through the time capsule of this Grand Theft World. So with that, uh, thank you for tuning in and not dropping out. We'll see you next week. Thank you, LD, by the way. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Good night, everybody. It's a great job. The only true lasting American value that's left, buying things. 
buying things. People spending money they don't have on things they don't need. Money they don't have on things they don't need. So they can max out their credit cards and spend the rest of their lives paying 18% interest on something that costs $12.50. And they didn't like it when they got it home anyway. Not too bright, folks. Not too fucking bright. But if you talk to one of them about this, if you isolate one of them, you sit them down rationally, and you talk to them about the low IQs and the dumb behavior and the bad decisions, right away they start talking about education. That's the big answer to everything. Education. They say we need more money for education. We need more, more, more books, more teachers, more classrooms, more schools. Uh, we need more testing for the kids. You say to them, well, you know, we've tried all of that and the kids still can't pass the test. They say, oh, don't you worry about that. We're gonna lower the passing grades. And that's what they do in a lot of these schools now. They lower the passing grades so more kids can pass. More kids pass, the school looks good, everybody's happy, the IQ of the country slips another two or three points, and pretty soon all you'll need to get into college is a fucking pencil. <laughs> Got a pencil? Get the fuck in there, it's physics. <laughs> then everyone wonders why 17 other countries graduate more scientists than we do. Education! Politicians know that word, they use it on you. Politicians have traditionally hidden behind three things. The flag, the Bible, and children. No child left behind. No child left behind. Oh, really? Well, it wasn't long ago you were talking about giving kids a head start. Head start, left behind. Someone's losing fucking ground here. <laughs> but there's a reason, there's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks, and it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The big, re the wealthy, that, the real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. They're, they're, they're irrelevant. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners, they own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media, media news, all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. That's right. You know something? They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table to figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your social security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. <laughs> you and I are not in the big club. And by the way, it's the same big club they used to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. 
and nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. Good, honest, hard-working people, white collar, blue collar, doesn't matter what color shirt you have on, good, honest, hard-working people continue, these are people of modest means, continue to elect these rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about them. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all, at all, at all. Man, you know? And nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant of the big red, white, and blue dick that's being jammed up their assholes every day. Because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. Conspiracy is the story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at grandtheftworld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.